On today's episode of Podific Weekly, expect current up-to-the-minute news and advertising that's relevant to you. Also tonight, Ryan and she have the same hat and there might be melted coffee. Warning, knowing Tina's actual birth year may cause screaming. Welcome to Potterfic Weekly, the place where the story never ends. I'm getting kind of tired of this free publication media, but you got all of muggle kind under your spell. <laughs> Don't you know the whole world's already gone and deserved a copy on Amazon? How many more books could you sell? Cause I need Harry Potter like a Grindy low needs water and as Saturday approaches my need grows. Oh, Asio, Deathly Hallows, Incendio, book sales embargoes, it'll be like Phoenix Tears on a broken nose. Oh, Asio, Deathly Hallows. It's a good song. <laughs> and then that one leads to, um, I want J.K. Rowling to say that the epilogue is crap because we all know it was crap. And I want J.K. Rowling to say. <laughs> I am starting the recording. We are covering. Okay, when the hell did the chapter start tonight? I, I hadn't checked the news or anything and um, the Dow just shocked me. I think it needs to drop down to like 7,500 and then rebound. Ugh. I hate that book, but, like, knowing that you have to spend 30 minutes making this video and then, you know, another hour and a half, like, editing it, talk about books on a channel that, like, thousands of teenagers watch religiously, I about had an orgasm. I was like, this is fantastic! Isn't that what we do about the Harry Potter? Huh? Nothing. Shut up, Ryan. (laughs) Tina, you have to join Facebook. Know why? I'm going to sell it to you right here. Facebook will make your life easier. It tells you what everyone you know is doing without you having to check. It's one-stop shopping. Plus, you can see a video of me trying to drive home from Maine. It told me the shortcut. It told me the short. It told me the shortcut was through the local lake. Who can't follow directions now? I guess you're nothing without your precious GPS, Mister Matman. Mister, I know where the ocean is. Do you see PS getting snarky over here? She just called me Mister Map Man. Oh, this is depressing. Oh, she just put in her date of birth. It's okay, well, Tina. To get to my year of birth, I'm gonna scroll down. <laughs> scroll down. It wouldn't approve my name. What? What, what does it say? It says our automated system will not approve this name. What name Maybe are you it's putting? Because I put in my name. Brian, I'm totally laughing at you. You're so cute. Like, every time I see you on a video, I just want to, like, take your cheeks and be like, you're just so cute. Okay, I got it now. You have to love my old man hat. Oh, does Danielle know you put that picture up? Yeah. She I bet move. she wants she was to too, hurt you. She couldn't move. Is she still going to marry you? I think so. Hello? Sue at Oxford! <laughs> we had to let Sue on the podcast tonight because her coffee maker melted today at work. I'm going to friend you. I'm going to deny the friendship. <laughs> you are not. Aww. You're not that me. Everyone else will friend me. You were a perfect rose. I will I will boycott you, P.S. Can I just say this? I just have to say this about the chapters tonight. I think the entire thing can be... Like, I know there's a lot of great scenes in these chapters, and, you know, it was emotional, and we cried, and tears were shed and stuff. But I think you can sum the entire thing up to erectile dysfunction. <laughs> Holy crap! This is 
previously on Perfect Weekly. And welcome back to Perfect Weekly. This is Ryan. I enjoy long walks on the beach. Hello, I'm Jen. I'm Jen. <laughs> My name is Jen. I didn't want to tell you, but I wrote a smut about you. <laughs> I'm like feeling very <sighs> distressed. Lady T here. <laughs> I'm not made of stone. I have cats that I am throwing away. Anna is in the house. I'm a hat rack. And I'm Keza. Hello. We all use the shower to wash ourselves. <laughs> I'm P.S. I don't know where I thought the food came from, but I never thought that there were still arms. Mike. Mike, you never say I'm Mike. You're going to invest, invest in Canadian or Russian shipping. All of the ice is going to melt in northern Canada, and it's going to open up new shipping lines. If northern Canada melts, would that not flood the world and kill us all? These are really stupid people. Like, I have a lot to learn from these people. Boys and girls, there's a thing called erectile dysfunction. Oh, my God. Yeah, but there's also a thing called Petrificus Totalis. Perfect Weekly, not only entertaining, but educational as well. (laughs) Who wants to see Hermione as a trial lawyer? As a tribal warrior? (laughs) I've been here the whole time, but I can't remember what was just said. Oh, Vicodin. I love the fact that she's Australian. The art. This is a momentous moment, and you're mocking my accent. Mother-in-law is evil. She got a cat. I'm very, very allergic to cats. And my mother-in-law is evil, and she knows this. And she got a damn cat. How many virgins can successfully ravage anybody? He's Harry Potter. Come on. He's a skinny, awkward kid who we think has ED. No, 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 we don't think that. You think that. Poor Bernard was struck and killed by a bolt of lightning. Okay, you guys are the ones who obviously laugh during people's funerals. I wore a really big hat. I super Harry Ginny. I write Harry Ginny. I read Harry Ginny. Snape and Harry, not really my thing. Putting aside the question of sexual orientation. On Saturday, September 13th at 11.21 p.m., I fell so madly in love you won't even believe it with Harry Ginny. I think I just peed my pants. Please say that again. I felt something click inside of me. And the second half of my life began. She really does love them. This is like the Manhattan Project. Sorry, I'm so sorry. Oh, come here. I'm so sorry. Come here. <laughs> I, just, I just kicked my dog in the head. I peeled my whole fingernail off once when I was a child. First time I ever learned what an erection was. Seriously, I remember this very distinctly. Harry is both a spy and a department head. George shot Justin a significant glance. From a memory charm and everyone in the room. Shalom. You have reached Puffo's resident Jew. She has like a whole sound system. I don't have a sound system. <laughs> she sounds a little aggravated. Are you a little creaky? What a god, Ryan. If you ever, ever, ever make me cover a story with butt sex babies, I will kill you. Yeah, neither can live one. while the other survives. What does that mean? How does that mean? What is to kill the other? And Jen's like, yeah, I like looking at female butts more too. So what? Women are beautiful. Doesn't make me gay. You thought I Jen got pregnant it. on a boat? I've realized in this podcast that Ryan just lies to me nonstop. And now, Potterfic Weekly. For Thursday, November 27th, 2008, this is episode 63 of Potterfic Weekly. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Welcome to the place where the story never ends. Podcast quite like this. 
one that brought us together and started its own forum list. Where the hosts are all our friends. All the stories told by Jen. Will it drive Ryan round the bend? Part of it weekly, where the story never ends. Mm-hmm. Welcome back to Perfect Weekly. This is Ryan. I'm Libby Chi. I'm P.S. A.K.A. Rose Tyler. <laughs> For those of you, oh, keep going. Say, identify I'm yourselves. Tina. And I'm Sue. Sue has been. Sue is like, hi Ryan, what's new? I'm like, you're podcasting in 30 seconds, Sue. Oh, all right. Um, fire, ready. <laughs> so Sue is absolutely no preparation time for this. Uh, we are all joining Facebook as we speak, and P.S. being in the witness protection program was unable to identify herself. So if you go to Facebook and you look for Rose Tyler, she's the anime one. Just in case you feel inclined to. Know. Friends, P.S. So in tonight's action-packed episode of Perfect Weekly, we are covering chapters 15 through 26 of Curse of the Damned by Melinda Leo. Now, at the time we're recording this, we are just about to release the first episode on Power of Emotion. So we're busy in the editing process, and we're trying to make the episodes, you know, very concise and, you know, jam-packed with material. And I can't help but feel as we go into this, that we really haven't talked about the story yet, except in the one that Lady Chi hosted, but unfortunately her microphone was under her space bar at the time, so there may have been some repetitive tapping over the head. So we're going to try in the next two hours to get through as much of the fic as we can, because Melinda is listening right now. At the time Melinda is listening to this, it is 7.30 in the morning, and her children have just left for school, and she is sitting at the kitchen table with a beer. And she was listening to us to see what the hell we came up with now. So, Melinda, hello. How are you? I'm sure it's really a margarita. <laughs> yeah, In a beer sure. can. It's just... <laughs> so, poor or, Melinda. Or at the very least, one of those wine coolers, you know. <laughs> Jump through, because this week we have to plow ahead, because we have to get to the chapters this week. Uh, we hope to have Jen on tonight. Jen couldn't make it. She said she would be glad to podcast if we could podcast at, like, 1 o'clock in the afternoon, so I hung up on her. But we're going to try and get her back on next week. Jen has returned to Yellowstone. She went back, and it was even more disastrous than the first time. Like, it was no. a total nightmare. I, I, I don't want to spoil it. It involves uh, deer, donuts... Uh, colostomy bags. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, I take that back. No colostomy bags. There are catheters involved. Uh, you know, the, uh, 2 a.m. wake-up calls. And, uh, well, you know what? I can't even do the story justice. So, you know what? It involves pregnant little Jen standing in the middle of the woods. And you can just go from there. Uh, Sue, you had an interesting day today, and just to help us because of the time problems that we're having right now, could you please tell the story without using verbs? I don't know, but I can probably do it fairly quickly. Earlier this week, we had one of our students pulled the fire alarm and evacuated the building, and it was just a mess. But apparently, he knew something that the rest of us didn't, because today at work, the coffee pot melted. (laughs) And we had arid smoke throughout the building, 
Of course, if we miss a day of school, we have to make it up. So I guess they decided that we didn't want to miss the day of school. But the fire department came and took the coffee pot, I thought, away. But apparently they left it on top of the dumpster. I don't know. And we spent the day with this horrible smell and everybody had headaches and everything. But they couldn't cancel class because we didn't want to make up the day. I don't know. I just want to point out the only reason Sue is on the podcast tonight is because her coffee pot melted. We just thought that that was some energy that we needed. Well, we we thought that was a sign from God that she needed to be on the podcast, really, because, you know, if something disastrous happens to you, then, you know, then that means you're Plutonian. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, right now, I'm not going to lie to you. I have no idea where Rena is. Rena was supposed to be here. Rena said she had an interesting story to tell me, and she was never heard from again. So it's kind of like the Da Vinci Code thing, where I'll be right there. I must tell you about the ah, and and you know the person unfortunately disappears. So I just implied that Rena has been shot and killed, and for that I apologize to Rena. I know. I know. Did you hear the International Society of uh, uh, Albinoism or whatever condemns that movie? No, the, there's no way there's an International Society of Albinoism. Can we do some there research is. We come to the There podcast? is. I would not make this up. Albinoism? Why would I make up something ridiculous? Okay, Albinism. 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 Thank you. P.S. knows what word I'm trying to say. Why is P.S. know the word albinism off the top of her head? Because that was... that's the word. It's the okay. right word. Okay, she has gotten so much more testy since she became a Harry Ginny shipper. I have to tell you, I think I liked her better. I think I liked her better when she was rooting for, you know, Luna Hermione. She's entered the good fight, the Harry Jenny fight, and when you enter the Harry Jenny fight, you start to realize that the world is so much more annoying because nobody wants to see things the way that you see things, even though that's the way that they actually are in canon. So you spend your time, like, beating people upside the head with canon, and it makes you testy. So I can understand that. All right, let me jump in here. Okay, Uh, jumping back into the chapters tonight, we've been a little light on... Hold on, someone's taxing the shit out of somebody. Okay. Um, we've been a little light on the details the past few weeks. Uh, she was trapped under her keyboard one week, and we had to guess if Jonathan Taylor Thomas was gay another week. And, you know, we had all of these important breaking news. The Dow tanked. That's number three on our list of important things. Uh, you know, we ha- we've had all this stuff happen during the podcast. So let's try and get into s- some specifics tonight. The one thing I want to start off with is Melinda's overall writing style. And this is very, very evident the more into Curse of the Damned you got. And Curse of the Damned is its certainly my favorite of the, of, of the two. Probably of anything Melinda's written, I think. I probably prefer Curse of the Damned the most. The thing that Melinda does, and she does this really well, she, she writes almost like in a way that Joe does. She's telling a story over a year. And it's about kids who go to school. So every day they wake up and they go to the Great Hall, they have breakfast, then they go to class, and they get out of class, they go back to the Great Hall, they have some lunch, they go back to class, they get out, they get a bite to eat, they go to the bathroom, they go to the Quidditch pra- It's like every day they have the same schedule. So Melinda has a, a tale that she wants to tell over, you know, a year. So the way she writes it is, you know, several months went by. Like, she'll actually have a paragraph. You know, she's telling a nine-month tale. And one of the paragraphs will be, later that month, or several months went by, or, I did not say Melinda has a tale. This is why I can't read this thing. Melinda Leo does not have a tale. I've met her. I did not see it. Like, I wasn't staring at her butt or anything, but I would have noticed. Oh, take a shot, Melinda. Take a tale. Okay. 
Melinda the way has a tail is now the is now the title of this episode. All right, I, this is why I can't read what these people are saying about me as I'm talking. I lose all focus. And I was about to make it brilliant in my monologue. So my point is, she does the thing where she'll say several months went by. Or, you know, she speeds through the story and she stops at very important points along the way. And I think that's a really great way to write because it keeps the story flowing. And I, because other authors, I swear to God, it's like you, every day you go back to the common room and you hear what they're talking about and then they go to bed and then they wake up and you're, it's like, okay, this is very interesting. I don't feel like I'm missing anything. Like nothing. Harry woke up on the 43rd day and had oatmeal and cheese toast for breakfast. Then he went to potions. Then he went to charms. Then he went to bed and nothing important then happened. He and then Harry the woke up on the 44th day. Yeah, exactly. An excruciating detail. The stomach <laughs> And then he put on his red shirt and his blue jeans, and then Ginny put on her gray skirt and her white blouse. Well, that I would read, because they're obviously, they've just had sex, so there, there might be some interest in there. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's, so it's, but it's like, there's a way to write it. And the thing I really like about her is just like, the, she has a great way of writing, and that even though it's from Harry's perspective, I know what Dumbledore is thinking. Because of, you know, the, 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 his reaction. Like, the scene when Dumbledore asks Harry if he will allow Snape to be, you know, the, the faculty sponsor of the DA. And Harry says no. I felt like I had a great sense of what Dumbledore was thinking in that scene. Even though it wasn't from Dumbledore's perspective. And sometimes you only get Harry and it's annoying. Because I, I don't want to know everything Dumbledore's thinking. But I want a good balance. And I think she does a really good job of that. Because she'll step into the role of narrator herself and she'll say you know harry missed this or harry didn't see this or she she just does those scenes just very well and i know i'm just being very vague here but i i just really love the way that she writes these scenes because she does character moments so well so i feel like every time she goes into detail i know there's like great character moment coming if that makes sense so it's it's mm-hmm. more fun for me to read it because i don't feel like like, some other fix, I feel like I'm, you know, on the beach with a metal detector trying to find a nickel. So it's like, you know, okay, while this scene is like the 42 to come before it, maybe something's different. Oh, no, no, Harry went to class. All right, better luck tomorrow. So it's like, so I really like the way that she paces the story. I think her pacing is excellent. It's very true. Melinda Leo does, um, her, uh, her writing style is very similar to J.K. Rowling's, like Ryan was saying, um, not only in, in how she tends to balance, um, description and dialogue but also in uh the pacing of the story and um i do think that like when melinda leo shines as an author the most is when she gives us like two characters making a real emotional connection because you can always feel it there's a scene here in chapter 15 that um i remember um and i read this fic like i said pretty much tri-annually, like three times every year. Um, and this is one of the scenes that sticks out in my mind. It's when Ron and Harry are having a conversation. And Ron says to Harry, well, how do you know what I'm feeling? And, you know, Harry just kind of shows him his scar. And Ron's like, oh, yeah, right. It sucks to be you. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know what? I love that because... Okay, if you met some, say there, there's like a kid who, you know, wrestled Osama bin Laden to the ground and like, you know, you know like he, he did this absolutely, you know, heroic thing, which in reality he had absolutely no control over, but he's seen by the world as a hero and you, and you're like in an elevator and you get on with him 
and you know he's a normal kid, but you're all like, um, how does it feel? Like, you ask the dopiest question, because people don't know how to respond to you like that. So they're all like, oh, how's it going? Sorry about your parents. Like, you, you just ask dumb things, because you don't know how to relate to someone who is, you know, a quasi-celebrity like that. You just have to love it sometimes when you know the guy enough. You're like, you know what? It must really suck to be you. When you love someone off the street to just say that. Like, I, like, my dream in life is to, is to be on an elevator with like Paris Hilton and look over at her and be like, you know what? I am absolutely unimpressed and just get off the elevator. <laughs> it does my own life, but I know it's not going to happen. But it's, I would, I would just love someone not to be like, <laughs> hi. Kind of like Phil was when he met, you know, Xenia and Arabella. And I was. <laughs> Let's just go there. And I was. All right. So. I was going to say, I do believe it was like you that your tongue was on the ground and you couldn't oh, like. Oh, you and H. Whimsy. Oh, my God. <laughs> Get no, Get H. Whimsy and I. No, H. Whimsy and I have a mutual admiration society. We adore each other. So it's not quite as pathetic oh, as perhaps bad. like you. They and gave Sanya. each other little crowns and scepters. and. <laughs> Oh my god, she! I'm l- the entire interview. I'm picking cheese jar up off the ground and putting it back where it belongs. Her jar? jar. When did she drop her jar? <laughs> you live four feet from me. Don't make me come over there. I know you're Gross. All right. So I want to just back up because because I wasn't in the last podcast. I don't remember where I was. I I I, I could have been anywhere. Uh, and we. You were there, you just weren't podcasting. That's true, I was ignoring you people. Uh, it, I remember, because I kept saying, what is that thumping noise? And it was she smashing her space bar down on, on the microphone. So, <coughs> just because I wasn't here to talk about the beginning of Cursed, um, you know what it is? Reading this fic, and I'm going to insert myself in a lot of these um, episodes, because it's like, I, I do the podcast, and then I read it again the next day. I'm like, oh, I wish I mentioned this, I wish I mentioned this. So there's so much stuff I think I'm going to go back and add in here. I really just want to step back into the chapters from last week for a second and just briefly mention uh, the trip to Aberforth's uh, beachside house and, and that whole scene there. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of great points I'll reinsert into last week's episode, but the one thing I wanted to talk about was the battle scene because I have to say that was battle scenes in the Harry Potter fandom. I can take or leave. Um, there haven't been very many of them that have really held my attention completely. One of them comes up in um, The Final Reckoning, which we're going to cover in a few weeks uh, by Lavender Brown. And another one is really the battle scene, even more so than maybe even the final battle in this one. Well, I shouldn't say that, but the actual, like, you know, the hand-to-hand combat and all that stuff. I think the, the, the scene where Charlie dies was probably one of the best rhythm ones because it's literally the scene where you have, I, I forget who it was, I think it was Tonks, uh, Harry, and there's someone, who's the other person with them? I can't remember. They were behind like a wall or something in the wall. Remus? Ron. No, uh, Remus. Was it Ron? Was Ron there? It, it might have been Ron. I remember because Ginny and Hermione were on the boat. Ron, was Ron Fred there? and George were in the bar at the topless or wet t-shirt bar. Yeah, I think it was Ron. And, you know, the and, 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 the, and the wall, you know, it might have been Re- I can't remember who it was. And the, and the wall is destroyed and they all have, you know, soot and, and, and they've got crap in their eyes and they can't see anything and they're looking all around. And all of a sudden, you know, 
Charlie Weasley comes flying from overhead to protect his family. And it's this, because so the, the scenes that Melinda nails are the ones where you were so angry by what just happened that you can't even control yourself. And it's, you know, it's, it's Harry fighting Voldemort at the end of Power of Emotion. It's Harry fighting the Death Eaters at the Ministry of Magic when Ginny is hurt. And it's Charlie Weasley when he likely sees his family about to be killed. And he goes absolutely you know, beyond anger and he charges in and he takes on all of the death eaters himself and he dies. And I'm like, and the, the scene was written so well because you see Harry hold Jenny back, just like Remus held Harry back at the, at the veil. And what's even, you know, more great than just that one moment is, is, is the consistent, consistent follow-up that Melinda puts into the story. My, one of my favorite scenes from the whole th- scene has to be the one with Molly Weasley and Harry from, you know, when, when, when Molly's yeah. in her room and Harry goes in and it really shows that Melinda is a great writer because the character of Harry does grow. He probably annoyed the hell out of me in Power of Emotion. And that's probably a good thing because he kept doing the whole thing he always does, you know, people need to get away from me, you know, I, I'm responsible for global warming and everything is my fault, and blah, 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 and she writes into it that he is the only person who can possibly help Molly. And he really, I think, thrives in the environment after sounds awful to say, but in the environment like after... I like that too, is that I mean, we, I think most of us who know Melinda know that that's the scene with Molly and Harry in the hospital wing at the end of Goblet of Fire is like one of her favorites. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of like taking that and reversing it and showing how, like you said, Harry has grown throughout the, you know, Melinda's series and is now giving Molly the comfort that she gave him back after Cedric died and all that. And I think that is one of the best scenes in the whole fic. Yeah, he's the only one that can do it. He's the only one that has he's seen everyone die right before him, and mm-hmm. he it, it makes him stronger. It, it knocks him down in the beginning, but through his friends, it makes him stronger. It makes him a better person. And she's dealt with death before too. She lost two brothers, but losing a kid is an awful thing. You, you're never supposed to lose, lose a kid. Like in my own life, I lost a parent, and then a few weeks later, I remember. I remember I was talking to Danielle. It was this is maybe five six weeks after my father passed away, and I remember saying to her. It's it's very sad having lost my dad, but it's what's supposed to happen. And I was commenting that you're not supposed to lose because for my mom, you're not supposed to lose your husband. You know that's that's weird. You're not supposed to lose your husband, but you are supposed to lose a father because parents die and children grow, and then their children. Want, I mean, it's, it's the circle of life. The next day, my cousin's baby died. He died in his sleep. And that really just drove it home. I'm like, it's, you're not supposed to lose a kid. It's not supposed to happen that way. And it happens to Molly in the canon. She loses Fred instead of Charlie. But she shuts down. And what I love about this is Harry knows what Ron is doing, and he knows what Molly is doing, and he knows what Ginny is doing, and he knows what to do and how to treat them and what they need. And he's the only one that can do it. And it's just, it's great to see Harry actually help rather than Harry just be the one who needs support all the time. Because I think if you have a Harry that can actually stand in his own and, and make these decisions on his own, that shows that everything that came before was successful. And we don't see that a lot in the and canon. And it's I mean, part of his yeah. growth, too, as a character and into the adult he needs to be when the final battle happens. And mm. that it's not 
all of, it's not just about him. I mean, he is the chosen one, but what he's doing isn't about him. It's about everyone. It's what he's doing for everyone. And you saw that two different ways in the, in the canon. You saw, you know, the fact that in Deathly Hallows, Harry doesn't destroy a single Horcrux. You know, Neville does it and, you know, and who else does it? Crab destroyed one and Ron. Ron destroyed one. Everyone else destroys one. But at the final battle, Hermione's not there and Ron's not there. They're, they were off for a while, you know, getting everything out of the chamber. And yeah, you have Harry really do it himself at the end, but everyone's behind him, but he still does it himself. So it, it, it it's kind of sort of the same way with, um, with Melinda here too. And I just love that scene. And I know it was from last week, but that's little moments like that or the scene, you know, starting off tonight's chapters where McGonagall, um, gives Ginny the potion and says to give this to Harry. And every time she gives him the streamless sleep potion, she stops and asks him something about the torture. And he tells her, cause he's so tired. He just has, and, and everything comes out and every night she purges him a little bit more and gets a little bit more out. I think that's just, it's, it's a great scene. If I had any complaint about these chapters and I have very, very few, it would be at some, I don't even know if it's a complaint. There's some points where I feel like I'm being hit over the head with the fact that Harry and Jenny love each other. Like, I think she does such an incredible job showing us that Harry and Jenny love each other that sometimes I think when she has them tell each other how much they love each other, it can get somewhat repetitive because she just did such an amazing job of showing it. Like, I don't love each other. You know what I mean? So, that, well, yeah, I mean, I guess the problem is, um, if I can talk about this for a minute, and I'll let you get back to what you're saying, Ryan. Um, I think I'm done for the night sheet. Take all the time you want. Like when you're <laughs> when you're um, when you're writing when you're writing a relationship, the problem is I think as women writing romance, and this is just my personal opinion. And if I get like a flaming email about how I'm a chill, naive children's writer, I'll be very put out. But anyway, um, Lady Chi at PirateFakeWeekly.com. Yeah, when you're um when you're writing romance as a woman. Sometimes we give in to this impulse that we have to um, write down the kinds of things that, you know, we wished we could say or we wished our husbands could say to us or our boyfriends or our significant others, you know. And sometimes that really does kind of fall flat because how often do you turn to your mate and go, I love you desperately. I couldn't draw in breath without you. Like, it doesn't make... I mean, nobody well, ever says it like that. You wouldn't say it like that, that Chief. Yeah, I mean, I mean there's got to be I a know. particular... Well, isn't it... <laughs> you know, the, one of the common Mars versus Venus thing is that a woman wants to talk about how she feels and she wants, you know, everything out in the open and, you know, she needs to hear the words. And so I think a woman is naturally going to write that way. Right. I know, I know exactly what you mean, Chi. Yeah, I think it's going to resonate with women better than it would resonate with men because I know I was having this discussion with Alan earlier um, about about what he calls mush and fix and I was like but I love that stuff I read for that stuff to get to that glorious romantic you know spot she just turned um, British there there's, there's this romantic romantic Oh, oh I did, did I say that? I'm sorry. I've been watching a lot of Doctor Who and it's really affecting my vocabulary <laughs> and everything. Oh my god. <laughs> I'll try that to see. It does that to me too. I know. I actually, I did type this sentence today. I said, I'm sorry I released your birthday fic early, but I was just so chuffed with it. And I'm afraid it's a bit rubbish. And I did submit. I was like, oh my god. <laughs> I've got to stop watching BBC for fun. Anyway, um, 
What's he saying? Oh, Brian. Um, well, the example I want to give here, because Melinda is on her third beer at the moment, is that there's so many moments in here. And you know what? There's, I think there was only one moment where I'm like, okay, Melinda, I get it, because there's so few of them. The scene was when um, the Witch Weekly article comes out later in the chapters, You know, the one where um, it talks about how Harry could have his choice of you know any woman in the world, and he's already burned through Hermione, uh, Virginia, uh, Lucy, and the other one, whoever she was. And um, Ginny feels very um, vulnerable because Harry's going to go off for a year and he's very unwise to, you know, the outside world. And that's shown time and time again because Harry just doesn't get girls and, and Ginny's smacking them upside the head, telling, <laughs> telling him that, you know, that Hermione and Ron, you know, obviously love each other and her mother obviously loved her father based on the leathers and all that stuff. And, uh, you know, she just feels very vulnerable because she's afraid of what will happen to him. And he's like, you were the only reason... I do anything. And, you know, I was almost off for the Quidditch gig today, but I almost turned it down because I thought I wouldn't be able to see every day. I mean, you're the focus of my world, and you're the only reason I'm alive right now. That right there is it. And that's just such an amazing statement, and that's just that just sums it up so perfectly. You know what? And I'm not even sure if it's a fair criticism now that I think of it, because it's not like you say I love you once, and that's it. It's something that you, you do tend to repeat especially if you're mm-hmm. so much in love as these two characters obviously are. I just felt at some points, and maybe this isn't fair to Melinda at all, but I felt like at some, there were other points where the characters just kind of said it, and they repeated it, and I'm like, but she just showed it so well, and you know what, if that's the best I can come up with tonight, I think Melinda's I, I will say, good. as somebody who, who likes this ship, so it's not obviously <laughs> because of that, it's kind of annoying when they keep calling each other love. Oh, I love that. Okay. Well, I can, I can see both. I can see both sides of that that argument. I kind of swing back and forth on it myself. P.S. As far as I like do. writing goes, and and hold on, and, point uh, of order. Does he call her love? Does he, he calls her gin? She calls him. She mo- she, mo- she calls him love. And she yeah, she ca- calls and he him calls her gin. Oh, I could have sworn he called her love a couple times. I think he does in chapter fifteen. I'm looking at chapter fifteen right now, and I see one where I think he calls her love. But I mean. That's just part of human nature. I don't. I don't particularly use that endearment, but I do use "hun" and "babe" and "dear" and like those kinds of things. Oh well, yeah. I mean, I don't mind that. I mean, I don't know why a love got me, but I. I, I mean, I don't know. L y l u v love just got me. Probably if she had spelled out love l o v e, it might have been. You think that would well, have been easier? I heard easier? it, so it didn't, it didn't make any difference to me because I heard it. Um, but yeah, I, like, was... I don't have. I obviously. I mean, I don't have anything against terms of endearment in general. I mean, I use them. I write them. It was just for some reason the it struck me. It well, it's to me very that British. Was wiser beyond yes. her years, too, doesn't it? <laughs> for every sixteen-year-old, yeah. I thought, I, which Ginny is very wise beyond her years, and well, it's actually interesting too because, like, I call Danielle Hun all the time. That's my term of endearment. You know, she calls me jackass. You know, as usual. <laughs> it's it's just be- like at my house. <laughs> exactly. And it's funny because, like, sometimes, like we, like, but it's usually when you're with someone all the time, you usually don't call them anything unless you're shouting from the other room that the house is on fire like you actually don't you know have to identify them in, in the room you just talk yeah. to them because they're there so maybe it's that's funny what yes it's saying like it like you wouldn't normally say it so often in just like conversation with that other person yeah that's- maybe that's it. i mean i use hun all the time i mean so i have to really- say it did like that's one of the things that kind of just not, you know, that annoyed me or anything it wasn't even to that level but like the the amount of times that 
Ginny calls him love in conversation just between the two of them almost seems a little over the top sometimes. But that's sometimes. Well, well, there's more than one in the room. I can understand it. Like if yeah, there's yeah, like but, a group of you talking and you are addressing your conversation to your significant other, then I can see using it that often. But if it's just yeah. the two of you, then it's kind of taken for granted. Like I don't end like if I'm just having a conversation with Ryan, I don't end every conversation, comma Ryan. You know, we just talk back and forth. So I don't. know. Well, the the running joke for me is that every time Danielle calls me Ryan, I'm like, what do I do? She's like, nothing. I'm like, you use my name. She's like, it's your name. I, I call <laughs> because we because how often do you call someone by their name? It, it, it doesn't work. I'm gonna disagree here. I loved love. I thought it really was a great. I thought it made Jenny look wiser beyond her years. I thought it was. It really just conveyed the fact that their relationship. Well, I think that may have been it. Years. I think it struck me as being something that a 16 year old wouldn't do. Except the difference though is I think on some subconscious level she knows that Harry has been put down his entire life and she's gonna call him love in every single sentence. Yeah. Because every single time she does it, it has an impact on him. I think it was in the beginning, it was something that she tried to do as much as possible. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I do want to talk about just a little bit um, the crumbling of Ron and Hermione's relationship mm-hmm. and that impact on Harry, because I think that that sort of is one of the better character moments um, in in this in this series, not necessarily, you know, Ron and Hermione are beautifully done and so in character and um, and, and funny and angsty and you really want to just, you know, go through your computer screen and punch them both out, which is what you want when you're writing a good Ron and Hermione. But I think what's really interesting and what's really good and kind of unique about um, this story where Ron and Hermione are separated is Harry's reaction and how Mm -hmm. Harry kind of feels like his family's splitting apart. Like maybe his, you know, like his parents are getting a divorce or something. Like I know he's like, of- how am I going to visit them? Do I have to? Are we going to double? T-? It's like George Costanza trying to visit his parents. He's like, if I if I double date with Hermione, will Ron get mad? Ron's trying to use Quidditch to pull me over to his. <laughs> I thought it was it, it was it really was like the divorced parents. And I think it was good how displaced he felt. You know, I I really kind of thought that was kind of. One of the, the better character like, moments. It's like Ron, Ron and Hermione's relationship is like ground for Harry. Because, I mean, like, they're really all he had for a while. And he always, he says, he kind of thinks in Half-Blood Prince that, like, oh, he thought it was inevitable that they would get together. So I think it was just, like, something that he was just so used to. Something that was inevitable. And, and it, it is like divorced parents. Well, no, it's great, yeah. too. The one thing I was thinking when I read POE is that I think I commented on the earlier podcast. Melinda got them together really quick and it happened off screen. And mm-hmm. it's kind of like when we were talking in the seventh Horcrux, she moved the chess pieces around a little bit at the beginning of the seventh Horcrux. So it opened with Harry going, Ginny, Ginny, how I miss the smell of your hair. Cause she wanted them back together. So in the beginning of POE, she's like, okay, we're going to move Ron and Hermione together now. And on some level, I felt kind of cheated because even though it was obvious it was going there. I think that you need to have something plot-wise for it. So what I love is the fact that they got together, but they broke up, and they got back together, but they're better people for it, and we get to see why they need each other, and we get to see why their relationship comes together, and I thought that was a really... I take back, because I had actually forgotten about the breakup, because I don't read the triannually, but I really... I I think it... The whole I'm gonna let other people talk because I'm gonna jump in later, but I just really think the entire relationship is conveyed incredibly well. 
What, did, well, what, I, you think, what did you guys think of the Ron Hermione relationship? Was it was it inter- as interesting for you as the Harry Jenny relationship, or was it something that you scam you skimmed through so you could get to the meat of the story? I'll admit to skimming it. I'll admit that I usually skim Ron Hermione because it is inevitable. It has to happen. I, I don't really care. Um, I all, but I did. I thought like Ryan did that when they were sh- shown to have gotten together off screen. I thought that was a bit weird because even though it is inevitable, you still I think you have to to show it turning that way because people don't just like start dating overnight even if they're clearly in love with each other yeah well i mean I, is, is, I mean it's just not as interesting for me as a writer to write because it's so obviously going there from book one you have something on your nose <laughs> you know like you can just tell that that's where that relationship is going or at least for, for me who oftentimes can tell how movies are going to end 30 minutes into them because i've been writing for so long i think i don't know it, it it's not as interesting character wise unless you do something with them that is different and i think when she made ron go through this horrifying terrible experience and then sort of crumbled his relationship with Hermione, that kind of made me sit up and pay attention because I was going, oh, Melinda is going to take this in a new, different, exciting direction than I read. You know, because normally when you read Harry Jenny Fix, like Ron and Hermione are, they're just a fact of life. And well, they're the normal um, so ones, I, usually is what yeah, happens. The, like Harry and Jenny yeah. are like beating the crap out of each other, and they're the normal, like, yeah. Thing I just- well, I was going to say, <laughs> what I tried to say before was, when I was rereading this, it in I think it was in the Ron Hermione part when they, they do end up getting back together. How much, again, even this was written before even Half-Blood Prince, I think, and how much she still got right. <laughs> like, yeah. the, the little things like how they got back together. Ron says, well, I read it in Hogwarts A History. Yeah. You know, and it, it was okay. really... Like, true to canon, like, you know, in canon, of course, it was, he made a reference to the house elves, and what, but it's, it's similar and enough of the same that it made me go, oh my god, even before Half-Blood Prince, she, and, and like, that one of the twins was injured, and, you know, like, it was Fred, I think, who got injured instead of George's ear, but it, at the, you know, it, like, there were so many things as I was reading it again that I'm like, oh my god, this could be, like, you know, canon. And but the way Ron and Hermione end up getting back together was so well, canon. So well, it was so that well it was paced. like, oh my god, yeah, it it was just very natural. And I was like, great, okay, yep, I can buy that. That you know, Ron says something. Well, I read it, and and she's like, oh, you read Hogwarts history? Like that's the like in Hermione's <laughs> so that's the most romantic was, thing in the world. It was like the collapse of the stock market. It's like, it, the scene is so well spaced. Like, Ginny is at the dining room table with all of her work, and, like, one of them runs in and knocks the whole thing over, so she fixes everything. And the other one runs in and knocks everything over and fixes everything. And then they're going back and forth at it. And then all of a sudden, it's like, I read it in Hogwarts of History. <laughs> oh, Ron, I was so wrong. Oh, I love you so much. And they're flying at each other. And Harry's like, what the hell just happened here? They've been yep. apart for, like, six months. Like, did you see that? Did you see that? Did you see It was, like, so fast. I, I thought it was incredibly well-paced. Yeah, I mean, the entire... You know what? In the beginning, because I couldn't remember how the hell... I remembered Hogwarts. You know what it's like? I remember this great author wrote the scene about how, you know, 
Ron read Hogwarts of History and, oh, I miss you. But I had no idea it was Melinda because I've read 50 fix and stuff. But, so I read that. I'm like, oh, this is this one. I love that scene. But, um, <laughs> when, when the, when the breakup began, I'm like, okay, I forget how this goes because that can be such a bad moment because, you know, the author needs a plot device. So let's break them up for a couple chapters. Melinda keeps them apart for like half the book. Like, yeah. you know, and, and that's a good thing because as a vehicle for character growth, it's necessary. And, just like what uh, what you were just saying, too, about how they have to go somewhere else. She had her thing with Victor, and he had his thing with Lavender and the and the Wan Wan thing. And then, and then they got together. And you have her, him with Hannah, and you have her with Terry Boot, who's apparently the, like the most boring person on the planet. And it took that for them to realize that they were meant to be together. And you know what it does? It's a catalyst for a lot of great moments with Harry and Hermione. Because I, I love the scene when Harry and Hermione are in the conference room and they sneak off to go get the biscuits from the kitchen and they come back and they're just talking. That's a great brother-sister moment between the two of them. Because he's like, oh yeah, he is a little boring. Oh my god, he really is. He's so superior. You don't think I'm like that, do you? And Harry's like, I wish Ginny were here. Because I don't want, I want to tell her the truth, but I don't want to make her cry. <laughs> it's like, it's such a... And it's such a great character moment because the, the and and everyone here who has a wife or a husband or a sibling or a cat knows what I'm about to say is true. There are points when you hate the ground your loved ones walk on because they so aggravate you. And there's moments in these chapters where Ron is an absolute ass and Hermione is an absolute ass and everyone's being an absolute ass. Like I I just am enjoying saying the word ass at the moment, so I'll say it again. But. Everyone is really frustrating, but then one thing can happen, and then all of a sudden, you know this person will walk through fire for you. And I think that she gets the strength of the trio very well in those moments. Like, there's the moment where uh, where Ginny reads the article, and she storms out of the common room. And then Ron realizes that Harry gave his parents money. So then Ron storms out of the common room. And then there was a chance that Harry could work on a professional Quidditch team. And all of a sudden he's like, money, money, I would have done the same thing. But now let's talk Quidditch. And he just moves on. And the entire fight is instantly forgotten. That's how friends work. And I think that was a really great thing for her. I think she made the characters seem so much more realistic by adding that stuff in there. Absolutely. Yeah. And and it's really a testament to her storytelling because she'll like, the scene that Tina mentioned with the twins going to the wet t-shirt contest. She puts in the line that the twins were the wet t-shirt contest. From that line, you know that they come out and find out there was a massive battle while they were joking around and their brother died. And they're probably going to think, we were two well-trained order members, we could have helped. Then they're going to think, Charlie's dead because of us. Then they're going to think, then they're going to think, then they're going to think. Because we know that Melinda thinks about these things, her just putting in that one line tells all of that stuff. Yes. Mm -hmm. And she can then move on to something else, and then she can come back to Harry said, you know, what would would Charlie have done differently if you were there? And he was glad that it helped. And it's, it's... she doesn't need to give us 27 paragraphs of exposition about, you know, Fred and George came out of the wet t-shirt building and they looked and they saw smoke in the distance and they felt awful and they... Well, it's back to that, just saying something very simply, but it conveys everything. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, in that way, the way she writes in a way reminds me of after the end. You know, it's just something very simply said and, and that's all it took to, like you said, that's all it took. All she had to say was, 
they had been at a wet t-shirt contest and you know exactly what they were feeling, what, you know, how their reactions were going to be. You just knew just by that very simple statement rather than, like you said, telling the whole tale of, you know, where they were and when they came out, it was this, that, and the other thing. Or the other one, Percy Weasley. Percy is supposed to walk them back to the operation checkpoint and they get attacked by Death Eaters before they get there because he stormed off. You know at that instant, if they live, and Melinda's not going to kill Harry, so I'm sure he'll live, that Percy Weasley's life as he knows it is now over because they will never let, because the, the Weasleys will never let him live this down. And I actually was listening to that on my iPod this morning. I sent Melinda an email saying, oh, you're good and he must die. Because because <laughs> she didn't have to get into Harry, you know, is behind the rock. And he's like, damn you, Percy, you were supposed to... You don't need that because you know that he will get his in the end. And yeah. it, 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 she, you know what it is? It's like the characters you love to hate. Percy, you love to hate. And he is just such an obnoxious moron and doesn't get anything. And I just... That got me very, very angry. And I love the fact that Ron tried to hide behind folding chairs. I thought that as the, as the tactical <laughs> guy, like the strategy guy who's, who's always 12 chess paces ahead, he's like, I'm gonna hide behind the rubber. I'm like, what? So, that was... Well, the spells bounce off of those, you know. They bounce off bounce of, of folding the rubber. chairs. The rubber. Yeah. Okay, Sue lives in Oregon. Sorry, trying to be funny. I'm confused. I'm, I'm confused. No, she was b- being funny. I was being funny back, but I was so good at it that Sue didn't get it. So it's okay. <laughs> Where okay. did we lose you, P.S. or Rose, whatever your real name is? I'm sorry. I was on Facebook. You're telling me that Plaid Slytherin isn't your real name? <sighs> oh. I've been looking in the phone book for you for ages, and I haven't been able to find Can I just point out, I have a question. Were you confused about what I said, or were you confused about Facebook? I was confused about what Sue said. Did she say something about spells bouncing off of rubber? Yes, but we're not Yes, because Ron was hiding behind chairs. Yes, he was hiding behind chairs. See, I knew I heard something about folding chairs. That was was a great scene, too. I was so bewitched by Ryan. Well, you're never going to get P.S. to say that again, so let's put that in the intro. But the thing I loved about that scene is you literally have Narcissa and the Death either surround Harry, and he, he like, turns over. He's going to have, like, a staff meeting with his friends and be like, okay, they want us to surrender. I have another idea. Why don't you hide behind the rubber? And he turns around and, like, shoots every single one of them and like he he knocks like no he doesn't kill anyone yet but he he literally like takes everyone out one of them shoots Ginny so he like I think he like broke his head over the building he like so he beat the crap out of that guy before he left he like cut a hole in Narcissa Malfoy's face like he was a very angry young man he was a very troubled youth I thought that was just a great moment because usually you have you have Harry from Half-Blood Prince in the boat with Dumbledore who's saying your magical energy Harry is so low it doesn't even show up in the scanner and you're like oh (laughs) that's a rather rude statement and and this one Harry's like okay I'm gonna have to take out the fourth infantry please hold and he shoots (laughs) I just thought that was I'm like you know what you go Melinda because as long as he's not opening up the heavens and controlling the clouds, I'm with you. 
Well, I'd agree with you there. I mean, at a certain point, I think one of the, the great things about um, the Harry Potter story is that he's not a superhero. He's just a kid that has to consistently make tough choices and with a little bit of luck and a little bit of skill. And, like, he's not the best kid in his class. He's not powerful like Dumbledore. We don't, I mean, I, we aren't giving any indication that he's powerful like Dumbledore, but he is, I mean, he's gifted, but he's not, like, Superman. He doesn't see through walls or fly of his own power. Well, he can talk to people in his head. Or, I mean, we should give him- or you know, well, sort of. Um, he's but, not I mean, Moses. He's not Moses, exactly. Harry is he's really just, not Moses. I mean, the beauty of Harry is that he is just an ordinary kid who is given an extraordinary job by the universe, and he just keeps making incredibly tough decisions until he has to uh, uh, until he's done. You know, I mean, there's nothing special about Harry, really, except that he happened to be born on this one day to this set of parents or whatever. So I just think that that's what's good about Harry. And I think if you um, give him superpowers or train him in martial arts or give him a gun or, you know, anything like that, then you kind of take away from the magic of the series. And I'm getting off my soapbox. I don't know. I think I've read that fic. Yeah. Where he shoots Voldemort with a gun. gun. Harry's got a gun. Oh, God. We're pretending we did not hear that. We. I am not that bad of a singer. <laughs> no, you're not bad. It was <laughs> Ryan just is being silly. Ryan has been up since five. So that's <laughs> Tina has two. Tina has two. If Tina and I just fall asleep in the middle of the podcast, uh, she's in charge. Even just to talk about the level of detail she puts in, the really cool thing about seventh year fix are that the trio is old enough to essentially reach the point where they're not just students anymore. They're quasi-order members. They're the people actually now accomplishing what they've been, you know, setting out to do for seven years, and they're about to save the world. So the traditional relationships between the adults and the kids break down, and you really saw that in Deathly Hallows, too. You have Harry screaming at Remus that he's being, you know, an unfit parent, and he's, you know, he, he, he's, he's being very juvenile, and you have, you know, Harry... You know, basically leading the charge at Hogwarts with the teachers behind him. And you really see that in this fic, too. Little things, like even the moment where Professor McGonagall runs down the hill after Jenny, Ron, and Harry return from the ministry, and she puts, like, one arm around Ron, and she supports his weight and helps him back up to the castle. I thought that was just a great little thing there, because I don't know why that hit me, but for whatever reason, it was like they were on equal footing for a second. And I always get that with McGonagall. I think the moment where McGonagall becomes, you know, more like, you know, the woman at the next cube over rather than your head of house. That's usually a sign that you've made it, baby. And there's other ones, um, you know, in, in H. Whimsy's fic that Lady She has bound in, you know, in little glass, you know, enclosure over her mantle. Uh, there was a moment where she says that she has her mind, she has uh, McGonagall say to the trio as they're going off to do something dangerous, I want you all back, all of you. Because they're mm-hmm. her family. I just, just little moments like that. I just think that that's just a really great Well, thing I think the Harry. moments with um, McGonagall in, in Deathly Hallows, where basically she is supporting Harry not as a head of house or a superior, but as a comrade in arms. Those are pr- some of my favorite moments in Deathly Hallows that parallel some of my favorite moments in Curse of the Damned. So, Yeah, and that's, pretty, that's really where we get to in these chapters tonight, because you have a Harry who for years has been treated almost like luggage. 
you know, in this war, and it's been Dumbledore and McGonagall and the Order and Sirius and Mr. and Mrs. Weasley and the grown-ups plotting what to do next, and Harry, Ginny, and Hermione, and Ron are kind of scooted out of the room and go play and go study for your exams and play Quidditch and, you know, and mess around and all that stuff. And you really see it come to a head here, and you see Harry... You know, demand more respect, and it's it's the breakdown he has in Cornelius Fudge's office. You know, he's not going to be treated like that anymore. It's not the easiest scene to write in the world. It's not probably the hardest, but I've read fix where Harry is like the head of the Order of the Phoenix when Dumbledore dies, and Snape is like, "What are your orders, sir?" And I'm like, "Huh?" And he's like sitting behind yeah. Dumbledore's desk, and I'm pretty sure he was filling out like a TPS report in one scene. I'm like, "You're like 16, what?" <laughs> like it just it it didn't you know flow well at all. Doesn't feel and, right. It doesn't feel right, yeah. and is it feels right when when Dumbledore says I want to make Snape the head of the DA, and Harry says absolutely not, and Dumbledore says, well, what if I tell you that Snape is the only one who can do it? He's like, I'll take it underground, and you'll have no control over it. We're not going that way, and you see, you know, Harry looks into Dumbledore's eyes, and Dumbledore is both disappointed and respects him. And yeah. I think that's, I think Belinda does a great job, especially on the character of Dumbledore, because she acknowledges the fact that he, you know, as Jem would say, at times is a manipulative bastard, and at other times is a really good guy who's trying really hard, but he is, you know, very, very old and very, very wise and sometimes makes bad calls and feels terrible about them later. And I think there's even moments in there where he even says something along the line. Harry looks at him and even he thinks, he doesn't say it just like this, but it reminded me of a year like none other, where he's like, is this guy a Slytherin? Like, everything he does seems to have some type of you know, preamble to it. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, everything is measured. Dumbledore's a very interesting character because I think you do really get the sense that he's sort of an inherently lonely man because he doesn't have any equals in the world. There isn't anybody... I mean, we don't ever encounter anybody that is on par with what um, Albus Dumbledore can do except, you know, Voldemort. And even Voldemort is scared of Dumbledore. You know? And, uh... I don't know. I I think he's interesting because I, I think he's lived his whole life like that. Not having anybody that is on his level and so therefore he's always been a leader and you know he has to carry the consequences of these massive decisions on his shoulders you know and um so i think that makes him an interesting character and i i think uh, i think uh as machiavellian as he seems from time to time he is doing the best that he can with the information that he has. Um, and he makes some decisions that Harry doesn't agree with, but I'm sure when, you know, Harry is 150 years old and in charge of the wizarding world, um, as I'm sure that he will be. I don't think he'll be Minister of Magic, but I can definitely see him being, you know, Headmaster of Hogwarts or something. Um, I think he's actually on track to be Minister of Magic, not to spoil too far ahead. but Yeah. Um, going back to um, something Ryan just said, where, uh, Ryan, I think you said something about how um, when Dumbledore suggests that Snape be the teacher sponsor of the DA and Harry is firm with him. I really like the pacing that throughout the two fix that, like, at that point in this fic, that seemed perfectly appropriate for Harry to, to like stand up for himself and mm-hmm. it's I think it again it really follows canon because not until book seven did Harry really 
like take control of what he could do. And I think in this fic, it, it, it builds up to that as well, very well, to the point where Harry has the cojones or whatever to say to Dumbledore, no, that's not, this is my organization and I don't want him. I don't care what your reasons are. I, I know you think your reasons are good. I don't trust him. You may trust him, but I don't. And he's not going to be part of the DA. And, and then later on in the fic, there are more instances of that. So I think it's a good buildup to showing Harry getting to that point where he's standing up for himself and taking control. DA is something that Harry created and you take ownership of that. And it's like the one thing he has that's his and he's not going to let Snape destroy it. So there's right. a level of that there too. If it were anything else, maybe he wouldn't, you know, bet the house on it. But this is the DA, and that ain't happening at the DA. Exactly. And I think it's very realistic, like development-wise too. I mean, to a certain extent. I mean, he does kind of rebel in Order of the Phoenix, but he doesn't take control of his destiny. And I don't think that right. you, you don't take control of your destiny at 15 or 16. I mean, you. You you take control of your destiny when you're a either most you know most comfortable with that situation or b are forced to by you know circumstances or whatever. And I think that I think that's very realistic that Harry waits until he's 17 and has you know done all this um, work on with the DA or whatever to stand up to Dumbledore because then they're more like equals. Right. They're not quite there yet, but he yeah. Harry's starting to establish that he's becoming more of an equal because of his destiny and the fact that he is taking control of his own life. Right. Well, the fact, the, the one moment I want to touch on too is the, is the, is the big scene with Harry and Dumbledore when it's essentially the, I'm dying and I need to tell you everything now scene before we <laughs> don't have time to anymore. Exactly. I mean, one of the things that was, uh, there goes, there goes Tina. There was, um, well, actually in my own life, I never got to have a moment like that because my father was very sick and by the time we knew he was going to die, he wasn't able to speak. So we never got to have that. But what was interesting for me was that, uh, when I wrote my father's eulogy, you know, in the eulogy, I said, you know, I never got to have this final talk. So I always imagined what it would be like. And I imagined what I would ask. And I imagined on his best day what he would say. And I, and I felt pretty good with that. So my dad's sister was actually dying at the time he died. So a few weeks later, you know, she was on her deathbed and she was still able to speak and she was, you know, sitting up in bed talking to us all. And I actually read her the eulogy and I asked her all of the questions I wished I was able to ask my dad. And she answered them all. And it was really funny because my aunt was a very difficult woman her entire life. And then she got cancer and then she realized, you know, what difficulty really was. It wasn't what she thought. Like she was a very mild version of Petunia Dursley for many years. And she, and she, went out very much not like that. And like, I asked her a question, like, what do you wish you, what do you know now that you wish you knew then? And she's like, you know, life sucks. Smell the roses, have as much fun as you can, because I'm not going to lie to you for many years. I was a complete bitch. And that's like <laughs> the last thing she ever said. And I think that is the coolest thing in the world. I'm like, thank you. I always thought so. <laughs> and we had, the, you know, even like the other day, we ran into someone who used to knew her. Oh, yeah, she was a difficult woman. I'm like, yeah, she was. But I, I think that was great because by the end of her life, she wished she wasn't like that. And she, and she stopped being like that. And she got to have that moment. So I thought that was great. So it's when Harry and Dumbledore are talking. And Dumb there's so much pretense between these two characters. You have Harry through, this through the entire of POE saying, I'm fine. I'm fine. Well, Harry, you were just beat into a pulp. I'm fine. I'm fine. 
and he can't open up. And then you have Dumbledore all through this fix saying, oh, I'm just cold because, you know, the, the term started and, 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 you know, the damn air conditioning in here. And, you know, he's trying to explain why his beard has fallen off and he can no longer walk. And you know that he's dying. Like, the reader always knows. Did anyone ever know this in fix? Every time Harry sees Dumbledore, he has never seen him look so old. Yeah, I know. It'll be like he apparently must seem like 30 years old until he's like <laughs> lying in the hospital bed with the monitor going beep, beep, beep. Well, there is a moment. He's old. There is a moment in, um, I think it's in Half-Blood Prince when, um, when Harry sees Dumbledore for the first time after his hand has been shriveled, that he makes some comment like that, that he's never seen Dumbledore look so fragile or so weak, which I think is, I mean, because people don't look older when they get sick unless they're like 40 and suddenly they look like they're 45 or 50. I mean, like, I worked in a nursing home and there's not much difference between somebody who's 85 and somebody who's 90. I don't know. I mean, young, like, <laughs> youngish people and youngish people get sick. Like, if you're 40 and you, you get sick, you can look old. I'm just saying Dumbledore well, is not too is in the way you carry yourself. It seemed to me that, yeah, he's 159 years old or whatever. But, like, he always, in the previous books, he's always described as agile and, you know, the twinkling eye and the whole bit. So if somebody all of a sudden appears old, it's because now they're acting old. Waiting for the so my grandmother the turned 97 years old. God bless her. And she's been very healthy and whatnot, but in the last couple months, all of a sudden, she's old. You know, yeah. and I relate it that way, that, you know, Harry all of a sudden is real, you know, like Dumbledore now is acting old. Not that he isn't old, but now it's becoming apparent. And that's why it's significant. Who would love to read the fic where Harry returns to Hogwarts and and, and, and you know, the food is in abundance and that Ron is having his seventh helping of steak and kidney pie and Hermione is tisk tisk tisking and Ginny is as beautiful as ever. And he looked up at Dumbledore and he thought that the, the old wizard looked positively ancient. He couldn't put his finger on exactly what it was. Dumbledore walked his walker scraping up against the ground floor of the Great Hall, the little neon orange tennis balls getting stuck in the grooves of the stone. McGonagall followed behind the loyal lieutenant carrying his oxygen tank. Like, you, like I'm waiting to read the story like that because it's like, because I love well, the stories where close like, to home. Where he get I, I know, but it's the stories where he is like, he's positively ancient, but then three chapters later, He's like, Harry had never seen him looking so old. I'm like, oh my god, he looked awful in chapter 8. He must look terrible in chapter 12. <laughs> because he's like, he gets progressively older. It's like he's embalmed by chapter I think he gets old in, like, Goblin of Fire or something. There's some, after Voldemort comes back, there's, like, something where it's like he hasn't looked that old. No, I remember yeah. it. Sorry. Sorry. Um, there's a line... Where in Goblet of Fire it says the twinkle was gone from his eyes, and then throughout the rest of the series he doesn't twinkle again. Yeah. He never twinkled in the later fix? Uh, nope. N- not in, I mean, in the books, no. After in, after the line in Goblet of Fire, like the night of the Triwiz tournament, where it says um, the twinkle was gone from his eyes, he doesn't That's twinkle again. That's very sad. I never noticed that. 
Well, then Melinda got that wrong because he's twinkling all through POE in half of Curse of the Dead. He later dies and stops twinkling. Okay, so she got one thing wrong. She in got the- one <laughs> thing wrong, I, Melinda. I, I would actually be interested in the fact where he's twinkling after he dies because that sounds like it could have an exciting <laughs> zombie. <laughs> if he's twinkling after well, he dies, he's in Twilight, not... um. Voldemort sweeps across the grounds of Hogwarts, ripping open the white tomb. Dumbledore, his blue eyes twinkling Twinkles in the moonlight. Oh my god, oh my god, have I told you about the zombie fic? Have I, I swear. The, um, the fic where everybody, where, where Cedric comes back as Edward. Okay. No, I, I I swear I have to tell you about this fic, because it's like the best thing ever. Um, Snape is like found out by Voldemort to be a spy. So he is cursed and turned into a zombie, and they drop him in the middle of Hogwarts, and he bites Dumbledore, and Dumbledore turns into a zombie, and everybody turns into a zombie except like Harry, Ginny, Ron, Hermione, like Dean, Luna, and like Pansy. And like, so it's them trying to like fight away the zombies, and like Harry and Ginny, like. Harry and Ginny lock themselves in the library and have sex. <laughs> <laughs> because that's and then what they... I do when I'm being chased by zombies. Is that the cure? Like, what no, is that? No, uh, no, 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 no. Here's, honestly, what happens is um, they're trying to find a cure, so they go in the library and they lock themselves in, and they n- realize that the zombies are pounding on the door of the library, so they can't like leave through there. So um, they decide they make a port key, like from mm-hmm. a book they found. And apparently it takes a while for a port key to simmer. So while they're waiting for the port key to simmer, they have sex. Yes! That's what I do. That's what I do. Nothing turns me on like port key making. Like, I'm sitting around and I'm like, what am I going to do today? Where did you find this fic? Um, It it was on a list of recommendations of non-fluffy Harry Ginny. They had sex on the table in the library and that's non-fluffy? It wasn't fluffy because there were zombies like, see they were in the restricted section and there's like a cage like door across from the restricted section so the zombies were like reaching in for them. So it's cage match sex. Wait a minute, there's a cage on the door, and there's a cage on the door in the Order of the Phoenix uh, video game, and it's like, it's it's this t- it's like, you know, those old elevators that have the little door that you shut before the elevator? Oh, that, they could get through that. Come yeah, on. well, they, they, were like, oh, yeah. they were like, clawing on the door of it, and like, Harry and Ginny were having sex inside the library. It's called Wake the Dead. Ron and Hermione are probably standing right next to them going, well, this is awkward. We no, wish we had somewhere. Ron's correcting his technique. <laughs> Hermione's going, don't And then it, like, I hope nobody minds if I spoil the ending. It winds up, everyone dies. So what they, like, somehow they wind up driving the night bus. So it's, like, Ron and Ginny and Harry has been bitten and he's slowly turning into a zombie. So they, like, crash the night bus into Voldemort's headquarters, and they, like, unleash zombie Harry into Voldemort's lair, and he he infects all the Death Eaters, and then it ends with Ron and Ginny being like, the zombies are everywhere, what are we going to do? And then Ron is like, I don't know, said Ron. You read that whole thing? That's literally the end of it. Like, the last line is of dialogue is, I don't know, said Ron. All right, you know what? I think I know why Melinda drinks so much when she listens to our podcast, because she's probably like, and what did you think of what I wrote? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just... Well, you spend a lot of time 
doing I, asking I'm, yourself I'm, that I'm question when you're put your fixer podcasted on this podcast. Uh, <laughs> you, you spent an enormous <laughs> amount of time trying to figure out. Well, there was a vampire in these chapters. Did anyone catch that? It's like, hmm, keep away from the kids. Well, the one thing I just want to say about these chapters, too, is I was saying before, Melinda t- kind of has like a cycle in her stories. Something really, really bad happened, and then we get over it, and then we have some fun time, and everyone snobs yeah. a lot. And then there's, like, a clue about what's going to happen next, and you're like, don't go in there, don't go in there, don't go in there! And everyone's like, why don't we go in there? I'm like, you're morons, they go in there, and they get attacked. And the cycle repeats. There's sometimes it works very well. The only time I don't think it really worked for me was when they went to the arcade, because that just screams setup. I know... Abe or Abe, as my text reader pronounces his name, was looking into it, and it was supposed to be a surprise, and there was a spy issue involved. I know there were extenuating circumstances, but you know, the trip to Hogsmeade earlier, you have someone say, oh, what, 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 what a Dementor's going to attack Hogsmeade? Guess what? Dementor's attacked Hogsmeade. Alright. So then they go on vacation, and the Death Eaters attack the vacation spot. Very bad. So then they return to Hogwarts, and they're like, why don't we send the kids to an arcade? Well, you know what? I think if you send them there, everybody is going to die. So they send them to the arcade, and they are fighting for their lives, and 63 muggles are killed. So now they return, and they're like, let's have a gala. Let's go to the gala. And Dumbledore says, Harry, I will be your date, and I have nothing to wear. So Dumbledore goes shopping, and he pulled arms, and they skip. And Melinda was almost right again, and Dumbledore was almost, you know, quite effeminate. But as it turns out, he is having a raging affair with Minerva McGonagall. Ew. That whole thing was yeah. up front. I, that was the scene. The Minerva McGonagall sex scene, which is implied, not stated, but implied. And you only need to imply it with me. That's all you need to do. And that was implied. That was the moment when I was camping, like, three, four years ago where I yelped at the campground, reading my fan fiction. I was new, and that was the moment where I looked up and said, there's a whole world out there I know nothing about. It was when I read the the, the Dumbledore McGonagall ship moment. I had the same reaction to that. I screamed, Sue, like (laughs) a small child. I think I laughed out loud, and I, I made an exclamation. I can't remember what I said, but I was really shocked. Sue swore, I think. She swore. <laughs> but but then they go. They're going um, to the gala, and they get to the gala, and, and, and Kingsley's like, "We heard they're going to attack." And Dumbledore is like, "Keep me informed." I'm like, "You're going to die because it's going to." Be <laughs> and I'm and I'm like, "Stop letting them outdoors <laughs> because they're going to be attacked." Like that, well, every that time was they would the, make a, yeah. every time they would go out in public in this fic, I would just start humming the Jaws, you know, theme song. Like, <laughs> you know, they the the time is limited. You're like, da da, da da, like when he's like giving his speech, da 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 da. da. <laughs> Give me your wand. We'd like to hold it. And Dumbledore is like, "Give it to him, Harry." I'm like, "Very bad." Very, very, very. Don't do it. I think by now, the third time they've left Hogwarts and having been attacked the three times they left, that that this, you know, they would have figured out who the freaking mole was at this point. Well, can I tell you, you know, Melinda is working on some new stuff right now. And I basically bribed the ever living hell out of her to let her show me some of it. So she showed me some of it under duress. 
and I, it, it, it it's awesome. It, it, it's very well written, and we are so late releasing these episodes, you've probably read the full thing by now. And, 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 and I think Tina's read some of it. Tina can attest this. It's, it's, incre- it's very, very, very good. And it was a part where I said, I think, Melinda, I have a prediction for you. Now, as we know, when I have a prediction, you can go and, you know, get a, a bite to eat, and you can come back, and, and, and you'll be good to go, because my predictions are usually very, very, very off. I predicted, like, who the villain was, and I, predi- I predicted something, you know, somewhat important. And she's like, well, well, you're right. I'm like, I don't know if that's good for you or not. Because <laughs> either I'm very smart, or your plot is very, very simple. And it, it's actually a really good pl- So I'm thinking, hey, I got something going here. But here's the thing. Reading it now, reading curse of the damn now and i'm reading it a little bit faster than i did before i'm you know because before i read it for fun and now i read it for fun but also for the podcast so there's time limits reading it now it's very clear who the mole is or who the spy is reading it the first time i had no freaking clue yeah, yeah. that always snuck up on me i always forget who it is this is the term yeah see that- i'm rereading it too for the first time like maybe in a couple years and i'm only through Chapter 25. Yeah. And I have an idea who it is, but I don't remember who it is. Uh, yeah, I don't remember who it is either. And I, I read the stick, like, religiously. This is terrible. But I do this thing where, like, I read volumes of fan fiction that are really quite ridiculous. And not just in Harry Potter. In, like, Harry Potter, Roni Kenshin, Doctor Who... Detective Conan, like, I have, like, a thousand fandoms that I read fanfic in. So they all get, like, jumbled up in my brain. And I can never remember, like, who does what exactly, so I have to take notes when we read for the podcast right. so I can remember which fic it is. And yeah, so that, happens, I, that I, happens to me all the time, Chi. My problem is, in, like, in each fandom, there's, like, a set, like, certain plots that I read. Like, uh-huh. in Harry Potter, like, I read, like, you know, like, sixth and seventh year, and if it's old, fifth year fics, they mm-hmm. usually parry Jenny and be, like, the same fic. You know? Yeah. Or like AUs of canon. So it's just the same. So I, if I can never, ever tell the difference between them, like I, I get so embarrassed sometimes. I think there is one like episode, it must be the last one that we did where it's like I keep, like, I kept asking in the chat, is this the fic where this happens? Is this the fic where this happens? Yeah, well, like even like what happens um, with this one is that I remember reading it the first time and I didn't like the reveal. I didn't like the villain. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking that I love POE, Curse of the, and Curse of the Damned. I just don't like the villain. I love the ending for the ending. I just didn't like the villain. Now I like the villain because now I'm seeing a lot of foreshadowing for the villain. So, yeah, I oh. mean, it's one of those things like um, that. this is one of those things. I think if you read it a few times, you appreciate it more because you yeah. see the way that she's kind of – Melinda probably makes plans and figures things right. out and has flow charts and uh, I'm so jealous of you people. She is a <laughs> flow charts are fun. She is what we call a seat of the pantser and it always comes back to kick her in the pants because she can never remember which clues she's laid down for which things. Oh, I have to write them down because my worst fear is somebody pointing something out and being like, but this is a clue to this. Why didn't this happen? Because like it actually has happened. There's a red herring that I actually didn't mean to put in. Red herring would have been awesome in Curse of the Damned if like they all went to like, you know, a flea market and nothing happened. (laughs) (laughs) 
know what I mean? And they went and got ice cream and not a single loves her Harry. She really tortures him so. Are you just getting that now? Oh my god! It's she always. I mean, it's it's funny because she even jokes about it herself. But you know, she you know Harry's her guy and she loves it. But man, she gives him angst like no one can. She also gives him erections like no one can. I can't help but notice that during All from POE, he has a book in his hands. And I just think it's really creative because is he going to curse at the dam? You I, are, like, obsessed with Harry's penis. I thought you like were going to say an erection way. like none other. <laughs> now, there's a smut fic. <laughs> I challenge the PFW forum. <laughs> this restricted section, people, not the young ones. <laughs> I want that well, story. It just, and if it just well, cracks me up because we keep talking I, about how, you know, Melinda writes like JKR and she writes, you know, the JKR. Like, this could be, you know, this could be year seven, you know. Seventh Orgrex was stolen and, you know, masqueraded as a copy of Deathly Hallows. So it's like, you get into that mindset of, okay, this could be canon. And then her, then Jenny's like, I bought red underwear. And Harry's like, oh boy. And you're like, Joe will never than that. The parents of the gondolist. So it's, I, I do really enjoy the fact that she writes them like real teenagers. And she writes them like real 16-year-olds. I thought that yeah. was very... That's a really yeah. good thing. I joked about it in the last fic because Harry's written very young in the last fic. So every time Ginny walks in the room, Harry's like, why am I feeling this way? And he goes to Dumbledore and he's like, Professor, why am I feeling this way? And Dumbledore's like, oh, crap. Um, can we talk about the prophecy again? Because I think that went very well. Can we talk about <laughs> So I'm just very amused that Arthur Weasley has to have the talk with Harry about basically how to have sex with his kid. I just thought that was incredibly – that was awkward. This, this has been covered – on Peoncast just today, in fact, I edited really? a part of Peoncast that deals with this, and I actually removed it for the restricted section episode part. Ooh! Ooh. Look at that! Tears I don't know, away. but also I have to say, is this I mother I did, I did of a sixteen-year-old, I don't want to hear about a sixteen-year-old telling her boyfriend she bought red underpants. Well, your good friend Melinda Leo wrote it, so don't get mad at me, she, Tina, if that you is You know what? This is all going to come back someday to bite her in the ass. Because someday her boy's <laughs> going to be 16 years old. <laughs> and he's going to tell his girlfriend he bought red underpants? I don't think that's going <laughs> to... Well, let's hope not, I guess. <laughs> this oh, entire thing is just very weird to me. Right, we're going to just... <laughs> We're going to try and get some semblance of order back on our little podcast over here. All right. So, but I do just enjoy the fact that, it, and especially in, in this story, not Seventh Horcrux, but in this story, Melinda has made the conscious effort that Harry and Ginny are not going to have sex. I'm sure they do eventually, but they're not going to have sex while we're watching them do it, because that would be awkward. So, they are very passionate people, and Harry is written like an ordinary guy. Like, I love the scene... And I want to know, you know, Melinda must either have a lot of brothers or something, but she writes like that, or she must have hung out with a lot of guys when she was younger. She writes like two guys alone with each other, trying to work something out very well. Like, I love the scene where Harry and Ginny are the lake. The thing I love is her dialogue is just so sharp. Harry goes to find Ginny by the lake, and she's upset because in Snape's Defense Against the Dark Arts class, they mentioned dragons, and she thought of Charlie. So he goes down to comfort her, and they have this little moment. And she, you know, gets up and goes back towards 
they, they just made out by the tree, and then she gets up and goes back towards the castle. The minute she goes up back towards the castle, Harry is staring at her butt as she walks. And then Ron comes and sits down. He's like, stop staring at my sister's butt! Blah, 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 blah. And they just kind of go on from there. It's just like this great moment. I'm like, was Ron waiting in the wings for her to leave? Like, it just, it just flowed together very well. And I just love that rapport the two of them have back and forth with each other. Then he calls Harry a wanker, and then he's like, and don't think about my sister while you do that! I'm like, oh my god. Miranda Leo just brought up <laughs> masturbation in the Harry Potter fan fiction. Even Joe Rowling didn't dare do that. So it's Melinda Leo going where no other fan fiction author has gone before. Oh, she's going where everyone has gone before. Everyone has gone. Before, <laughs> but she does it better because it's like it, it's it's a moment, but like you could go right by that and not pick up on it unless you're really reading it thoroughly. Well, and it, it's it, just but... mentioned. It's not talked about. It's just a comment. It's not like they talk. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I just like the way she slips those things in without really having to comment on it. Well, it's just the fact of life. Teenage boys wank. Move on. <laughs> like, it's not... You don't really need to spend it a lot of time on that. It's not very exciting. Yeah. Anyway, um, Brian is disturbingly silent. No comment over here. I'm <laughs> <laughs> and Ryan isn't. I'm just sitting here like a little bobblehead. I'm moving up and down. I'm like, uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So, back to Ron and Hermione and their trial separation. How's that working out for them? So. Okay. Um, I like the moments where Ron taps into Harry's dreams because, like, he knows superficially what Harry's been through. And he was at Malfoy Manor in the last fic as well, although he didn't go through the same trauma Harry did. and But he kind of knows what happened to Harry, but until... He starts sharing some of Harry's dreams. Does he really understand what Harry goes through every day and every night when he goes to sleep? And I just thought those were great moments when Ron truly, truly knows what Harry's been dealing with. I I just think those are great moments, and I think it brings them a lot closer as friends when Ron comes to that understanding. It almost makes you wish something like that had happened in Deathly Hallows so that maybe he wouldn't have been a complete ass for half of that book. Yeah, but in a way because it didn't happen, that was necessary in Deathly Hallows for Ron to have that crisis of faith. Because that's really what it was at that point. When you look at Ron's character, too, especially in the story here, I love the... One of the things I love about Curse of the Damned is is Ron's character arc, and he is upset because he killed Draco Malfoy. And it would have been so simple for him to have, you know, not saved his father or not saved his brother, or if he had accidentally fired a curse that hit Neville or something, and this awful thing. He kills Draco Malfoy. How many fics have we read where he wants nothing more than to kill Draco Malfoy? Draco Malfoy. And I love the fact that the way Melinda writes it is that, you know, he killed his worst enemy, and he's not okay with that. And that leads him to question everything else. It questions... It's a very human reaction. Right. It's Harry and Ginny in this, too. They think, wish that Malfoy wasn't around. Yeah, it's like Harry is the boy who lived... Because yeah. his own hand, it, right. it, he didn't have the reaction he thought he would have. Right, and it's... Yeah, Jenny does that when she looks, you know, Harry who's the boy who lived in Hermione's the brightest witch of her age, and, you know, Ron's, you know, the one who saves Harry Potter and pulls him back, and he's a member of the trio, and, he, he you know, he's the Quidditch captain and all these different things. And then there's Ginny, and she doesn't know who she is. 
and she's someone very important, but she can't recognize that. Ron does the same thing, too. Ron gets to the point where he begins to doubt himself, he doubts his abilities. He knows Harry could have evaporated out of there, but he wouldn't leave him behind. So Ron is the reason now that he laid awake every night listening to Harry be tortured. That was Ron's fault in his mind. And the one moment where he really cracks when he screams to Harry, why couldn't I have been trained to apparate? That could have been avoided, where he actually blames someone else. When, in reality, most of the time, he blames himself for everything. So when someone, uh, when Hermione and Ginny are insulted, Ron, Harry stands in front of Ron. I believe it was with uh, Blaise Sabini on the train. Harry stands in front of Ron. And he does that. Mm-hmm. You know, so Ron, because he knows Ron will fly off the handle because Ron's in an awful mood, in an awful state. But he, he, you know, Ron interprets that as, you need to protect me. You need to, you need to help me. I can't do this on my own. And I think that's a very natural response. I think he blows up Hermione and Hermione is irritated because of the way he's acting. So she becomes more overbearing than usual and Harry's just stuck in the middle and Harry's told you're going to live because your friends are loving people and he's watching them like you know throw fish tanks at each other so it's it's a very stressful situation for everyone but it's a very believable situation for everyone too and I like that that you can then turn around and say okay that Ron also gets to now go in Harry's mind and see exactly what he went through and contrast that to the fact that on the train Ron actually is so far removed from the situation and he's so far absorbed in his own problems he actually looks at Harry and questions when have you ever seen someone die like when hasn't he seen someone die I mean yeah it's it's one of those moments where the world stops and he's like crap did I just say that like and I love those moments too I mean Melinda's great at writing them but yeah I mean she takes Ron all over the map and I think he's a better character for it I think so too and I think that that reaction is very very believable, especially a teenage boy. You need to believe that teenage boys, they are working towards independence and manhood and, and you know, we have this idea in society or I don't want to blame society for everything because that's cliched or whatever, but our ideal, you know, male is somebody that's independent that doesn't need anybody that can make his own way in the world. And Ron sees that in his brothers but does not somehow see that in himself until he you know, I mean, he takes this journey, and he gets mm. there, but he does definitely have moments where he doubts his own ability, and um, and I think that's good. I think that that's very realistic. One thing I thought was interesting was where they find, there's a letter from Lily. Yeah, there's oh, a I love that! Oh, yeah, and a drawing, right? It's in chapter 16. Yeah, it is. I just found it. One thing is, I always... It feels like with knowing Sirius and Remus, it seems like Harry always has this connection to James. And he knows that he looks like James, and he knows that he knows these people that knew James, that were friends with James, so he always felt this connection to James. And he never really met anyone who knew Lily. Like, before Half-Blood Prince... And Horace, really, there was nobody who ever said anything about Lily. And that always bothered me, actually, because I always thought it was like, he should know more about his mother. So I I, I always really like it when that gets sorted there. What I like about that scene, too, is, and this is one of the things that Melinda is really great at, and it's really what fan fiction is all about, 
It's she gives us those moments in fan fiction that we didn't get but wanted from canon. Like Harry asking the questions. In in canon, he doesn't ask any questions about his parents. He doesn't you don't learn any of this stuff. And the moment, you know, where he gets that box from the Dursley's attic that was has his mother's things in it is one of those things most of us wanted from canon. We wanted to see that connection to his parents, that something, there was some, some heritage there, some connection. And that's one of the, the things that in all her fix, Melinda always brings to the table is she brings in those things that we wanted from canon, but didn't get. Like, why did you leave me at the Dursleys? Why didn't Remus come exactly. to me? Why weren't you checking up on me? You know, down the line, the list of things that you would ask if, if you were in that situation that Melinda's fix shows he becomes more comfortable with these other people, and as a result, he's able to ask those questions. Yeah. Go to. Well, I think in canon, the closest we ever got to that was that scene where he goes to the graveyard, and there's all that. My least favorite scene in Deathly Hallows, by the way. <laughs> um, he goes to the graveyard, and there's all those, like, wall of remembrance, 9-11 memorial type thing. We don't get that in canon. Um... And it's sad that I think Harry and Cannon is just very focused on living, 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 living. I mean, that's all his last three books. That's all he's thinking about is how do I make it through the next day? How do I survive this war or this personal attack of Voldemort has on me? Um, so it doesn't ever, we don't ever get that in canon, and it's really sad that by the time canon ends, there's nobody left for Harry to ask. So I love that in Melinda Leo's universe, he does get that connection. Yeah, and he gets closure with Dumbledore, you know what I mean? And he tries to get closure with Ginny, and I love the fact that every time he makes whatever, what in any way feels like a goodbye speech, she, like, whacks him over the head with a two-by-four, and, like, ref- she, he tries to give her the promise ring, and she refuses to make the promise, because he will come back, and he will propose the right way, damn it, after he lives, and that's that, and I, there, there's, there's so many great character moments, many of which I wish we had gotten in the canon, and some of them we did, a lot of them we didn't, a lot of them were inferred, and it's great to actually read them. Well, that's why we have Melinda, basically. I mean, and, and many, many, many other talented authors, but Melinda does it very well. Um, just even thinking over these chapters, I mean, what we really learned in these chapters was it showed the progression of Harry and Ginny as a couple. And they are people who, I, she at one point says, I don't know where you begin and I end. Their lives are incredibly intertwined. And they are an old married couple. It doesn't matter that they're 16 and he has buckets of testosterone. They are an old married couple. She has been possessed by Satan, essentially, and he has gone through hell, and they found each other, and they are 38 years old. And, not to say 38 is old, but they are much older than their years, so the love thing works. (laughs) And Ron and Hermione, it shows the opposite struct, and it shows two people who are very like each other. And this is kind of what I was saying about Hermione back in um, Paradigm of Uncertainty, the characterization I like about Hermione is that she is more like the boys than she was six years ago, seven years ago. And she has grown into, you know, someone who likes adventure and likes to be pushed beyond the library. And in the same way, Ron likes to be pushed himself and he likes to be, you know, taken care of on some point. And he likes, you know, what Hermione is able to provide, that sense of order and that sense of challenge for him. So they're two great characters for each other. And they both realize that, when they go with people like them, it, it, it doesn't work. They, 
they are the two who get along who are very different, much in the, in the same way that Harry and Ginny are very different. And that is probably one of the great stories of, you know, when you look at all the relationships in Joe Rowling's universe, the only one that doesn't seem to work is Neville and Luna. And, that, and they are very, 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 very different. And I have to feel for him because Luna wanted him to go around and ask everyone in the school to wear neon pink robes. Yeah. It's like, I've had enough of these not, he's not doing it. And There's a reason I can't stand that ship. <laughs> I will say I that understand. I do like Neville Longbottom with um, Hannah Abbott a lot better than I like him with Luna Well, Lundin. there's another thing that Melinda called. There you go. He eventually did marry Hannah Abbott. That's right. He did. Did he? He did. And he stared at her breasts, I believe. Her breasts. <laughs> he did. I don't know why it is, but in Fanon, Hannah has amazing boobs. Like, no matter which story I read. Well, I hear she has a nice rack. Yeah. I hear she has a nice rack. Was that in there? I believe that was in there. I'm like, Melinda, Melinda Lee, I was talking about Hannah Abbott's rack. It was incredible. I couldn't believe it. But, um, and I, can I just say, I don't know what was up with Peoncast that week. It's like, we dedicate this episode to Ryan because it's about Hannah Abbott's breasts. And I'm like, why are we dedicating the breast episode? <laughs> I, I assumed, I, I mean, I was out that week, but I assumed that you had said you liked Hannah Abbott's breasts. No, what actually Boom. happened was... I, there. Sue was yeah, there. Sue you, Sue, you were there. I Sue, had a bug nose because Samantha became deathly ill, but Sue was there. Um, Sue, what happened? There was something about uh, a Skype message that was going on between you and Keza, and she mentioned something, and, and you made a reply, and she decided to just go with it. I, I don't think that you were aware of what was going on at that point, but Keza just decided to go with it. I think that sounds very much happened. like my management style. Um, I think what <laughs> happened was all of the hosts like fell down, and there was no one in the. And she's pulling people in because uh, you know Tina was sick, so she couldn't make it, and you know everyone had stuff going on, no one could make it. So she's like, "Okay, I'm bad. I'm down three peons, and you know the, my computer is on fire, and I have the gas company on line two, and there's, you know, explosions in the background, but we're ready to be on gas. And I said something like, well, at least you have Hannah Abbott's breasts. Uh, and apparently I am now a boob man as a result, and I can't get away from it, so I... It just- don't listen to be on gas while you're driving, you'll be okay. Don't listen to Parfait Weekly while you're driving. That's not a very safe activity. Especially with Jen and the fruit bat. That was very unfortunate from last week. As was us replacing Mike when he was assassinated. That was very, that was very sad. By the cockroaches. Um, but just, by the cockroaches. Can I just say one thing too? Do you, who loves the point where Neville tells Ron that he needs to calm down because stress will lead to erectile dysfunction? <laughs> also, I could hear in my head was Melinda going, No! No! Not us! You! <laughs> That's such a good invitation, too! Oh my god! He's like, No! No, no, we don't think that you think that! And I love it. No, I see how I'm like taking the high road here. But I love it so much because. It's not so much her saying it, it's everyone else's reaction. It's like Harry, like, yeah, Ron, you really need to be careful for that, buddy. You really need to be careful for that. <laughs> and Ginny's like, I really don't want to be thinking about this, but you know what? You might want to have that looked at. And it's just, that's obviously not what they said, but it's just, I just thought that moment was creative. And the moment where, um, Terry Boot and Hermione are out in the hallway and Ron, like, 
completely takes Terry out and, like, knocks... I think he, like, killed him. He, like, knocked him into a wall and he almost died or whatever. Because he was taking up too much space in the ho- corridor. The exact response was, he was creating a blockage. <laughs> and I'm like, a blockage? He's like, it's dangerous. People need to get to class. So, Hermione's like, so you had to knock him down the flight of stairs. <laughs> it's just... I was the thing that Melinda writes very very well is she really makes the dialogue witty and it's very entertaining. Like the moment where Harry is preparing for his big date and he's like, as you know, as they arrived at the gala, you know, everyone was desperate in the press to find out who he had taken as his date. Imagine their surprise when he shows up with Albus Dumbledore. Like it just her her writing style is just very creative. It's very fun. It's it's really a fun fic to read. The characterization is very sharp. The relationships, you know, just down the line are great. Whether it be Harry and and Ginny, you know, trying to you know work things out, they have some problems, but then they become much more stable, and they really do start to finish each other's sentences. Ron and Hermione obviously come back together. You have Harry trying to deal with Molly Weasley and help put the Weasleys back together again. And then from the plot perspective, Voldemort attacks every time Harry leaves the school. The one thing I did like, though, I, I really, really liked this, was after Ron pulls, you know, the, 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 the Sybil Trelawney and gives you know, the, the prophecy from class because he was sucked on by the brain that J.K.R. forgot about. And, you know, he, he gives his prophecy. Harry's like, well, we know it's going to happen this year, the final battle. And Dumbledore's like, huh? He's like, well, the, well, the final battle, it's happening this year. And he's like, why would you say that? And I, I felt like leaning forward saying, um, because the book is almost over. <laughs> that's so, that's so funny. I see, I see that in like so many fics where it'll be like, they'll like, like completely like unconsciously on the author's part, they'll like acknowledge the fact that they're in a timed book. Like that the, the, the story always ends like in the spring. That there's always like a climax in the spring. It'll be like the final battle is approaching. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and Harry and Ron are sitting around. Do you realize what crappy stuff always happens in June? Have you thought about this seriously? Let's look back and they, like like the final battle from every book always happens on like June seventh. Yeah, like I wonder and why they're not like traumatized against June or something like that. Like why. <laughs> Yeah, it's like they're having yeah. the one-year celebration from the death of Cedric, and they have to race off to the Ministry of Magic because Sirius is about to die. And then, like, the next year, they're trying to have the two-year memorial, but they're like, crap, there's this cave I need to get to. Like, you think they you would just said they were advance. going to have a celebration of Cedric's death. <laughs> I am very tired. Yes. I woke up at we 5. We finally got rid of like, the sparkly vampire. Oh. Wrong thing. <laughs> <laughs> Ding dong. Fixed it. <laughs> So that is all I have from these chapters. Uh, the only other thing, the one moment I love is, we were saying this on Paradigm of Uncertainty, sometimes an author will put in something from, you know, it's, it's obviously they're trying to insert something into the canon that wasn't there before. So you might ask yourself, why, oh, why have we never noticed that, like, weddings are held in the Great Hall every Saturday? Well, because there's a, you know, there's a spell up and people forget they're going to the Great Hall and blah, 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 blah. Like, okay, fine. When they introduce the Muggle Studies class, like, the character, like, Harry is astounded that he has never heard about this before. He is absolutely <laughs> blown away. He's like, I've never heard of this class before. Well, you, you know, well, you have to take it. You know, they don't talk about it. Why would I never have thought of this? 
Well, you know, Harry, you've been very busy. If you don't recall, everyone you've ever met other than us has been killed tragically in front of you, and you have been blamed. That's true, but you think I would have known there was a Muggle Studies class coming. Okay, look, Harry, you know what? You, you don't look ahead, and you would have no way of knowing. And he was like, he couldn't get over the fact there was going to be a Muggle Studies class. I thought that was so funny. It was like Melinda tried to sne- like sneak it in, but like Harry himself drew attention to it. I was just like... As a writer, I usually take that as a bad thing when I try to put something in and my characters resist. I don't like when characters don't do what I tell them to do. It's very okay. frustrating. Yes, it is. <laughs> it's like, but it'll be so much easier this way. Especially when they refuse to have sex. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, come on! Oh god, <laughs> P- have- I hate to say it, but it's like P.S. is writing a sex scene and he can't get it up. <laughs> 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 I thought they were good, and I wish there were more. You wish there were more chapters? There are more chapters. There are. We're covering them next week. (laughs) Another winner out of the ballpark by Potterific Weekly. Yes, There you go. (laughs) For me, this is the first time I've reread this in maybe a couple of years. Um, So I don't remember exactly... Like what's coming, but I'm liking the little bits that I think I'm picking things up on, like the Quidditch Scout. And there are some little things that in the thing with Jacqueline, and I don't remember how those things pan out, but I'm I anxious. Have a question. What do you think is going to happen? Wait, can I ask a question? Well, I don't know that that's fair because I kind of have an idea, and I don't know if it's because I remember or because I've just picked up on it by reading. Well, you know all, what I mean? We've all here. Has everyone here finished the story? No. Yes. At least one, at least once ever. I've yes, never finished the story ever because I'm reading with the podcast. When I'm reading it now, because I do remember, you know, quote unquote, who the bad guy is or who the mole is or whatever you want to call it. I didn't like it the first time, and now this time it seems so obvious is who it is that I'm actually enjoying it because now it's at least I can tell there's, there was a lot of foreshadowing that went to it, so I'm enjoying it more. But apparently, I'm only picking up on the foreshadowing because Tina's really smart at this stuff. So apparently, I'm only picking up on the foreshadowing. Not because it's blatant, but because I know it's there. No, no, it's like it's like the scene in um, remember in the Sixth Sense when um the Haley Joe. I haven't seen, seen that it. actually. Me neither. You've never seen Sixth Sense. You obviously yeah, know it's how one it of those things on my list of things to do. Yeah, but you know how I it did, ends, right? I did see the one where I it's know like, that there's like a big reveal. That's all oh, I know. You don't know what the reveal is. Watch the movie before it's revealed. All right, there's a point where in the story there's a big reveal at the end, and without revealing it for you. There's a moment in the story where one of the characters could pretty much grab the camera, like, yank it in front of him and say, doesn't this seem peculiar? And, like, throw a big spotlight on the reveal. And then Mm -hmm. later on, at the end of the story, you're shown the reveal. And the director even said, I was real, real nervous about that scene because it could have ruined the whole movie if it gave it away right there. And, a lo- and everyone missed it. It's right in front of your face and you missed it. There was actually a scene when I was reading this where it's almost exactly stated. Like, reading it, I could. it was very clear to me that the, 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 the weird activity was in plain sight. And I'm like, how did I miss that the first time? But apparently I only picked up because you guys didn't catch it. And I didn't the first time either, so... Honestly, I did reread these chapters very fast. In fact, I had to leave work early today to finish reading. Oh no, I'm glad I'm not the only one who does that. But yeah, so, but um, yeah, I mean, just reading through them, it was just um, 
It's really well written, it's really well crafted, and we know Melinda. Melinda doesn't care as much about the plot as she does about the cleanup that comes later. And I think that she really shows, she really demonstrates how Harry heals. And she does it over Mm -hmm. year six and year seven, and she puts, you know, like, the, the icing on the cake on it after the final battle will eventually conclude. And that's what she's known for. And there's these little quiet character moments that I'll always remember from these fix, and they're pretty much in this one, and they're coming up, you know, near the end of the school term and, and a lot of that stuff. And it, it's just great. It's great to actually see the moments that we always hear about. Because a lot of what J.K.R. does is she tells us she doesn't show us, and Melinda really shows us more than she tells us. So yes. I just really love that. And I'm racking my brain here. I'm... You know, again, just Dumbledore in his, you know, farewell scene to Harry, and we're going to probably cover those later chapters again some more next week, but, you know, the, the sacrifice of Dumbledore making it very clear to Harry that he is making this choice and he's dying anyway, and, you know, he wants to do this, and, you know, the, just the character of Percy Weasley, how much you want to hate him, and, you know, just, <laughs> you, you know, Abe, Abe Dumbledore, and he's standing there smoking his pot <laughs> in the rumor requirement with Harry. And I was actually talking to Melinda today. I'm like, Abe is a great character. And she's like, he, he was based on her uncle, who I guess was very ill, and he passed away. And at the, his funeral, there was a picture of him, and he was on his boat that he drove, and he his hair was flapping in the wind. And he picture Abe Dumbledore, just very vivacious, full of life. The picture was taken like three days before he died. And he lived, lived, wow. lived, 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 died. And that was just very inspirational, and that's what she based Abe off of, who I think is a great character. So, I mean, just, I can't say enough good about these, about these fics. It's hard for me to point out, usually when you read a story, there's these, this one main moment that sort of rises above all the others. And this one, there's just repetitive, you know, equally great moments between all the characters and the, and the characterization is solid and you believe in the characters and I don't know I'm probably going to be inserting myself into this as I edit it saying say about talk about this talk about this but it just I have nothing but good stuff to say and next week we're going to cap off all of Power of Motion all of Curse of the Damned and we'll get into it a little bit more and we'll have Melinda on the podcast and uh, get into more of this stuff so anyone else have any final thoughts? I don't think so I think you said everything I wanted to say with a hundred more words than I would say (laughs) (laughs) oh my god she is actually bathering my monologues bathering I said bathering you got got 12 seconds notice before the podcast I really enjoyed this was the the third fanfic that I ever read Melinda Leo was what brought me into the fandom because I started with the seventh Horcrux and then these two right after that and then just went from there so if they hadn't been as good as they are, then I probably wouldn't have kept reading. They're good it, first ones to read, definitely. For sure. Tina's like the president. She's like, I am so done podcasting right now. <laughs> <laughs> she has had a very rough week. <laughs> uh, yeah. I have, like, I did my problem, I just keep, I just have, like, I have, like, ADD tonight. Like, I'll be like, I'll look over there and be like, ooh, something shiny. <laughs> well, it's crazy. It was a moment where no one was talking, and I can hear everyone typing. I'm like, what do you do? Like, we're all on Facebook. I'm like, crap. <laughs> Ryan started it. <laughs> yeah, he did. Ryan did start it, so. He did. Right, we're going to have to ban yep. Facebook from all future episodes. All right, so with that, have a great night, everybody. We'll see you next week. Good night. Night.
So hold on to the wonder that those books brought to our lives. Keep each other safe. Keep faith. Good night. a wonderful moment, you know, my fellow Pufuanians. We are on episode five, our final episode on Melinda Leo's Power of Emotion and Curse of the Damned. I am just so excited to be here tonight. I finished these chapters again for the second time. I haven't read them in two years, and they're just such moving chapters, and there's, you know, so much good in here I want to talk about, and so, you know, just Melinda's writing style and how, well, the wonderful author Melinda is, and there's so much great stuff I want to cover. And I I just want to just before we get to that, I just want to stop very buttering her up. A, a little bit, a little bit. I have to say something. I just have to say something. Um, I was talking to Melinda the other day, and I was I was saying such things as I as I was just saying to you, my fellow Pufuanians. You know, wonderful writer, powerful scenes, emotional. You know, power, power of a post. Well, well done, P.S. You know, all this great stuff, and I'm like, but there was. There was one thing, Melinda, I noticed. It's hardly worth mentioning. And she's like, but Ryan, your opinion matters so much to me. I said, Melinda, I know. Um, I happen to notice that Harry has a constant erection during both fix. And she's like, what do you mean? I'm like, during every scene, Harry seems to have an erection at all times. And Melinda's like, are you serious? I'm like, yes. Every go check it out. So she so she goes and checks it up. And Melinda returns and she's like, "I don't believe it." I'm like, "What's that?" And Melinda's like, "I've never realized this before." I'm like, "Melinda, what is it?" She's like, "I'm a pervert." So this is what <laughs> Perfect Weekly has done to Melinda Leo. We have actually convinced Melinda Leo that she is a pervert. So with that, we are going to jump off our discussion of the final chapters of Curse of the Damned. We're going to jump into the storyline tonight right after the death of Albus Dumbledore and work our way straight through to the 
uh, to the end of the story, to the epilogue, and then once we're done with our discussion, we're going to recap some moments from uh, Power of Emotion and the beginning of Curse in the Damned that we may not have gotten to as a result of the fact that we spent 35 minutes playing Who Would You Turn Gay For? And if you were a farm animal, which one would you be? So unfortunately, we got a little off topic in previous episodes, which I blame completely on Lady Cheat. I think I asked the farm animal question. You did actually ask the farm animal question. I I was the one that did the who would you go gay for thing, but I think that that's pretty much what people expect from me anymore, so whatever, it's all good. Well, P.S. came out of the proverbial closet three episodes ago. That was half an episode, so we've had some distractions. There was an earthquake. I think that made Melinda happy, so I think the whole, the rest of the tomfoolery was made up for by um, me. By by converting, yes. And and we did spend 45 minutes trying to explain to Mike just how easy it is to drive a a speedboat. I think we offended the Jehovah's Witnesses at one point, too. We got very, we got very, 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 very controversial sometimes. We should have said I was a brush salesman. We should have, we should have said the brush salesman. That, 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 we apologize to the people of the world for that one. So, um, we just played a fun game. We asked Lady Chi if she knew who the bad guy was, and she guessed on the fourth try. So Lady Chi's ready to start off our discussion tonight. (laughs) Just kidding, Chi. Chi, no, actually, you know what? Chi, why don't you jump us off tonight? Jump us off, huh? Jump us Start off, Start with the uh, reaction to um, Dumbledore's death, which I think is probably uh, some of the best character moments in the fic. I love everybody's reactions to the like funeral. I thought Ron, in particular, was very right on in how he has trouble knowing what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. You know, you know as far as talking about like, you know, not being willing to very much having this thing that he should be very respectful because Dumbledore has moved on, you know, so he's not just saying Dumbledore, he's saying Professor Dumbledore, right. um, that kind of thing. So I just want to say one thing. Now, going back to the beginning of the chapters tonight, so you have Dumbledore literally take the Avada Kedavra curse for Harry, Percy Weasley gets him the hell out of there and gets him back to Hogwarts, and that's what the chapters tonight pick up. Now, as a plot point in earlier chapters when Dumbledore was, you know, on his way out, when it was very odd, because I was saying in the last podcast, you can really tell if you read fix enough the warning signs that Dumbledore is about to die, because it's like, it's like when you're there for the welcoming feast and Harry looked up and he's like, Dumbledore never looks so old as Dumbledore is moving, is maneuvering across the Great Hall with his walker and his cane and his little motorized scooter. He thought that Dumbledore has never looked this old before. I mean, it's like one of those things. So it's like you, you get the warning signs that Dumbledore is about to go. So he's talking to Harry in previous chapters, and he mentions to Harry that the wards at the school are tied directly into the headmaster. And, you know, the wards have been weak, or Mad Eye Moody was concerned the wards at Hogwarts would weaken, and they were looking to augment them. And that was, you know, just another sign of the fact that Dumbledore was on his way out. And I, that, I filed that away. And when Dumbledore died, the first thing that occurred to me is the wards at Hogwarts have collapsed. That was the first thought that entered my mind. So they get back to Hogwarts and Percy's, you know, dragging them up, you know, the slope of the school and they get to the entrance hall and Harry, you know, bolts past everybody and he runs to the room of requirement. The first thing I can think of is the school is about to come under heavy enemy attack. And he goes into the room of requirement, and you have the whole subplot with Ginny and Percy Weasley and Professor McGonagall, this whole thing going on here. And 
all I can think of is the school is about to come under attack. And then you have this wonderful moment between Ginny and Hermione and Hermione. And cause this is a moment that I've actually been waiting for the whole story where Ginny and her, you know, her, her, Hermione wants to be the one to go to Harry with Ron. And Ginny says, no, you two need to stay here. It's my turn now. I'm the one he needs, not you. And this is, I think it's this really great moment of like, it almost reminds me of like a mother and, you know, like a bride who gets the son now, who gets the kid. And, you know, it's just one of those, you know, passing of the torch moments. I think Ron was there and Ron says, no, she's right. She has to go, not us. And Hermione's like, take good care of him. And Ginny goes to the room of requirement and it won't let her in. And then she says, you know what I, you know what he needs. And even the rumor requirement knows that it's Ginny that Harry needs, and let's, you know, Ginny... I think that's a really interesting um, point, especially given later on when they... Can I skip later on? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, later on when he is... with well, this great moment where he, when Harry is talking to um, Hermione, and he said, no offense or anything, but I always sort of thought of you as a mom figure. Oh, that had to have been Wait, Melinda. am I mad about that? No, I'm not. Okay. But, I you always know, thought that was Melinda sort of sticking thing. it to the harmon. I thought that was Melinda sticking yeah. it to the harmonians. I really did. Yeah. I've always thought of you like a mother. But it's just well, interesting think, in the light of what you were just saying well, in terms of... I think it's true, too. I mean... Passing, yeah. passing the torch to Ginny, saying, you know, I'm relinquishing this role of the caretaker of Harry, and now that's going to be your job. Well, I mean, Hermione kind of is Harry's sort of all-purpose female in his life. Like, sister, mother, you know, like anything that he needs at that moment from, a, you know, she's the one that he can go to. I mean, Molly Weasley, we could wish for more from a canon perspective, but Hermione is is there all of the time for Harry. And uh, so I thought that was an accurate uh, observation on Melinda's part and also a fun way to stick to the Harmonians. I really thought that's what Melinda was doing. Not the dear Melinda Leo, you know, pervert that apparently she thinks she is, but she's not. She's a very lovely woman and we love her very much. But um, apparently, you know, that was Melinda perhaps making it clear through her story that she does not believe in the... um, in, in the preconceived notions of the Harry Hermione crowd, let's just put it that way. But I, I don't even think it has to be mother or sister. I think that it's like either an older sister, you know, sometimes older sisters raise younger brothers or sometimes grandparents raise grandchildren, you know, depending on what the family dynamic is. Harry has a completely screwed up family dynamic. His best friend's mother is, is, is probably the major maternal role in his life. You know, Madame Pomfrey is a maternal role in his life. Dumbledore is a, is a, is a parental role in his life. Sirius is a best friend and, you know, an uncle and a godfather. I mean, everything is a little bit merged. Hermione is, on some levels, a parent. I actually never thought of that before, but on some levels, she's a sister, and on some levels, she's a parent. If you read Laurie's fix, apparently she's really good at sex. I mean, it depends where you go from there, but I thought that was just a great moment there between Ginny and Hermione, because it's been building the entire fic, because they always have these moments where, like in the very beginning, when Harry would tell Ginny what was on his mind, and Hermione's like, how'd you do that? I've been trying to get him to talk to me for years, and the more I scream, the less he tells, and I can't figure out what to do, and it's... I, I just thought that was a great moment. I love the fact that the Room of Requirement, which is like the like all-powerful, you know, entity even recognized the fact that it was Ginny the Harry needs. But unfortunately, the first time I read this, I, I didn't get any of this because I'm, I'm like waiting for the enemy attacks and the shells to come over the mountains because the wards have collapsed. And Melinda does say later the wards will hold for a few weeks. Just from I, a plot you know, perspective. I read was... a thing where they were tied to all the teachers, like combined. 
which I think makes more sense. Yeah. You know what it was? And I don't think it's anything really Melinda could have done, like, unless she had, you know, because Harry's not thinking about the wars as he, get, as he gets back to school, and it's from Harry's perspective. Yeah. Right. It just, I really liked the way that when Harry was thinking about all of the mother figures in his life, Melinda included Madame Pomfrey in that list. And I really like that because I think that that's another aspect of a mother figure that Harry never had. You know, he didn't have anyone who fussed over him when he was sick. And, you know, I, I like the way that when the brothers go and talk to Percy for the first time, and they talked about how whenever Harry would get his Weasley jumper, yeah. his oh, eyes would just that. light up. You know, because those are things that people usually take for granted. And as much as, you know, like Madame Pomfrey has probably irritated Harry with her cutting and all that stuff over the years, you know, that's something that left an impression on him, that whenever he was sick, whenever he was injured, here was this woman who was going to take care of him and make him all better. And I really I really thought that was very sweet. Although I do have to say, and this is going back just a little bit, but it just struck me as so funny that when Harry and Dumbledore are stepping out for their big night together, you know, Dumbledore says, let's give them something to talk about. I don't think we knew then, though. <laughs> I know. Oh, I know. But it's just like I could hear, like, the Bonnie Raitt song playing in my head, and I'm like, Let's get to talk about. Well, I just love the fact that he grabbed Harry by the arm and they went out arm in arm. And it's like, I know. Even like, with all due respect to Ms. Weasley, I believe I, I, he's like, I even believe I'll get some new dress robes. (laughs) No, Harry has a line too. He's like, when the press was all outside and the paparazzi were taking pictures to see who his date would be. He's like, imagine they're surprised when I show up with Albus Dumbledore. (laughs) I thought that was hysterical. I love that. Oh yeah, I did like that. But I mean, I just, I really like the way that, you know, I, I think one of the things that makes Melinda such a good writer and it makes it so interesting to read her work is that she picks up on little details that the rest of us kind of gloss over, like the Weasley jumper and the way Harry reacts to it every year. You know, that's something that I don't think anybody else or nothing that I've ever read actually took that into serious consideration. That was always just like, a, oh, well, you know, he got a Weasley jumper or whatever. And I mean, I really think that that is one of the things that makes Melinda a really good writer is that she picks up on those little yeah. things and, and puts so much meaning behind them. And I, I really like that. Well, I, I especially that I like Fred and George, him picking up on Fred and George's thoughts about the Weasley jumper and about how they were so indignant about it. And then him remembering back in the first book when they made Percy wear his and you think, well, maybe that's not because... Um, they really care, and they think Percy's an idiot for being an idiot. I think in the books, Fred and George have this very... They have... they. I think they almost value the, the family more than any of the other siblings do. Like, they take it the hardest when Percy defaults, you know, um, temporarily um, in canon. I, they just... There's something about... I think Fred and George, it was almost like they knew that they didn't have forever. That's because they, they lived every moment in the books... Um, and they appreciated everything. And and um, am I making am I making sense? Did anybody else notice yeah, this? Like it, after it Deathly Hallows, no, you, you, no, you definitely like, are. Um, it especially makes sense because I mean, Fred Fred did die, so it's like it's it is it's like they they knew they lived they lived every yeah. Day. Now here's the thing: I've only read the canon twice. I read it, um, you know, from, I read it once years ago, and I did a reread 
before Half-Blood Prince came out. No, I'm sorry. Yes, I did that. Riri before Half-Blood Prince came out, and I think I, I skimmed Half-Blood Prince again before Deathly Hallows came out, but I've only read most of the canon once. Let's talk about Melinda for a second. When she looks at the twins, I think she, like Joe, will always have the twins try and be absolute jokesters around each other or when anything regards the other one. Like in Deathly Hallows, where George got shot through the ear, and, you know, they do the whole Your Holiness joke, and he's like, that's the best you can come up with, Your Holiness. We trained for this. And they're, if that had been, you know, Ginny who had been shot through the ear, they're not joking. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, they joke if they knew she was safe or if she recovered and she had a big bandage over her ear. I think they would joke with her about it. But if she's there and there's blood pouring out of her face, they're not joking. And I think that... She, I really do think that she sees them as very serious characters who use humor very well, like a lot of people I think that we all know. But I think that, she, that Melinda certainly believes that the twins have a very, um, very serious side to them. And I, you know, even some stuff I know she's writing out, you, you see very dark sides to the twins. They're always the first ones to go into battle to protect their family. If you know this, whenever Melinda writes something and they're the ones, they may do the whole thing where if, you know, to Harry, if you touch our baby sister, we're going to kill you. But when Percy goes after Harry, the, the twins are the first ones to defend him. And it's not just that they're irritated at Percy. It's because they love Harry, too. And I think they're, yeah. they're just great characters because they're so versatile in terms of what you can do with them. One thing I just wanted to comment on really briefly, too, is I was just talking to Melinda the other day, actually, about Hermione's parents and how when you read them in fix, no one cares what the Grangers think. They're not important characters. Like in After the End, no one cared about Hermione's parents. No, I won't say anything. No one cared about Hermione's parents being sick because they weren't the focus. The focus was what does the fact that Hermione's parents are, you know, being sick, what does that have on Hermione? It's like a TV show when a character's sister shows up that you've never heard of before. No one cares about the sister. They care about what impact this new person has on the character that you love. Like Bill Weasley, he's in the canon. He's not in the canon incredibly much. You really don't care maybe about, well, telling this to the woman obsessed with horse slughorn, so maybe I'm wrong on this. But, you know, you don't usually care about Bill, but you care about the impact that Bill has on Harry, or or what Bill thinks about other characters. You're was, wrong. You're just prejudiced against minor characters. Shut I, up. Well, no, I mean, there was a moment There was a moment in here, I have the I have the words written down right here. There's a moment when they're um, discussing Percy, and they're discussing um, how everyone still held a grudge against Percy, and even after Percy was completely deflated and depressed, everyone still held that grudge, which I think is very important. There was a line in there that says the oldest surviving brother is the one who refuses to meet with Percy. And, you know, Arthur's still alive, but Bill, like, when you're the oldest, when you're in charge of other people, you know, in a symbolic sense, you take that very, very, very seriously. And Charlie, who's the second oldest, when Charlie died, you know that Bill saw that as a personal failing because everyone in the story is so goddamn guilty and it's completely human. And I think that he took that so personally that anyone who was against Charlie is against Bill. So I think that it was such a personal affront what Percy did by turning his back on the family that the fact that, you know, Bill sees himself as the oldest, that's going to really matter. And I think the fact that Bill is the one who defend now correct me if I'm wrong, was Bill the one who brought up the jumpers? The conversation was occurring between only the twins and Harry. Okay, and I'm sorry then. I thought for a second Bill had been part of that too. But you know, even the twins, you, you love the twins, but it's really important to know that other people thought that Harry, 
you know, his face lit up when he wore that jumper. And you, and you really didn't see that in the movies. But, you know, I, mean, it's, it, I think it's just really, the only thing I'll say is I think it's really important when you see other characters talk to other characters about Harry and things they noticed about Harry because it just clues the audience into more because he's the character you truly care about. I like the Harry Potter universe, obviously. I'm not a huge fan of canon. And so I guess I'm, you know, yes, the token, not a huge canon shipper and all that stuff. But really what it is, I really like the minor characters because it allows fan fiction authors to really go in a whole bunch of directions and to explore things. And stories like this, where we get to see Harry and Hermione and Ron are great, but it's really the details about the somewhat minor characters that are really appealing to me. So you have things like Harry's insight into, hey, you know, you've got Ron and Ginny, you've got the twins, you've got Charlie and Bill, and then there's Percy. And I love that insight into a character like Percy because suddenly you're like, this isn't just this little snot, you know? He has been left out, effectively, although he's part of this greater collectiveness no wonder he feels left out. And then he's got this much greater dimensionality than he'll ever have in canon. And I love the way that Melinda does that. Yeah. One thing I was going to say too is, um, anyone here a fan of Gilmore girls? No. Anyone? Um, yeah. (laughs) Amelie hasn't watched TV in 10 years. Um, it's a really, um, I'm sure people listening to this know what it is, but it's a very fast-paced, um, very well-written show. Um, the, like, the script books for they are, like, three times long than normal because the characters talk faster than I do. And they had a season finale episode, and they were told, we may not come back for a new season, so make sure this episode can double as the final episode of the series. And it actually was the final episode of the series. But the problem was, it was this hour-long episode. They didn't want to close things down too much, but they didn't want to give you a lack of closure. So they gave you a moment of closure with every single character. And it literally felt like you were at the deli. And, like, this character walks up and you have a beautiful moment with them. And this character walks up and you have a beautiful moment with them. And then they get the hell out of the way. And it was like you were literally shutting... It's like you could actually see them, like, shutting the lights off as the film was still going. It it felt very rushed. And I think you see that in canon. I mean, if you look at it, you know, Harry defeats Voldemort. They go up to Dumbledore's office. And then it's 19 years later and his kids are getting on the train. Like, they just, like, bam, bam, bam. That's it. And, you, you know... Fan fiction will take care of the rest, apparently. Melinda doesn't do that. Melinda leaves you, you know, chapters where, you know, it's just, you know, you reach your peak and then you come down slowly. And she got to give us the leaving feast. And she got to give us the train ride home. And she got to give us the epilogue that went through, you know, the years. And then she got to give us what happened with everybody. And I think that's really important. And one of the things that got shortchanged, I think, in canon was the character of Percy, because he's a total ass for years, and he sees his brother die, and he cries over his body, and he has, like, almost like a, like a, like a creature moment where he, you know, all of a sudden it snaps in his head, and he comes flying, you know, back, and I'm back, and I'm so sorry, and, and that's really it with Percy. And what I think is very normal here is Percy is beaten down. But he never, he ne- he doesn't fully redeem himself, i.e. he doesn't fully become, you know, a card-carrying member of the Wheezy family. He's always a little bit off, and that's a good thing. I think that's a very good thing, because you're not going to have this moment where your, you know, your personality shifts completely because you see your brother die, and that's it. And the moment, one of my favorite lines from the entire thing was in the epilogue. Um, there was a line, I think I, I don't have it written verbatim here, but Percy only had one child on purpose because he wanted to give his child 
it's something like the attention that he never had. In other words, he saw being one of seven as a almost like a bad thing because he felt lost in the shuffle. So he wanted to give his one child all of the attention he wished he had. And everyone remarks that his kid is spoiled, which obviously you don't want a kid who's spoiled. So I think that's just very interesting in that, you know, what everyone else, you know, in the Weasley family sees as a strength. Percy, even after he redeems himself in 20 years ahead, he still sees that as a weakness. And I think that's a really, I think that's a really cool thing. Melinda doesn't fix Percy, nor should she. Well, I, I don't know. I think, I think the temptation is to wrap things up as quickly as you can because you're just so tired by the end of it. It's just an absolutely, utterly exhausting process. And I can't imagine writing in the same universe for 17 years, you know, and I think that she did the best. I mean, I, I'm happy with the epilogue. I don't think that that's probably the way that I would have ended it. But, um, I, but I, I do think, you know, to a certain extent, I think a lot of that was just this is this is the way that I want to end it because it's you know easy and convenient and whatnot. And I do like the way that Melinda ends it, um, but I also think that there's you know there's also downsides to drawing the ending of what drawing the ending out, and that has more to do with pacing and taste and style than anything else. Yeah, but, um, I have um, a problem with an ep- with an epilogue being considered another chapter. Like in my opinion, the uh, the prologue and the epilogue are nice, but they should ultimately be skippable. Because Think so? Because they should set either, the prologue should set the story up, per- perhaps provide extra information, and the epilogue should tie up loose ends that people who care what might want to know, but that shouldn't be absolutely crucial to knowing what happens, and it definitely shouldn't be treated as a chapter. It should be the epilogue. What do you think of, so what do you think of the epilogue here? Because it's a separate chapter, almost, um, but it's also well, I mean, self-contained. It is self-contained. I think the whole, the fact that it's, like, called a chapter is probably not her fault. I'm just going to give her give her the benefit of the doubt and say that just because of the format of fan fiction online. And if, if this had been published in a book, I don't think it would have said chapter 33 epilogue. I think it would have just said epilogue. Yeah. Are, isn't there, like, 17 chapter 33s in this, or was that, <laughs> that was P.O.E.? Uh, that was POE. But, yeah. but, um, yeah, that is a thing about, I don't know which site you read it on. I read that it off Fictionality because Melinda's website was being wonky for me. But That is a pretty common thing in, if you are an admin at any site like that. Most people will tell you that that's just, there isn't a way to add a chapter Epilogue. that isn't called a chapter. It's, I mean, yeah. it's just... It's well, because most everybody uses e-fiction anymore. And that's what that's what it's set up for. But anyway, and and besides, I, I think right. That so that's, that's my point. I mean, like, really cool. I wasn't like I, I mentioned that an epilogue is not a chapter because I had book. I had a book in mind. Okay, so um, the one thing I I do I there's one passage um in chapter chapter twenty eight. Um, this is like one of my favorite things. Um, that Harry says all thick. Um, and this is right before he goes into the final battle. Dun dun dun. And he's talking to Ron, and I think these these couple of paragraphs are probably some of the most beautiful things that she's written. So um, Harry's talking. He says, there is something you can do for me if I don't win and I don't come back out of here today. Just remember me, Ron. Remember Harry, not the boy who lived. That was never me. You are my first friend, Harry's friend. You know me better than all the stuff they'll print. I want to know there is someone left who knew I was really more than this stupid legacy. You tell them that I was messy and didn't like to do homework, that I got in more trouble than I should, and that I didn't follow many rules. Tell them that I had a temper and I often acted before I thought. Don't let don't let them gloss all that over, and I'll be watching to make sure you do. I love that. That he's like, 
you have to remember me and not what they're going to post in mm-hmm. history books stuff. I think that's yeah. awesome. I love that entire moment from the moment they realize that Ginny's missing and in that she's in the Chamber of Secrets to the moment where they go down there because it's so stretched out. One of the things that she had just mentioned earlier, Melinda really stretches this out. She could do everything in three chapters, but she does it in six or seven. And you have these, you know, these quiet beats where Harry, you know, has that conversation with Ron, and he has that final conversation with Hermione, just in case. And, you know, he, he puts his affairs in order, you know, quote-unquote, and, and he, he progresses slowly, and Ron is the strategist saying, don't jump before you think, and you you only have one shot at this, and I'm good at strategy, so I'm going to get you through that. And Hermione's good at, at spell work, and she's going to get you through that, and we're all going to get through this together. That's how it's supposed to be. And I think I think one thing that we do if we're really obsessed with the universe is that we build up the reality, the canon so much in our heads that when, when people produce fan fiction, we judge it so harshly because it has to live up to a certain standard. And then sometimes the, st- you know, the can- canon itself doesn't live up to that. So when Harry's crucioing people and imperioing people, we're like, huh? So, you know, we wouldn't tolerate that. But when I read this, this is comfort food. This is feel-good food. This is what we want the characters to be like. We want Ron and Harry to have that that scene together. So we don't care if they stop in the middle of a battle and start talking, even if it's completely implausible. And, you know, it doesn't seem very... It seems almost like a play, because he has perfect closure with everyone, and it's very neat and tidy. And And... and I'm okay with that because I love those moments. I love, you know, just the the fact that he gets to say farewell to everyone just in case. And like the moment where during the final battle, everyone that Voldemort has ever killed comes back and Harry gets to talk to them and they get to thank him. And, 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 you know, he gets closed, you know, she's put throughout all these chapters that Harry, you know, is making a mental checklist of everyone who's ever died. And I, I, I just think that that's a really, what a great way to end the story. I mean, I, I, I loved Deathly Hallows and the whole, you know, theory of the Elder Wand and all that stuff, but I needed like a, you know what it was? It was like Back to the Future 2 with Doc <laughs> and the damn dry erase board trying to explain to me that we're in an alternate 1955. I'm like, okay, let me get this straight. So there's a wand and, and Dumbledore had the wand, but then, the, but then Draco took the wand, but it's Why not like the same. do people not get that? Do I need No, to I get it. No, I get it. I get it. I, I get hate, it. I hate that when people don't get it. It was, Obvious. I got it. Was but very no, clear. It, no I, I did I did get it. But you have to stop and you have to think, okay, Draco defeated Dumbledore, but then Harry defeated Draco. But then I'm thinking to myself, okay, but what if Draco and Harry were dueling in dueling club and, and Draco disarmed Harry? So now would Draco be the older the holder of the Elder Wand? But is there an exemption where the Elder Wand knows it was just a test of the emergency broadcast? So I'm like thinking all of the I'm trying to figure out the logistics of how this works. I'm like Jen. I'm trying to figure out where the characters buy their toilet paper and sometimes they get too much into it so i'm okay i i I, melinda okay i get it harry you know everyone who has ever been killed by voldemort comes back and gets to take a piece of his magic okay (laughs) very simple you know it's you know it's about love and loyalty and friendship and it's about you know choices choices mattered voldemort's choices mattered and this is the result of that I, I I really I, I I thought that was great. I thought that was a great moment. You know, Charlie coming back, I thought was was very powerful. Dumbledore coming back, Cedric coming back, and I think the most powerful, obviously the most powerful one was Lily Potter. And there's so many comparisons made between Ginny and Lily. And when Lily Potter comes back and turns, like I don't know if anyone's ever 
written a one shot between Lily and Voldemort, you know, in, in this way before. But when Lily, you know, comes back and looks at Voldemort, this kid, this, this this monster that has destroyed her family, has destroyed her child, has ruined her. You know, it was responsible for you know, in some way, Harry spending ten years with with the Dursleys because she wasn't there to take care of him, and who you know, who who snuffed her life out, and who has been torturing her son, you know, every May for the past seven years, and and she turns around and looks at him, and all, and you you can just picture like Voldemort exploding right there. But then he, she glares at him, and all she says is, "How dare you!" And like I, I was like gripping the chair arms reading that because, like, well, basically, Melinda scared the ever living shit out of me with that line. But I mean, that is just an incredibly, incredibly powerful scene, and I feel like even in canon, while it was incredibly well done, we didn't get. I didn't feel that emotional payoff in canon, so. I, I really, I think the entire final battle was just an incredible moment. I think it was probably one of the best things Melinda's written, just because it was just so damn powerful. powerful I had one like question emotion. about the final scene, though. In the final scene, they, you know, there was this whole thing, and it happened sort of fast because I mean, this is, I mean, it's wonderful. The whole you have this long battle and it's complicated and things happen. You know, like unlike the canon, we get this this really fulfilling battle scene that happens um, and at the end of it did I read this wrong but it was something like like Voldemort crumbles to dust or something is that true? I think he blew up yeah <laughs> and then they were like oh and then Snape's like who has gathered his remains and I was like he's dust I don't get it I think <laughs> did he I kind something? of no I think he I, I don't someone else help me out here I think he like I took it that like yeah he turned to like some tor- form of like no cause didn't he turn to, like his energy was expunged he probably broke apart yeah and his energy like in millions was, of atoms his like yeah. his like atoms were like taken away and so he became trans like trans like posed into but were those bits still evil I mean why did you have to gather them I mean, you have these evil atoms floating around. They might, like, infect something. What part are you specifically asking about? Did Snape say gather the pieces? Of, just to confirm it was They, they say something. Uh, I should go find it. But they were just saying something about um, uh, gathering Voldemort's remains. And I was like, I don't understand I'm why sure you there need were, to. There were, yeah, I'm sure there were parts of him left. I'm sure the Ministry needed to have it be proven to them that he was actually gone. Yeah, and then he wasn't going to come back, you know, like, I mean, the yeah. first time he um, broke apart, he came back, so, because we didn't know about Horcruxes when Melinda wrote this, so she didn't know why he came back after he quote-unquote died the first time, so maybe they have to, like, make sure he's dead. Bring me his head on a pike, maybe a moment like that, just to prove to the world that he was gone. <laughs> Can I just tell you, I have Ray rereading the entire series, counting every time um, Melinda gives Harry an erection. <laughs> Because I just want to know. <laughs> I don't think I will say that the chapter with the final battle is one chapter where he does not get an erection. He, That's he did good. not the entire time, wall to wall. There was not a single erection in there. Screaming like, um, "Oh!" in the middle of the scene. <laughs> <laughs> there was even a great moment after Harry was injured. Yeah, it was after he was in. I don't know if it was the final battle or if it was... No, it may have been after he was injured at the end of... Um, no, I think it was after he was um, injured when the when the, when the the Dursleys were killed. <laughs> Ginny, like, leans over and caresses him or kisses him or something, and he gets an erection. He's like, oh, thank God, it still works. <laughs> <laughs> you know, honestly, that's, that's, that's a good thing to, like, find out. I mean, 
if I were Jimmy. <laughs> I mean, Harry's been through all this, like, problems. I'd make yeah, sure okay, it still worked before I married it. <laughs> before I married it? Well, yeah, you yeah. don't marry the person, you marry the organ. Oh, for the love of God. It's like insurance. Okay. It's like, okay, Ryan, would you buy a car without driving it? A used car? <laughs> I'm not going to answer that question, P.S. Right. Do you even buy a new car without driving it? Come on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's it. It's kind of like, if you ever have watched, like, Discovery Health or TLC or one of those channels, they have this, like, session with this crazy-ass family that's from Arkansas. And they're the Duggars. The Duggar yeah. family? Yeah. Okay. I and have, like, have... a secret obsession with the Duggar family. <laughs> okay, and they have 18 children. Now, these people, I am embarrassed that these people are from my state. Like, really. And they are doing, they have their own reality show now that's all about the Duggars. And they were talking about the oldest son, who's, like, 20. He is engaged to court this girl to be, to enter courtship. And they're allowed to hold hands, but they're not going to kiss until they're married because they don't want to give away a piece of their heart. Are you serious? That's just sickening. I am dead serious. I'm just, I'm just... I have <coughs> never met anyone in my life named Jim Bob. It's an alarming occurrence in Arkansas. He's actually a politician. <laughs> Imagine that. You're you know what's very weird? conservative politician. And you know what's weird? It's weird that they have a kid named Joanna and they have a kid named Joanna. I mean, isn't that yeah. like basically the same name? Well, yeah, they were the Jays. And I'm not even going right. to talk about the because fact that they have a the daughter dad. named Singer. That's just funny. Just... I have no idea how we even got on this topic. All I remember was P.S. asking. Oh my like, God, the, the prayer closet. About the car. Like my the favorite thing that my favorite TLC family though is always going to be John and Kate plus eight. Sorry, it's like my that's my favorite guilty pleasure. No, but I mean, the, the point I know that, is. that we're making by this entire discussion is that P.S. They're is talking toilets. about test driving yeah. a car before you buy it, or, yeah. you know, making sure that Harry is <laughs> fully functional before Jenny marries him, and I completely agree with that, because, I mean, let's face it, people don't talk about it, and it's, you know, taboo, back to why everyone thinks I'm a dude, talk about having sex, but, I mean, a good sex life is a really important part of a good marriage, yeah. you know, and that's so important, and, and people just kind of gloss over, like, no, you don't need to find that out. You can find that out when you really love someone, when you get married and you have sex for the first time. It's like, no. Well, no, in, the, in, oh, in, in, the, well, in terms I, I, of the story... I, I, I gotta come out and say, I, I mean, I was joking. I mean... You know, in terms of real I life, I think joking. you're absolutely correct, but this is one of the areas where Melinda's story is not real life, and that wouldn't even be a factor here. Because in, in, in her story, Harry and Ginny are ultimate soulmates. I'm sure there are super soul powers, which are going to activate any moment now, Rena. And she knows they are going to have a great sex life before they ever touch each other. And that's all there is to it, because Melinda is writing the story. And Melinda, as we have proven, is not a pervert, so it will work out fine. Well, I think, so. I think that there's, like, two sides to this, like, whole debate with, like, you know, like, serious think- committed sex and versus... Like, you know, I should test drive my boyfriend before I marry him at 16. Yeah, that was a joke. That was a joke. That was a joke. That was a joke. (laughs) I'm not not really going to make sure it works. (laughs) Not really. I promise. I'm going to get a message from P.S. in 10 years. Ryan, something awful happened. What? I married him and it doesn't work. I knew that. (laughs) That is totally what 
I'm going to do on my wedding night, if it doesn't work, I'm going to call Ryan and say, <laughs> Oh, P.S., come on, come on. <laughs> I'm going to be, we're going to get back from the P.S. wedding, I'm going to get back from the P.S. wedding and my cell phone's going to ring. What the hell? <laughs> <laughs> oh. I, Hi, do you need a ride to the airport? <laughs> Oh my god! No, I I will go on record by saying I really don't feel like there are a lot of things that I don't feel could be mixed with spirituality, and sex is one of them. I mean, I really I would consider myself a religious person, and I still think that waiting till marriage to have sex is pretty ludicrous. You know, it's one thing when people were getting married at fourteen and fifteen years old. That's a logical thing; you can kind of expect that to happen. But you know, how many thirty-year-old virgins do you know? Well, yeah, not, well, we apologize to the 30-year-old versions. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the three people who are listening to us who just went into therapy, we do apologize. Um, just even to link this somehow to Christian <laughs> and Melinda Leo, um, I will say that Melinda has frequently, as I brought up the erections, and I brought, and we obviously joke with Melinda because she, we, we, we enjoy hazing her because she's one of us. Um, I frequently will bring up, you know, the the the, the risque parts of her story and she, her her response to all of them. And she's wearing her June Cleaver pearls as she says it. Is well, Ryan, I'm I'm, I'm sure you're aware of this, but in Cursed, Harry doesn't have sex. So <laughs> everything you're saying just goes right over my head because Harry doesn't have sex. I'm and then sure. I'm amused. It's like, what is it? Two years later. End of the seventh well, horror crux. Oh yeah, two years later, but well, by then she wanted to try something new. Was anyone else also amused that Harry and Ginny seemed to have a child within like you know six months of like leaving Hogwarts? <laughs> like it was like immediately, kid. So I'm like, oh, well, apparently Melinda found a legal loophole. He had sex immediately after the end of the final chapter before the epilogue. So that she she got that one under. So well done, Melinda. I am impressed. I want to talk about what y'all thought about Luna as the mole brainwashed person. Because if you think about what we knew about Luna from Order of the Phoenix, this is a post-Order of the Phoenix story, I, I think it's an interesting place to take the character. I think it's really original. And I also think that it's written extremely well. That scene with Narcissa Malfoy um, using the polyjuice potion. See, I remember all of this stuff, Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> last oh, can I tell you? Last week, I mean to talk over you. Last week, when um we were reading through, I remember that it was Luna and Tina, who is the biggest Melinda Leo fan, fangirl you'll ever meet, who has read this fic cover to cover. Forgot, and if you'll remember in the last episode, I had her type to me how she thought the fic ended, and what Tina actually thought was she thought the bad guy was the Quidditch scout, and she thought the Quidditch scout would, you know, show up in the Chamber of Secrets with his slicked back hair, and that would be, you know, the, the downfall of the Wizarding World, so apparently... Oh my god, I think that's another fic, and I think I've read it. I think there is a bad guy, a one where the bad guy is a Quidditch thing. <laughs> yeah, but this, this is not that fic. But I do think that that scene with the, the Polyjuice potion, um, Narcissa It wasn't Polyjuice. I'll tell you. No. It was, it was whatever oh, this is a, She is exposed for not having read the fic. Metamorphosis. Metamorph, yeah. Yeah, metamorphosis. Yeah, thank you. Same difference, only not. Um, I I do think that's very chilling and very. I love how Melinda Leo writes Luna in that scene and how. Well, I, yeah, think, I mean, I think that it's partially because we all kind of got to like Luna after the book, and she needed a character who was going to betray Harry, 
but who was going to do it without malicious intent. Mm -hmm. And the only one that we could do that with would be Luna, because she's the only one that would be swayed in that manner. I I had I um had tr trouble with it. I'm trying to now put myself in this post order of the Phoenix mindset um and try to try and it it it, it feels better then but I just think I mean me having just read the story after reading the last two books it just kind of left me with a bad taste in my mouth. Like I don't think Luna is that gullible. Like I think Luna um, has her own way of looking at the world, and I think Luna has her own logic sometimes, and there are some, she does believe some odd things, but I don't think she's gullible, and I don't think she's stupid. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I was actually trading emails with Melinda on this yesterday. When I first read the story, I didn't like it. And I didn't know why I didn't like it, but I didn't like it. And rereading the story this time, I obviously had remembered that she was the mole. And it was very clear in the writing, once I knew that, where Melinda was dropping in foreshadowing. Because, because Luna is just very odd. She's very, you know, stressed because of her dad. She's very, um, she's very rude to Harry at certain points during the story. And, um, there was even a moment where they were talking about the mole. And Luna is very weird right after, like in that scene, right after. And it was like that moment from The Sixth Sense where Haley Joe Osment is like, you know, some of them, they don't know they're ghosts, and you pan over, you know, at, as he's saying that, you pan over to the... Oh, I hope I didn't just spoil the movie for anyone. Um, you, you know, you pan over the ghost as he's saying that, and it's like, will the audience click on what he's saying? And the, the audience didn't. And reading it again, I thought it was the most obvious thing in the world, but talking to everyone last week, nobody remembered who the, who the mole was after having read it. So I'm like, okay, so maybe it isn't the most obvious thing in the world. Um... I agree with P.S. I think that Luna is the wisest character in Harry Potter. I think she has the least amount of B.S. in her. I think she tells it exactly like it is, whether it's awkward, uncomfortable, rude, whatever. I think she just she cuts to the very heart of it. And I agree with Omni. I think it's not... I think it was Omni or she... Or she it, it, it can't be malicious. And it wasn't. She, honest to God, thought that Harry... You know, had been kidnapped, and that her mother was trying to was trying to come back, and and and, and it, it was okay as a result of that. The, the, the issues I have with it is I can't believe Luna would think that. And, and this, I, I don't blame Melinda for this because you really didn't know a lot about the character. Then you learn a lot more in Deathly Hallows. But I think Luna would have looked to Narcissa and kind of like patted her on the shoulder like a small child and said, dead people don't come back. And my mother wouldn't want me to do this. I think yeah. it would be something. because I mean, like, the whole time I was reading it, I mean, I know obviously Melinda hadn't read Deathly Hallows when she um, birthed this because Melinda is not yeah. Superman. But um, the Melinda whole time I was... not Superman, you're correct. Yeah, and so, which means she's not Moses either. Um, Melinda is not Moses, that is also correct. <laughs> um... Which means the whole time I was reading it, I was thinking about how she recognized Harry when he was under Polyjuice. So, like, I had in my brain, like, Luna would recognize Harry in Polyjuice, Luna would know her own mother. Luna recognized Harry under Polyjuice, Luna would know her own mother. And it really bothered me, and that's why. Well, it's like the scene, too, that we obviously didn't have yet, but the scene from Deathly Hallows where Luna had drawn the, um, pit, the picture on the wall of her bedroom, uh -huh. of her friends. And, yes, in this fic... Luna doesn't turn against her friends because she doesn't believe they are her friends. But I, it's my personal impression of the Luna character that Luna wouldn't go there. I do think that the one thing that was very 
good about that scene was the fact that it wasn't, you know, the Quidditch scout. It wasn't Blaise Sabini. It wasn't one of these secondary characters that yeah. nobody cares about, like we were saying earlier. It's Luna, and it matters that it's Luna. And I think the character who really saved that, that scene for me was Hermione, because Hermione had two terrific moments. When Luna tells her story, and, you know, Narcissa Malfoy morphs into Luna's mother, and it's so obvious that Luna has been fooled, Hermione, she doesn't, she's not Hermione that totally her. redeemed any doubts I had about that choice, and especially, especially Hermione's reaction to Luna's death. Yeah, because it's, Harry's thought is you're insane. And Hermione's response is like finding out that someone has cancer. It's, oh my, I feel so sorry for you. You have been so utterly manipulated. And that's, that's it. It, It's absolute pity. And the second moment is when, um, when the curses are flying and Narcissa uses, uh, Luna as a shield for the Yvada Kedavra and Luna is killed. Hermione is so enraged that she attacks Narcissa Malfoy and blows right through her shield and knocks her out. I think that would, just, you know, the other rate. Yes, Luna was, you know, someone who gave up, you know, Harry and his friends, and she was responsible for the deaths of people as a result of her poor choice, but she was so badly used by the Death Eaters that... And it said said so much to me because Hermione is, um, from the little we saw of the two of them in the canon at the point that this was written, which should be interesting in Order of the Phoenix, Hermione didn't really like Luna all that much. Right. So I think it's, um... Really, the polar opposites. They're, one of them is yeah. one of Luna is a person of faith, and Hermione is a person of science. And and that does faith can accept science. Science has difficulty at times accepting faith if it's in its most pure form. So I think that's that's often the the issue with. And just to see, just to see her, just like have this have this reaction to to what happened to Luna. Just it really it really touched yeah. me. Well, that's the thing too. It's 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 what these what what you see from other characters, and it's you know you get to see a lot about Hermione from the way that she reacts to Luna's death. And back on that comment that we had, my um, what I was saying earlier about Percy too, that Percy wasn't completely redeemed. Percy was still an ass fifteen years later, and that's fine because Percy is is an ass, so he shouldn't change. When you look at Luna too, it wasn't this moment where Harry. You know, they felt other pity for their poor friend Luna, who had been so badly manipulated, and Harry and Jimmy named one of their 27 children after Luna, and, you know, Mr. Lo- Mr. Lovegood felt awful about, you know, what his poor daughter did, and blah, 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 blah. It wasn't. Mr. Lovegood never, he was in mourning, and he never talked to Harry again. And Harry didn't know what to make of Luna for years to come, because even though she wasn't on the train on the way home, and even though, you know, she was badly manipulated, her mistake cost many people their lives. And she's a person of faith, and she didn't have faith. So it's, they don't know what to really make of her, and they feel bad. I do think it's a shame that Harry and Jenny didn't use Luna, like even as a middle name for, like, the last kid. I, I think that's important, I mean, though, that they didn't. It's important, because this Luna, Melinda's Luna, it's more... You know what it is? It's like, I don't know what to make of the, of the choice in the writing, and I think that's kind of okay, because it's like, you don't know what to make a Luna, and I don't think they know what to make a Luna either. Because she, yes, she was manipulated, yes, it was an awful thing they did to her, yes, she died horribly, and it was some, it was nothing that she deserved, but she also had little faith and is the character that you would you expect you know what it is you expect more from Luna and I think I as a reader expected more from Luna and I think they as a friend expected more from Luna and it's like it's someone who let them down 
and they suffered awful consequences, but she let them down. You don't know what to really do with that, and I don't think that you want to... I don't think they wanted to name a kid after her. And I think that's... A good, I think that's okay. Well, I don't... I also don't think that you always name your kid after your friends. <laughs> like, <laughs> when you have 24 of them, you name the kid after the mailman. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do we have any names, Steve? Show of hands. Is your name Steve? <laughs> How many kids did they end up having in this ep- epilogue? I don't remember. Seven. Like, seven. Who, who loves Who loves the, the name of their last kid? What is the name of their last kid? Let's last make she guess. I don't know. Right now I'm podcasting. I have six Skype windows open and a Yahoo Messenger window open and two stories open that I'm reading. Jim Bob Severus Potter? I don't <laughs> Well, before we answer that, I think we should address the more important question. How dumb are you? They're la- they, la- they named their last daughter Joanna because they thought it was a really nice name. Oh, after rolling. That's nice. I'm a big girl now. Do you want to uh, talk about... um? When, after Harry is sort of in an in-between state between life and death. Absolutely. I thought this was so interesting, you know, in the whole Melinda forecasting what is to come. Uh, I know. Because um, she's never had a problem with that before. <laughs> Somebody help me out. Maybe 90s movie where people are died and they're sort of in that purgatory and they're being judged with heaven and oh, hell. And they're God, God. Life. Oh, I know exactly the movie you mean. I've watched it many times. Um. It's, they go to Judgment City. Um, oh, uh-huh. crap. I know the... I'll think of it. Keep going. I know the, I know the exact... I had this vision of it, and when he, she started defending describing... Your life. Defending, your, defending Your Life is the movie. It stars Meryl Streep. Um, it's an Albert Brooks film. <laughs> and it... Um, is it Albert Brooks? It's Albert Brooks. It's Albert Brooks and Meryl Streep. So but when, I, when she first started describing, you know, where Harry woke up and everything's white and, you know, he's wearing white. This is the first thing I thought of. Okay, this movie. It didn't turn out that way, but that's what I was picturing. It was interesting because um, Melinda kind of does... You can tell with The Seventh Horcrux and with um, and with Curse of the Damned and Power of Emotion, um, Melinda trot... She goes to the same places and she actually goes to the same places the canon went to, but... She tries to do different things each time. Like, she tries to, like, Harry has sex in one, but not in the other. And, you know, this happens in one, but not in the other, because she doesn't want to tell the same story again. Um, I didn't like the afterlife scene as much in Curse as I did in Seventh Horcrux, because I, I got the sense from Seventh Horcrux that Harry was making a brief stop-off in um, the afterlife to say hi to his parents. I, I got the sense from the seventh horcrux that he went to the afterlife temporarily to, to, to almost, you know, have this, have this moment where he could recover before going back to the real world. Whereas in, uh, in, in this fic and curse, it was very much, um, like a choice for Harry. It was a crossroads to go forward or to go back. And I didn't really believe in that choice because I didn't believe that would be a difficult choice for Harry because th- this is an ultimate love story of Harry and Ginny. Like, if, if it didn't work, Ginny would still marry him. You know what I mean? It's like, or she wouldn't even question it. Like, it doesn't matter. So, I, I never saw a possibility of Harry not going back to Ginny. So, when Harry was contemplating the choice, I didn't believe that Harry would contemplate that choice because it would be an absolute, absolute, absolute no-brainer for him. 
So, especially after he sees Ginny start to blame herself, because Ginny had been Imperio, which is her worst nightmare, and she hurt Harry, to the point where Harry would take curses meant for Ginny, to the point where Harry would um, not defend himself against her curses, and she absolutely blamed herself. So if he died, her life would be over, and I just didn't believe that I, I, I almost wish it was more of like a stopover. I, I wish it wasn't like being seriously entertained as a choice. Cause, and we know that too. Could you imagine if the whole story was written and then Harry just decided to stay dead? So like, it, I, I felt like that was kind of like a, that was just a little bit of annoying mystery. I would almost me. like be interested to see what would happen if that happened. Like I would like to briefly visit an alternate universe of the world of like our world where that happened in the book, just to see what people said, <laughs> just to like yeah. watch fandom implode and then return to the real world. <laughs> oh yeah. Where Harry dies in Deathly Hallows. Cause he like, you know, falls off a cliff or something in the final battle. And, like, no, you know, where he, everyone. where he's like, he gets to like King's cross and he's like, okay, I'll, I'll get on the train with you. Let's, let's and Dumbledore is like, Oh, I didn't know that. Um, I didn't, I, I, there's not enough room for you in my car. I really didn't think that can we move that box? Maybe we can get rid of it. It's like, make, squeeze in. Um, that was my only thing with that. I thought that it was actually creative, too, because um, he gets a lot of face time with Sirius. And if you know this in Seventh Horcrux, Sirius is busy that day and can't stop by. So I thought that was kind of creative. But, oh, well, we did that already, so we don't need him. I thought that was just a really great... I, th- I thought it was great, too, with the fact that um, the Dursleys were made it to the afterlife, but they really couldn't go anywhere because they were just, they had so terribly mistreated Harry that they were, they were doing penance for that. Um, the fact that Dudley was moved by the fact that Harry was concerned that his girlfriend wouldn't know that he died. The fact that Dumbledore is like a little kid and he's running around with Nicola, Nicholas from L causing damage. I mean, the thing about Melinda's writing and, and you really get it from, from Curse is that and she hits it, another moment she hits it is when they're on the train ride home and, and Ginny says to, um, Harry says to Ginny, I'll give you the Marauder's Map and the Invisibility Cloak and you can sneak out and visit us. And, and Hermione's scandalized and Harry's like, Hermione, we need to break rules, we need to live. There's a sense in the story that the goal of life is just to, life is fair. And if you put in your time and you have difficult times, you will get just reward ahead. It's not all about the rules. And I think that's a really hopeful message. And I think that's a really good message. And I, I was even thinking at the end of the story, you have Molly Weasley, who has lost a son. And she's, you know, enormous problems in her life. You know, her home is destroyed. And just all these terrible things happen in her life. And in the, in the epilogue, she is the happiest woman on the face of the planet. I, th- I think it's just what Melinda writes is a really hopeful series. Um, and I think that the view of the afterlife, that you can go back and that every, you're being watched all the time. And, and it, it, it was very, it was very, it, it had a religious connotation to it almost. Like, like, like life does go on. It's, life is spiritual. It's not about certain things. It's all about, you know, whether you're a good person or whether you love people. And, and, you know, I just, it, it was just such an incredibly hopeful point of the story that, I do think that the Harry Potter series gives you sort of a unique way to explore. I mean, because death is a huge resounding theme in the series from start to be to finish, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think that as as a universe, it gives you sort of every fan fiction universe. This is a mini rant. Gives you 
a platform to explore different types of themes. Like, um, if you if you're writing in Doctor Who, then you then you have to address humanist things. Like, uh, because the philosophy is that this is all you have. This is you know this is the moment that you live in. There's nothing before. There's nothing after. You have to live in this moment, and that's all that matters. And then in Harry Potter, you know, there's this sense not only in canon um, with Deathly Hallows, but before that, I think the, the fandom in general sort of had this view of um, because you know there's magic and and that takes a certain element of faith that there is something beyond um, and the veil and, and Order of the Phoenix gave a clue to that yeah. as well um, and I think that there's thousands of really interesting ways to deal with the problem of what happens after death and um, Harry Potter universe gives you sort of unique place to do that and I like Melinda Leo's you know version of heaven or or whatever it is you know and I I think that she deals with it in a way that is hopeful and yet not preachy. Well, you know, there was, it wasn't even, you know, I, and maybe this is what I was trying to get at before. I wasn't that bit, I wasn't that much of a fan of, of the quote unquote afterlife scene here. Cause I, I never believed for a moment that Harry would actually stay there. So I was kind of waiting for the scene to get over and, you know, to see what else she was trying to provide. But the, but the moment itself didn't move me as much. What really moved me was like, was like, the Curse of the Damned, where you have Harry, you know, bring back Dumbledore and bring back Charlie and bring back Cedric and bring back Sirius and his mom and dad, and they all fight for him. That's a really powerful symbol. And the fact that they're not gone, that they're not only still there, but that they're fighting for him is a very powerful symbol. And the fact that even at the end of the story, at the end of the story, you know, when Harry almost loses his child, when his child almost dies after being born, the fact that that was thrown in there shows that life goes on, that the dead are still watching you and everything. Like, even though you've made it through your life, these things are still going to happen. I thought that was a very powerful moment. I mean, I think that was much more substantive than, than just the moment where, you know, Harry has to go to the other side and say hi to his mom and give her a big hug and, you know, and on some level he needed that purging, but I just, that was just the one thing that, that hit me a little bit. One thing I just do want to say before I forget to bring it up, I totally, when I first read this, totally, no doubt in my mind, thought she was going to kill Ron. Me too. No question. I thought she was going to kill Ron. And I had just seen, um, I don't want to spoil it for anyone, but I had just seen, I had just seen a TV series, and it was the last episode, and there was two best friends, and one of them died. And it was a very similar scene where one had been stabbed and had to be left behind. And, you know, best friend A goes over to injured best friend B and they kind of like look at each other and do like the man hug thing. And the dying friend says, you know, live a long life, do great things. And I, I swore to God when Ron got stabbed, I thought that he was going to say something. Oh my God, Ryan, it it better not be one of the ones you made me, you're making me watch because I don't want to be able to figure it out because that's too just sad. That's just too sad. Yeah, there was there was a moment like that. It was just a very sad moment. I won't even tell you, but is I really thought that there was going to be that something. That does mean like it's one of the ones I'm watching. I can't even remember which ones you're watching, to be honest with you. But I thought there was going to be something like that, and there wasn't. I and, and I didn't know Melinda. Then. I didn't know Melinda was such a soft team and never dare kill off the trio. But I definitely thought that she would have when I first read it. To get back with the purgatory theme for a minute, when she had a. Uh, Harry seeing Sirius, I really thought this was going to have a tie-in with, you know, he had gone through the veil, which made him sort of this great emissary to sort of be in this no man's land. And she didn't go anywhere with that, but I thought that's where it was going. And then I thought it was really interesting that he was like, oh, well, 
it's going to take a little while longer for your mom and dad to get here because they've been dead longer. And so I was like, well, then shouldn't Dumbledore have been at, like, the doorway here rather than Sirius? Yeah, exactly. Or did anyone, like, die that day who maybe would have... Actually, I got nothing for you on that one. That's actually a really good point. I thought it was more like, rather than... Dumb- I mean, I understand why they did Dumbledore in the book. But for this, I mean, if you're talking about, like, an emotional connection to someone that Harry would immediately, you know, his parents have been dead a very long time. He never knew them. Sirius was the first really close person to him who died. And so, to me, it was more of, he's the one who's able to come because that's who Harry would think of first, in in more of a familial sense. Because even though, you know, he was close to Professor Dumbledore, he still saw him as, you know, it was that student mentor, it was it was never a familial kind of relationship. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I know. One thing that I actually thought was interesting there, too, is Dumbledore is always the very powerful, you know, grandfatherly-type figure who will always be there to to hold that role over Harry. I kind of dig the fact that Dumbledore was the one running around playing practical jokes on people then and was too otherwise occupied to come and see Harry. I thought that was... Well, yeah, I mean, seri- of course that that's what's yeah. going to happen. I mean, he's had to be Dumbledore the mature and Dumbledore the all-powerful for, you know, a hundred and something years, so... Of course, he gets a chance to let his hair down a bit, and he's gonna go nuts. No, I did, no, I did love that. And the only, I just want to hit a couple just in my mind here as I'm thinking about this major moments, which I thought were just great. I love the fact that Ginny flew Harry out onto the Quidditch pitch for the last game. I love the fact um, that Ron got turned into an ass by Ginny because he took her on for being Harry and for, be, you know, she. Ron had one of the best lines in this in, in these final chapters. You did what Voldemort never got to do. You broke his spirit. And Ginny turns him into an that ass. And Hermione, in awesome. Hermione, he's scandalized, and he's proud of himself. No, she'll go see him tomorrow. It'll be okay. And he he gets it. He he made a calculated risk, and he pushed the right buttons, and he got it. And I just I thought that was absolutely terrific. Well, I think that's also kind of a sibling thing. I mean, I don't think anybody else would have been able to knock her out of that unless it had been maybe one of the twins or somebody. I mean, that's just, when you have siblings, it doesn't matter how much you like them or dislike them, you know how to push their buttons. Exactly. And I just thought that was absolutely, that was absolutely fantastic. There's, you know what it is? It's, it's, there's such great character moments near the ends of these chapters. Like, another thing that I always remember when I think of this fic is I remember from uh, the epilogue where Harry buys the house on the beach and he puts yellow bricks in the driveway, and no one gets it but Hermione. I just there's little there's little things in here that Melinda definitely puts in because you don't get to see that in canon, and she had no way of knowing that. But you want to know that Harry ended up that way, so I think it's very satisfying yeah. for the reader to to, to to get that complete ending. Like the, like the, another scene that stuck out with me too was in the Great Hall, the Leaving Feast, where you have Dean paint. I forget if he was drawing or painting. I think he was drawing, um, you know, the, the scene in the Great Hall. I don't have enough good things I think I can say about this fic. I think this fic is probably, upon reread, my favorite fic I've read, just because of it hits all of the, the points I want. This is why I read fanfiction, to get these satisfying moments that I didn't get from, from that book. So, <laughs> Oh, shut up. Shut up. Yeah. Every, every yeah. time I go out there and say, I love this, you're like, fanboy. <laughs> No, that's not why I was laughing. Right. I think that right. I think something that people harp on a lot, and I mean, this is something that bothers me when they do that. But you know, they harp on the fact, well, 
this isn't what I would have done, and I didn't get this moment that I wanted in the story. And it's like, well, because if she had gone through and included every moment that everybody wanted to see, that book was already how many pages long? <laughs> Did we really exactly. want to make it longer? <laughs> exactly. I mean, I agree it was very beautiful and very moving, and Melinda has, has long been one of my favorite authors, and I think that this, one of the things that makes her work so interesting is that it always is so readable and there's there are those little emotional and personal touches that you just don't see with some other writers and and it it's you know but i was just saying that you know if, if everybody was going to get what they wanted out of that book it would have been like nine thousand pages long yeah i mean like moments i got out of here like one of the things that absolutely cracked me up was when harry goes to his um when harry goes to his potions newt Snape is absolutely, like, beyond the pale pissed that Harry got Order of Merlin for first class, and he's the one who's been undercover for years. And Harry plays along for just that one moment. He plays the role of the snotty kid who loves being the boy who lived. And Snape, you can picture him, like, pointing at Harry, like, I knew it! I knew it! You all this time have been exactly what I thought. And, and that is, I love that. I love, there is nothing I, I like was, more than Harry pushing Snape's buttons. And he figures out how to push every single button. And there was actually a great line in there where Melinda confirms Harry and Snape finally found something they had in common. They both hate all the attention Harry's getting. And, I, you know, that was just... <laughs> and we could have gotten that from the canon, but we didn't. So the fact that Melinda gave it to us, I think, it is well worth it. Oh, can I just bring up one thing here? The fact that Albus Dumbledore had an affair with Minerva McGonagall, it's what made me scream in the middle of the woods when I went camping and was reading fan fiction, and that was the moment that opened my eyes to the world. So I just want to point that out. It was a very poignant scene. Uh, Harry got... You, you act know, like, Harry like, the, got, like the moment Harry, you yeah. saw eternity. Yeah, and I hate it because it's like Harry got to, you know, give this very, you know, heartfelt goodbye to Professor Dumbledore and thank him for everything he did and, you know, scattered his ashes over Hagrid's hut and the Quidditch pitch. And all I can think of is Minerva McGonagall and Albus Dumbledore. <laughs> so, unfortunately. I think that that <laughs> is disgusting, but probably not for the same reason that you do. Why do you find it disgusting? I always, I hate Dumbledore McGonagall. Okay. I hate it almost as much as Harry Hermione. It's just like, it's one of these ships that pushes my buttons in a wrong way. In a wrong way. I never considered the... the Oh, and Bellatrix Lestrange turned out to be a squib. What? Bellatrix yeah, Lestrange turned awesome. out to be a squib. I thought I missed, like, some missing chapter where, like, it was explained <coughs> that Bellatrix was oh, really, no. like, literally a squib, but was somehow able to do magic. I don't know. Nope. Nope. Just that. But to sort of tie that in with sort of the aftermath of the battle, I thought it was such an interesting choice to basically have him parallel his parents in, you know, like, it's the same Death Eater, the same curse, the same sort of mm-hmm. effect. Yeah. And then this plant then saving his life and then providing this hope that maybe something could be done for his parents. And we don't see it happen, and I don't know if it does or not, but I don't think I've read anything else where they've I've ever seen any hope for Neville's parents, that it's even been considered. I don't think I have either. One thing, I, I don't believe it was this... It was Melinda, and if it was the story, I, I definitely missed them the reread. There was a fic I read once where where the trio and everyone are on the um, Hogwarts Express going home at the end of the year, and they discover that what's the animal Luna's always railing about that she reads in the Quibbler, the thing she's trying to find? Snorkax. Yeah, 
it's in, it's breaking news in the Daily Prophet that they found a herd of them and they've been real all this time. And they all look up at Luna like, what? and she's like, what? I've been telling you this for years. And you're like, oh my god, these things are actually real. Like, there's those moments where, you know, the wall breaks down between the author and, and, the, and the characters and things that you thought weren't real turn out to be real. And it's, it's a similar moment, too, where, you know, this plant that Neville's been walking around with for three years, you know, turns out to be the thing that saves him and could be the thing that saves his parents. So I just think that's kind of, I love it when things are in plain sight like that. In the same token, I like the fact, too, that his parents aren't instantly saved, like Melinda says, and, you know, Remus is still a werewolf, and there's still discrimination, and there's still bad guys, and, you know, Percy's still a jerk, and there, there's things that are consistent, and it makes the, it makes the universe more real. I didn't want to sort of derail us if we were going to be on topic. So I was like, Oh, there's no way we can be derailed. Go for it. Good to see if this is going to go somewhere further before I go on. We talked somewhat about the epilogue and all that. We didn't talk about the grilling. Arthur and his muggle grill. Oh, Arthur, I have that. I have that in my notes. We're, yeah, I love that in the epilogue. Arthur is grilling for everybody, whereas the house elves are really the ones making the food and they, they leave food aside for Arthur just for him to burn. That's funny. <laughs> and like one of the one of the twins sets it off because you know it's a tradition. It's the Weasley bonfire. You know, I don't know. He he has absolutely no idea, and that's just the tradition. I like that. <laughs> I, I thought that was great. It's all these little character moments. I mean, Melinda's so good. Sometimes it's tough to talk about Melinda's stuff because it becomes repetitious. Because we're like, oh, I really love this. Oh, I really love this. Oh, I really love this. And, it, and it, sometimes it's not interesting to listen to this. It's so true. And I've seen I a lot of fics that really, really harp on Hermione and Spew. And although it's often overdone, I felt like there was just enough. It, it made a nod to she still doesn't think this is right. And it's still getting her into, you know, arguments and sending house elves into tears. And But she's not... Is yeah, the, about it is, as she sometimes seems in some fics. She, she has her opinions, but she's mellowed. She's mellowed yeah. in time. And I like the fact that Winky found a home, you know, because again, that's another loose end that not that you get every loose end tied up, but this one made a lot of sense because she is so unhappy in canon. And obviously at this point in canon, we don't know about, about some things, but having Winky find a place where she feels like she fits and she's really happy again and she feels useful and it works out for Harry and it works out for everybody else and you know Hermione's a little whatever but it, it works for everybody and they're better off. One thing I just want to say about the epilogue too I think I said this when we were covering um, the seven Horcrux I made a comment that I liked that epilogue better than I liked this one. Just a style point it's nothing I mean I think Melinda does a great job with both epilogues from this and from her next fic. Um, the one thing about epilogues like this that are difficult for me just as a reader is that when you have a story and you tell 60 some odd chapters within a, you know, one year, two year period, then all of a sudden it's 15 years later. The characters are so different and the perspective is so different. It's, you can't, I, I have difficulty really getting into the characters then because they're so strange and they're so different from how they were before. And it becomes, you know, here's their 27 kids and there's their 27 kids and so much information thrown at you. What I really loved about the seventh Horcrux is you have Harry and Ginny, you know, very close to, um, the time of the story. I think it's only like three or four years. I can't remember. It's very close. Um, it's not a huge jump ahead. But, and Harry has one child, I believe. And you can focus all your attention on that one kid. Just a little bit of a difficulty with this one was, be I, I love the fact that Harry has a whole Quidditch team, you know, 
for his family. I love the fact that Ron and Hermione still argue over Spew and I, you know Percy and his kid, and, and there's these great little character moments there. But that was just a difficulty of mine from the epilogue is that, and it was easier coming from Molly Weasley because there wasn't that great of a shift in her character versus Harry, who went from being a kid to being a grown man. You know, but that was just a, a difficulty. I felt like I was trying to memorize everyone's names and they were flying yeah. over my head. I, I definitely was, agree. There's a really a fine line between epilogues on book seven fix because a lot of them do have them between yeah. having like a nice glimpse in the future and i think the seventh horcrux epilogue does it right i even think the canon epilogue does it right then it becoming like a list of who had what kid and who married who and it'll be like and then justin finch fletchley married bob from hufflepuff and then Susan Bones and Hufflepuff is actually making it places. <laughs> that was a crazy had name. children named Denise and Charlie, and you know, I mean, <laughs> yeah. like that's just yeah. It was it, it, it's probably less interesting just if you're looking. You know, that was that was kind of odd too. It was um, and she actually, I shouldn't. This isn't probably even a fair comparison. She did such a great job at the little character moments that it was huge character moments thrown at you because there were so many different characters in the room that I felt like I wanted to focus on just one kid or I just wanted to focus on one character and they were all there and it was a grand finale and it was a different style from what Melinda was accustomed to, to, to writing. So, But, you know, it was, like, I feel like I'm I'm grading the difference between 100 and a 95. They're both great. I mean, I just want to point out the different styles that she's used between two different picks, but they're both great. I know you touched upon this a little bit, but I just really enjoyed the fact that the epilogue was done from Molly's perspective. I really like uh, fix that is done from Molly's perspective in general. She's not a character who I see it done an awful lot, but it can be done really, really well. And I mean, you even said it, that she is such a steadfast character that, whereas, I mean... Our main characters of Spick are 17, 18 years old. They're going to change a lot in 15 years. But someone who is a full adult, who has children who are adults already, 15 years is going to change their character less. And I think she's right. such a great choice for giving you some continuity. But well, it's- Yeah, and it's the perspective of what she looks for. She knows what it was like when Harry and Ginny almost lost an infant because she lost Charlie. And she lost brothers. So she had that perspective that, like, if that scene were from, you know, Ginny's perspective, Ginny wouldn't have. And she got the perspective, you know, like, when she went to um, Harry and Ginny's house and saw a tiger attacking Harry. It was really Ginny as an animagus. That, the fact that she didn't know that, that Ginny was an animagus in advance, made that scene. So there's these, the fact that it's from Molly's perspective, you get to see what a mom thinks of her kids grown up. And I think that's infinitely more interesting than seeing what kids think about themselves being 10 years older. I- I'm definitely t- glad. The only question I had was Molly wouldn't have been that old then because wizards live a very long time. So I was curious. Yeah, I mean, about, like, I was kind of thrown the out. The leg bothering her made yeah, her seem older. By, um, Luna, um, by, um, Lily. Mo- what is her name? Molly. Molly. Um, <laughs> being like all like arthritis stuff. Like her having she had a, seven kids. Having she had seven th- kids. Maybe she aged more. Well, she she mothered the twins. Maybe she aged more than, than they. If I had those twins, I'd be Oh yeah. She's been older than my years. A question that huh? I'm sort of, I guess, I should save for sometime when Melinda is interviewed is 
I know she feels really strongly about her Harry and and sort of her view on on his character and but also as a mom of boys, if writing this this last bit in the perspective of Molly felt really different to her. Because instead of from the perspective of, you know, all these seventeen year olds running around, which she does an excellent job with and she knows boys are going through this and whatever, but from the being able to write a mature character who is looking at her children. And I I just thought it'd be really interesting at some point to get her thoughts on that. And now, a word from Melinda Leo. And we are back with Melinda Leo. She's back on the podcast, even though she's the little voice who does the closing of every episode, and even though we have her saying brassy balls in episode 62, <laughs> and even though her reading porn on our podcast will live in infamy long after both of us are gone, Melinda is back on the podcast, and her Hi, husband is... Hey, Melinda, and her husband's golfing in the dark. Now, just so we don't have confusion here, we have um, P.S., Harry, Ginny, Lover Extraordinaire with us. Uh, <laughs> Yay, yes. Hey. Jen, too, my work wife, is here. Mike is here. He hey. hasn't eaten in three days. And Sue of Hufflepuff is here. Now, Sue is on pain medication. Oh. I am. <laughs> she sounds utterly miserable. Sue, is it not working? Well, you say I Mike just... hasn't eaten in three days? Well, I asked He's him if he wants to podcast. He relies on Ryan to tell him what to eat. It's all this Chinese food. Well, he'll send me a Skype message. Do I want Chinese or Mexican? And I won't see it for a few hours, and he'll just sit there waiting for me to return. It's awful. (laughs) (laughs) I go on vacation. The poor kid has to go to the hospital. (laughs) Sue, is the medicine not working? Is there, like, a tube that you can unknot? It's been a while since I took it. I worked really hard today moving all kinds of junk out of the chicken yard. So I restrained Do you understand the concept of moderation? No. My mom said, we're going to do this today. And I said, okay, but I'm podcasting at 530. I have to be done. And she said, okay, I think we'll clean out the chicken coop. I'm like, oh. Then she got mad because I was out there swearing and she sent me to the house. You swear? I usually, but I did today. Wow. That's like, well, when Gen 2 started swearing in the last podcast, that was awful. Oh, Mike, if you have questions, you can just ask her directly. That's all right. Okay. Mike's, a- Mike's asking if he has to submit his questions through me. It's all right. Just, you know, <laughs> keep it clean, Mike. This uh, is not a presidential debate. Now, here's the thing. Melinda, you and I go way back, and, 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 and we've talked extensively, and we've done one of these interviews before. So while there's many questions I have, I know that we're surrounded by, you know, a well-balanced panel of people that, you know, will ask those questions eventually. So I would like to take the road less travel tonight and ask you the, the, the types of questions there's no way you could have possibly anticipated for this podcast. Ryan, what are you doing? <laughs> and, and I would like to start off with this one. Uh, Melinda Leo, if you were a farm animal, which one would you be? <laughs> and why? <laughs> Never really gave it much thought, right? That's not one of my questions. <laughs> I jumped out there. I jumped out. Question that everyone had to answer. Yes, and who would you turn gay for if you don't mind my asking? Um, I think I, I had a conversation with Keza on that. I think I I, I like um, she was horrified. Bellatrix. What's her uh, Helena Bonham oh, Carter? Oh, is that her name? Oh, I, thank I, God. I, I think I, yeah. I think she does a great job. I thought you Bellatrix. meant actually Bellatrix. I thought so too. No. I'm like, oh my God, Melinda Leo, like. <laughs> Found her a flop everywhere. Has <laughs> like a picture of Bellatrix on her nightstand that she kisses every night before bed. Oh God! We almost Bellatrix. just destroyed the Phantom again. 
you know what? I don't even care about the farm animal anymore. That just you're also in my book. All right. Um, yeah, I don't know farm animal. I think I'd like to be a cat that could just sleep in the sun a lot. I would. I would enjoy that. Well, I'm I'm feeling very cats vindicated. on farms, right? Yes. yes. Thank you for not saying chicken. <laughs> That's how they keep the mice out of the barns. Sue has been cleaning chicken houses or cages or or, or whatever. I live in Massachusetts. How do I know what you do with the, with the chickens? All right, Sue, you were on pain medication. Would you like to jump off the uh, question period tonight? Okay. Um, do you have a special place that you write? Nope. I just sit at my desk. I used to have um, my computer downstairs in a playroom down in the basement, and that's where I wrote Power of Emotion, Curse of the Dam, the whole thing. But by the time I was writing The Seventh Horcrux, we moved my desk up here, so it's in the living room. It looks stupid in the living room, but at least my husband and I could compromise because he'll watch The Sopranos or some mafia-related thing on TV. I'll sit at my computer and type away so we can still talk. <laughs> Oh, that's so that nice. That's nice. I like that. I'm curious if there are certain things that you have to have around you when you write. I have several Oxford dictionaries, and I never sit down to write unless I have them stuck at my side. Is there anything like that that you have to have while you're I writing? Am, I am a scribbler. I write, like I get little ideas constantly, and I, scri- I have sticky notes. I know Jen hates sticky notes, but I'm a queen. I've got sticky notes all over this desk everywhere, all over my... I've got notebooks with sticky notes. Like, I don't even know if I've written on the pages, mostly the they're just full of sticky notes. In the shower, I'll have a pad of sticky notes because I don't know why I get my best ideas in the shower, but I do. Always I think of the best conversations. When I get out, I can jot them down on my sticky note. It's true. Um, and, and, and my bottle of Mike's Hot Lemonade, of course, for since Ryan We knew uh, it! <laughs> we knew it! And I drink, too. Now, Melinda, have you brought more bottles with you since you've started working with Polyphic Weekly? Has that been exasperated? Oh, I didn't drink before I started Polyphic Weekly. <laughs> Let me ask you a question. I have to jump to the front of the line again. Forgive me, those of you who I just walked over. Now, Melinda, I've helped you with some beta work over the past month. Now, on a scale of 1 to 10, how much did you want to kill me after that experience? No, actually, you you do get stuck on little details. The comma will go. The comma will go. But but you're, you're actually very good. You make me think of things that I didn't think of before, but I think, to be honest with you, I think that's what's making this one go so slow because you send me in different directions that I was originally intending to go with, and it takes a while for my, my brain to get caught up with the new direction, and then I'll start in on it, and then you'll say something different, and I'm like, huh, maybe I'll do that, but then it'll still take me a while to work out how I want to do it there, so it's actually been very good. Well, the thing I hate about the way I, I apparently help Beta, because Melinda's, this is the first time I've ever tried to do this, is I'll come up with, I'll, I'll be like, you know what, I don't like this I think maybe it should go this way. And Melinda's like, hmm, you know, that's a good idea. So she'll spend three or four weeks and change the whole story around. And then I'll be like, you know what? I think I was wrong. I think I like this better <laughs> the other way. Can you flip that back? <laughs> so it, I'm just, when she, you know, in her senior citizenhood releases her new story, you can all thank me for the, for the What's it about? So we uh, don't get any details? Come on, Melinda. Big brassy balls. It's a post-DH story, but everybody's writing a post-DH story right now. So I'm, I'm still just trying to work out to make it different. That's Melinda um, being political. She's <laughs> keeping it close to her vest. Well, I'm keeping it close because I'm only, what, seven chapters into it. It, yeah. it hasn't completely taken shape yet, so I have to just wait and see what, what's Well, it makes sense go. because you don't want you don't want to say what you're doing and then have some mediocre writer go jump on your flat bunny, so. Personal experience there, Jen? No. Okay. <laughs> 
<laughs> Mike was trying to stoke the fire. And I have to say this too, I, from what little I've read, Melinda has not lost her touch, so we're going to have her back on the podcast in like five <laughs> years or whatever. We're going to do this whole damn thing all over again. No, we're not, no. <laughs> well, I, just, I just know, Mike, to answer that question, the one that I'm writing right now is really different than pretty much everything that I've seen post-DH. And so I'm kind of protective of the plot line because I don't want somebody else to ruin it because it's not really being done very much. I actually got sidetracked the past few days, a little Christmas plot bunny that I had in my head since last Christmas, and I kind of shelved it because it was too late to write anything. So I pulled it out again, only I haven't shown it now, this one, to anybody, and I'm not until I'm done with it. I will say this, too, without giving any details or any clues or any tidbits of anything. If I could write a story, which I wouldn't do because I'd probably hate my own work, but if I could write a story and I could like a story, it would probably be the story Melinda's writing now. She's You're going to be really happy with it when you see it. So. And there will be a comma in there. You will wonder why it's there. Just let it go. <laughs> any attention? You and my regular beta can find it out over the comma, Ryan. Send me the email. Well, it was hilarious. I would not let it go. I was an ass. It was terrible. It was awful. I'm like, Melinda, I can't help but notice. You forgot to take the comma. All right. Now we're off topic, and Melinda is actually in the room. This is awful. This is terrible. You said you wrote this after... Book five came out, right? So I'm curious, one part being, has your perception of Harry and Ginny in general, not in your story per se, but just them as characters and people, how much and how so has that been changed by the subsequent books since then? And then I'm also wondering, too, if now in hindsight, now that the series is finished, is there anything you look back on you go, boy, I wish I'd read that, or I wish I'd known that before I wrote Power of Emotion? The last part, the, the things I wished I'd known, that, of course, is I, I can't even think of anything specific right now, but I know that I've said that. It's like, oh, if I'd known that, I could have done this differently or whatever. Harry and Ginny, no. Order of the Phoenix did it for me. That was, I, I was convinced once I read Order of the Phoenix that it was going to be Harry and Ginny. So I was thrilled with Half-Blood Prince that, that they had moved along. Ron changed. I love Ron. Ron's one of my favorite characters. I think he takes a lot of grief, but I really do love Ron. Sorry about that. <laughs> In this one, I had Ron very accepting of Harry and Ginny as a couple. And I like Ron that way. I like reading stories with him that way. But it's just not how canon went. His protectiveness came out more, and he, he, he had some attitude. And I think any story that comes out now, even though I'd like to go back to Ron being written this way, I think it has to start with the point where he's going to have to come to, to terms with it on his own, with them as a real couple once it's all over, before you can make him go back to the accepting guy that I like to see him as. We actually did your stories in ridiculous order. We did Seven Horcrux first, and then we went back and we did verse two. Deathly Hallows has been released. The whole story has been released. Now, we've talked before. You tend to tell a different type of story than Joe does. Now, we all know you've copied, like, lines of dialogue. Well, you haven't copied lines of dialogue. Joe <laughs> obviously plagiarized you. <laughs> But, you know, whole chunks of the story are virtually mirrored in, in what you write. So from the substantive plot, you get you know much of it right. But although your story does go off in many different directions that Joe doesn't go off in. If you, for whatever reason, if you were Joe's beta, and when, you know, de- here's Deathly Hallows. Here's the story Joe wants to write. And she delivers it to you, which I still somehow believe that she did. And she says, tell me what you think. What would you wish was different in the canon that maybe when you write fan fiction, you try and go off in different directions? Like, what is it? Well, you know, I like 
the romance. I like the interpersonal relationships. I like the emotional side of it all. And I obviously, if I had any chance of seeing DH or any say in it whatsoever, we would have gotten the scene after where Harry and Ginny reunite. I, I, I like to read her take on that scene, but that's just not what the story she was telling. I mean, she'll tell you that they got together, but she's not going to tell you how. I would like the how. There's a line in Deathly Hollows after Harry, Seamus, they cast the patronesses to get rid of Dementors at the end there. Harry's running to the Shrieking Shack. He said he's something like, I don't have time to think about that now. I had to wall it all up, put it all behind a wall, and I'll think about it later. And that's kind of the basis of this new story that I'm writing, that one line, and I had it quoted in the story. I can't think of it now. Eventually, he's going to have to deal with all that. That's the thing that I find most interesting, because even if you look at Deathly Hallows, you have Harry casting the Cruciatus Curse. You have the trio casting the Imperius Curse. Hermione randomly shoving her parents off to Australia. They're going to go live with Keza for a while until the war is over. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's all these... When you read fan fiction, there's stuff we jump all over. You know, that's very out of character and that's very abrupt. But there's there's throwaway lines in the canon that are just you know, huge character shifts. And they don't deal with it, the characters, because there's too much going on. There's, you know, spells flying over their heads and they have to duck and everything and, and they don't have time to deal with it. So I think that's actually one of the more interesting things you get out of fan fiction is you get the next day and you get the, the, the fallout to all that, which is, I think, why your stories are so popular, because they deal with that. that. That's what I like to read. When I'm looking for a story, that's what I like to read, so it, it's, it's what I like to write about, the character stuff. I wonder, too, if you don't mind answering, I guess clearly you're a Harry Ginny shipper. I guess clearly you're a Harry Ginny shipper before it comes out in can. Well, you know, yeah, you finish my sentence, why... She's a snarry guy, come on. No! Before it came out in canon was where I was going with that, Mr. Ryan. When you're at the point of writing this story, right after book five comes out, what's your argument and what's your viewpoint and why Harry and Ginny are so good for each other and so sort of, in your mind, destined to come together? I wasn't a Harry Ginny shipper all the way through the first four books. I wasn't a Harry Ginny shipper. I wasn't a Harry Ginny shipper. Chief, quick test. Who was the bad guy? Um, I mean, uh, um, you know, it was obvious from the beginning that Hermione was going to be with Ron and Harry was going to be with Jenny. First fanfic that I read was Psychic Serpent that put Harry and Hermione together at the start. And I remember reading it and, and just being very uncomfortable, like, no, that's not going to work. That's not, you know, it, that just didn't work for me at all. Later in that story, he ends up with Ginny. And I was just like, I hadn't really even given that all that much thought. And I was like, oh, well, maybe, you know, I don't I still wasn't convinced. And I read a few more fan fictions, but then Order of the Phoenix came out. And it might have been that the idea of, idea of, idea of Harry Ginny was already in my head from fan fictions. I don't know. But to me, if you read the first few chapters of Order of the Phoenix... Ginny is mentioned in every scene Harry's in, even if she's making a face, if she's helping her mother do dishes, if she's sitting on the floor playing with the cat, no matter what, they just keep mentioning her. And it doesn't matter what she's doing. It doesn't matter if she has anything to do with the scene at all. It's mentioned where she is, what she's doing. And for me, that was, okay, well, Harry's noticing this girl because there's no reason why to keep putting her in there if he's not paying attention. Even he, the character himself, is still after Cho at that point, but he's noticing and there's one scene where it talks about the firelight to touching your hair or something. And it, I mean, for Harry, who's kind of oddish at that yeah. point, I mean, it was nearly poetry coming from him. It's like, <laughs> hello. So to me, that just was like, 
I, I just never could understand how someone couldn't see that. Now, did you have an epiphany moment when you realized it, or was it just slowly it built and you're like, oh. as, I, as I went through the book, it just, and then by the end, Ron, given the significant glance about finding somebody better, I was like, oh, okay, there you go. And it just, to me, it was like, all right. Significant so- glance. Can we do something else? <laughs> go somewhere else with- <laughs> but I guess I wonder too, like, not just at what point do you become convinced, but I'm, I'm thinking about Jen's explanation the other week. What is it about their characters themselves that makes them such good fits for each other, even before they would realize it themselves. Does that make sense at all? Well, I think she's got an adventurous streak in her that that he would be drawn to, because he obviously does himself. Mm -hmm. Once I decided it's going to be Harry and Ginny, I went back and read through the canon, and there's several things like Harry, I always like Harry's humor. He's got a very sarcastic, he deals with a lot of situations with a very dry British kind of humor. The very few times they mentioned Ginny, even in the earlier books, it might have been in book three, she and Harry catch each other's eye and share a grin over, I think, Percy chasing after Penelope or something That's like that. Interesting. I never thought it was interesting. But she's got that same humor that it's kind of, actually, it can be a little fighting at times. I'm going to go reread the books now, too, and see. Well, not right now. <laughs> no, no, I'll, I'll just go start reading during podcast. Because everyone else is doing it. Yeah, I know. I have to start reading the Lavender Brown fic, because I'm, I'm up on that podcast, and that's yeah. coming up real soon. There's moments in there that you may feel a little uncomfortable. I just want you to remember your high school and college days. Keep that in the forefront of your mind as you read it. Actually, I've read, the, read it before. I just, it's been a long time, so I have to reread it. I literally paint Danielle off in the middle of a date to let me keep <laughs> but I just want to, I want to say one thing here, Melinda. You and I obviously, you know, apparently are very powerful people, and you know what I'm talking about, and I know what you're talking about. And in the what event that you about? don't know what I'm talking about, I'm going to send it to you in a private message. Jesus. Humble Melinda, do you agree with me after reading the, the message that was just attached? <laughs> All right, Melinda will be with us shortly. I just wanted, I wanted to say this. Now, you're writing, you know, your quiet little story, and every other fan fiction author in the history of the world who wrote about Harry Ginny, you have them have a fight. And <laughs> Harry is a moron, as he always is, and he cannot see with his two feet in front of him. And Ginny is a Weasley, and she's feisty, and she looking out for his best interests, but he is blockhead and all that stuff. And they eventually get back together and they kiss. And that happens. Nick, he has the Harry Ginny shipper, so it was all worth it for that scene. Yeah, now, P.S., let's get into this here. What exactly happened? Because you've read stories, you've read Melinda's stories before, and and I don't recall you becoming a Harry Ginny shipper. Now, this is kind of like, you know, when CIA agents go rogue. I'm 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 gonna go rogue here. This was the first time that I've read it, and it seemed like it worked. Because every other time I've read it, it seemed forced. In canon, it seemed forced. Because say the seventh Horcrux is coming off of canon, it didn't really show how they got together because they were already together. So that's a, which is obviously understandable. And then maybe something like Coven of Echoes. It seemed forced. No foundation. Because I'm not somebody who thought that Harry Ginny was a logical leap from, say, Order. Or even anywhere in the canon. Read it again now. It's just not something I I thought until I read this. And then, I mean, if Power of Emotion had come instead of Half-Blood Prince, then I would obviously be like Melinda. But, I mean... That would be interesting. She could, like, dress like you, wear a wig, walk around. That'd be nice. P.S. Just do me a favor here, right? I want you to just close your eyes, okay? 
Yeah. Empty your mind. Take a deep breath. Mm -hmm. And just see what happens, alright? Harry was stunned by her words. He wasn't even sure how it happened. One minute they were standing opposite each other, screaming, and the next he had grabbed her upper arms and pulled her close to kiss her passionately. She responded in kind, and the air was charged with electricity as he clung to her as fiercely as she did him. Did anything just happen? Was there, like, an electrical reaction around you? I know that was it. Well, I, I, well, I know. We've done this before, but... J.K.R.'s words, Harry and Ginny are passionate people. I never really got Harry, because I've never been able to get in Harry's head. It's been really always been difficult for me to understand Harry. I don't know why. It just always has been. I think when she says they're passionate people, it just kind of goes over my head, because I'm just kind of like, okay, she says Harry is this. She says Harry is that. She can say Harry is that. I don't know, because I don't know this Harry guy. I mean, I can't even put it into words, but for some reason, just the way Melinda had them come together, and just the way Melinda wrote their relationship was the first time I ever believed it. And then by by just the fact that I could believe it, I believed it retroactively. Do you think it was because it was slow? I mean, for most fan fictions, I think I took 20, 21 chapters, something like that, to actually get them together, wasn't it? I mean, I don't know. 29. For, for a fan fiction, I mean, they're usually together quicker. Definitely that. I think the problem I have with depictions, or the problem that I had, was that it was too fast because I didn't think they had a basis because they didn't they don't really know each other. This is Ron's little sister. I mean she could have been anyone. You know, it's to me from what I was from how I perceived the canon up until Half Blood Prince, Harry Ginny was just as logical as Harry Padma. For me, after Order of the Phoenix, I was convinced that this is the way it was going to go. And I still continue to read fan fictions, actually even more after Order of the Phoenix, because I, I just was desperate for more after that. But the Harry Ginny fix that I read, it was always, almost always, like he was almost longing for her even when he was still at Privet Drive. And so that was what led me even to write this to begin with, because I was like, no, wait a minute, there has to be something there that gets mm -hmm. him. Like, I thought that was where he was going, but I, I wanted to write him getting to that point. So, P.S., behind one door, Harry Ginny. Behind the other door, Slughorn Dumbledore. Which door do you open? Slughorn Dumbledore. I mean, I went from hate to love, but it's still irrevocably number one. Sorry, Melinda. Mel Mel Melinda, no one hey, could I, come I find it fascinating from... how obsessed you are with Slughorn. <laughs> I do, because I don't... And I wonder if, like you're saying, you, you can't get in Harry's head, and it's like, well, so much is written about him. For me, he's the easiest one to get into. But Slughorn is, is a wide-open book, really. We don't know all that much about him, but you obviously have attached to that character, and I always find it interesting. It's like, there's a lot of people who attach to some of the lesser-known... Didn't we have somebody on the, the site once who was Cho-obsessed? And it was just like, and I wonder if it's because they're so wide-open that you get to put so much more of you into them. I don't know, because I always see you say he's wide open, but I can find little details that give you insight into who he is. Like, I don't think I make up all that much. Like, obviously, you make up details, like, because we don't know, you know, his mother's name or something like that. Right. But, I mean, there's stuff that it, maybe I could do this with Harry, and then I could write Harry Ginny. But, um, there's just... Oh, I'd you know, like to read a Harry Ginny story you wrote, yeah. I would like to write a Harry Ginny story, but I just can't get a hold of Harry. I, I, I have tried, I have... Try it from Ginny's point of view, I, I have fits and starts from Jenny's point of view, but it's not really going anywhere. The thing is, it's like, I don't see most of what I do with Horace as making stuff up. I see it 
as pulling all the little details that are throughout the two books that he's in and putting that, like throwing them all up on the board and seeing what kind of man that makes and extrapolating, you know, backwards to see what kind of young man would have become that person that he is that we see in the canon. I mean, maybe that's just the way my brain works. That's kind of more abstract, but that's how I see it. It's kind of cool to see how different writers go about things. I have like 73 questions from Melinda, but I'm going to fire off the second most important one now. The first important one was being obviously your conversion of of PS. Number two, Keza or I, who do you like better? Excuse (laughs) you, me, me, me. Clearly, I never said who do you like best. I said of Keza, who is sadly not here. You're all special in your own unique ways. Oh, you were such a mother of multiple (laughs) children. Everyone wins on Potterfic Weekly. This is like socialism over here at Potterfic. Everyone's the socialist. Sorry, we're a little close to the elections. Melinda for president. (laughs) You're a winner in your own special way. Are you kidding me? My husband said that to me the other day. He says, you could never run for any kind of public office. They'll get onto your Harry Potter stuff and, 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 and didn't, you know, he knows that I wrote the sex scene in the last one. It wasn't perfect for climax, and he wanted to be inside her when that happened. The next thing Ginny knew, Harry... That's so good. The dolls go boom. Harry had positioned himself above her. So much later, like, so Jesus. I and her arms around his neck. Even as they continue to kiss passively, Harry, I want you to... <laughs> Big brassy balls. I'm like, oh my god, you're right. <laughs> well, I hate to tell you, but that story got packaged and like, delivered to millions of people worldwide. <laughs> and they're all reading chapter 32. Oh my god. Well, that was the... Well, okay, Melinda, thank you so much. I almost forgot to ask you the most important question, and I want to thank you, Melinda, because without you right there, I would have forgotten it. What's up with the erections. <laughs> Did you not I know? Really think, I don't really think it was an erection, Ryan. It was a tightening in his jeans. No, it was something erection. like that. Oh, Gen 2, don't talk to me about tightening in the jeans. Come on. This is, I'm so, he's like walking around holding a book. <laughs> I didn't honestly realize that there were quite as many as you're telling me that there are. I'm going to have to go back and look at the book. But I don't remember there a being a plethora. Guy, you know, she has that kind of effect on him. I actually have someone, I have Ray actually rereading all of your collected works, counting erections for me. <laughs> she, she counted like four or five in POE, but she ran out of time to do it. Well, it's it's not like she writes in the story, and then Harry had an erection. It's like, you know, Ginny comes in the room, so he has to roll over and he can't move for a while. It's, it's I'm like, hmm. Because the main joke was, I was picturing, because as we've always said, Melinda's work you know, is it's very similar in feel to what Joe Rowling writes. So I was picturing little Sally reading her book. You know, that she just got from the bookstore with Daddy and looking up with her innocent little eyes and saying, why can't Harry roll over, Daddy? <laughs> just like his eyes bugged on. She, she was writing, obviously, for children, so she couldn't write it. But I know it had to have been in her mind on how... She, she, she wrote every stage of, of, of growing up. It had to be in there. Melinda is the queen of characterization, Ryan. You know that she is going to put that in there because Harry is a man. And when the wind blows... He's going to have a direction. <laughs> I'm not sure I like the way she just said Harry is a man. 
Google them all the time. <laughs> I like that. But oh, well, then you- maybe you'd rather have <laughs> Never mind. Harry and Panties. Like uh, we did last week. <laughs> I don't even want to know what you people do when I'm not on the podcast. It was Melinda, scary. I just want to say, Melinda, I just want to say one thing to you. If if erections are your thing, you're gonna love the Lavender Brown series. <laughs> <laughs> and and there's even more stories available if you have a password. Okay, yeah, so, they haven't sent my damn really password. How am I supposed to get a password? I, they haven't sent mine. Oh God, you can borrow mine. Do you have to be mind. over twenty one, probably. For those sorts of no, things. No, 18. 18. You gotta be over 18. I'm 18. Mike, how old do you think I am? You're you're in college. How old am I? Uh oh. You're in college. Not an age. You're <laughs> right. I'm very glad that Mike did that because I was thinking in my mind he can go on the forum and see how old PS is. There was that unfortunate moment where he was trying to find my birthday and mistook it for my age and had to rush to get my birthday. <laughs> what happened there? Melinda Leo starring as Minerva McGonagall. Catch her. We're still doing serious questions or are we on like silly questions? We are doing everything. Oh, yeah, you yeah, meant yeah, like a question serious. about serious. Yeah, that's what I thought too. See, <laughs> Uh, my brain is way too Harry Potter obsessed. I'm like, there he is. Oh, we haven't talked about him. And I'm like, Mike, it's too soon. Too soon since the death. Too soon. <laughs> okay, I think since we're talking about the story, you know, we're pretty entrenched in talking about the fic right now. Yes. I think I want to know what Melinda thinks these characters are doing now. If she had a glance into their lives at this moment, you know, say four or five um, years later, what characters? do you think they're doing? They're having sex. <laughs> 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 All of them. <laughs> I can honestly say I didn't expect her to answer that. Oh, I did. I did. Well, here, this is the thing with Melinda Leo. This is the thing with Melinda. And we're going to get into Keza, too. We're going to get into Keza. Because I love the fact that I'm running neck and neck with Keza right now on the popularity meter. And every week she's like, and Melinda knocked him down the stairs. So that that's really concerning me that I'm like neck and neck with the woman who is like, you You're know, throwing things at Melinda Leo. No, Australia is yelling at me for saying that I gave her a hard time in a review for knocking him down the stairs. But I did the same thing to him in power of emotion. It the knock him down the stairs. Oh, so no, Melinda, well, she's Melinda, Melinda, Melinda. Melinda is- can, can I ask a question about that? Because nobody seemed to understand, but I understand. I, I think Melinda's badly mischaracterizing what she actually wrote. But go ahead with your question, and I'll be in the wings just in case. <laughs> Why do you love torturing him? And you're preaching to <laughs> Because I do it too, but nobody understood. Nobody, nobody else understands. She understood if I deep, yes. if I likened it to Doctor Who, but I don't ever see it as torturing him. It's just. I know, I know. If you're going to make it all happy, happy, you know, like, all right, so we're not going to have Voldemort after Harry anymore, and we're not going to. That's a fluff story, and I get bored with fluff stories. Now, Melinda, I like stuff may- in my stories, but I don't want the whole thing happy. It's a Harry right. Potter story. It's it's action adventure. Harry's got to get beat around, and then <laughs> there's got to be something to make it better. That just that's what I want to read. So so that's what I write for other people, and obviously somebody else likes it. All right, now let's let's just look at what you just let's throw it up on the board here. What you just said. <laughs> now you made reference to in Poe Keza over there, evil little ke- horns on top of her head, beating me in popularity polls. That Keza knocked him down the stairs, and you made reference to. And we're gonna put the quote right up here on the board that you also knocked him down the stairs. Now that is actually. 
actually not entirely accurate. What happened was Harry dove down the stairs defending his friends from incoming fire at Diagon Alley. When Death Eater Bellatrix is firing and he dives down the stairs. Now, what actually happened, and correct me if I'm wrong, because you actually did write the story, I believe at one point the Death Eaters blew out Harry's kneecaps so he was <laughs> unable to, to walk, and I believe he, he needed to reach, but, but they broke his knees and, and yeah. dehydrated him for like, for like 72 hours. And well, that's tried- not torture. <laughs> well, that's always the thing. It is torture. I don't ever see it as torturing him, but I can never understand. Like, people have Harry kidnapped. I think you guys have talked about that. Like, why do you have him kidnapped? I don't think it was a far stretch going from Goblet of Fire, what happened there, to think that that, that could happen. But then I agree with so you, many Melinda. stories that have the Death Eaters capture him, and then they just, like, they put him in a cell, they leave him alone, they wait for Voldemort, whatever. But, I mean, these Death Eaters, Voldemort, we've seen him punishing them when things don't go right for him. And Harry is a big one that made things not go right for Voldemort all along. I can't help think that the Death Eaters are going to want to take some of that out on Harry because they've taken a lot of abuse because he keeps managing to escape. So for me, just reality-wise, if they suddenly have Harry within their grasps, they're not going to just offer him some tea. No, I, I do agree with Out that. Out of the character. Death Eaters are never going to offer Harry tea. I'm absolutely <laughs> with you. I'm a card-carrying member. You're preaching to the choir. Every time Harry's just gotten away, you know they're the ones who are getting crucioed and, and crucioffed and everything. They're the ones who are, who are suffering for it. So I'm absolutely with you. I'm absolutely with you. Now... I've read lots of fix for they can Okay, wait one second. My dog's here whining at me to go out. Just let me let the dog out. It'll take two seconds. I'll be right back. Her, one second. That's two seconds. Mike, did you just, Mike, did you just say that you had read lots of fix where the Death Ears give Harry tea? Yeah, and things like that because they're trying all the well, fix he's to, on all their the dark side, Harry pick. Right? Well, no, he's not on this side yet, but they're trying to like corrupt him to the dark side. So they're always like, oh, we'll give you like plush pillows, this fancy room, you know, house elf service. <laughs> And all that stuff to try to weaken him to uh, Voldemort's argument. Sorry, I'm back. I don't know if I've ever told you this, Mike, but you have really weird taste in fanfic. Bah. We were just saying Mike actually reads fix where the Death Eaters actually do offer him some tea. So oh, yeah, because that's just what's going to take convince Harry to turn to the dark side, right? When he goes to the burrow, he's shoved in the room with Ron. It's very bright in there. <laughs> he snores all the time. There's limited laundry <laughs> services. I mean, come on. <laughs> the ghoul's right above and him. he loves the, the burrow. How come we've never seen a fic where they try to turn Voldemort to the good side? How come it's always I, I have I have a pick like that too. Melinda, Do you? I've read it. Do you want a copy of it? I've spoken about it many times on the podcast, Melinda. It's a wonderful story. Let me send it over to you. Um, I have a pick Scott gave me where it's Harry goes back in time to. Who is it? That like, one? I haven't. I need to read that one. I, I'm not going to give anything away, but the, the cliche plot where you know everyone's dead in the war, so I'm going to go back in time to when Tom Riddle's a kid. And oh, kill him then. I thought we covered this on the podcast. Sir. He can't grow up to Voldemort, but when Harry goes back and sees like orphan Tom Riddle at age of, like seven, he can't make himself kill him. So instead, he adopts him. I don't know. I'm if sure he's seven years good. old, he's still a creepy little child. I just have to share that with everyone. Back, yeah, I love back. the kid that they have for the movie in the little uh, clips. He's really good. I was like, oh, I, you know what? He's part- that good. Not just you know in that clip, but in the whole the, thing. The thing I love about the movie um, Half Blood Prince is coming out is, as everyone here knows, my favorite character from the books is actually Nigel. I love the scene from Half-Blood Prince where he's at the burrow on fire. I can't wait for the movie. I can't wait. I love what they do to Slughorn in that movie. Mike, it's Nigel kind of a morph seven. between Colin Mike, and Dennis. Like, the, yes. the actor who plays 
Colin is like six foot three and a punk rocker. <laughs> so I don't think he's coming back to the movies. So I think they. I think they just turned Nigel into Colin. They cared enough to not call him Colin because he wasn't Colin, but it's even dumber that they called him Nigel. Is anyone else, every time they see him, go, it's Nigel with the Brie? Am I the only one? Apparently I'm the only one. Mm. All right. Yeah, Someone out there. You know, we have hundreds of listeners. Maybe at least three of them know what I just said. Okay. And I'm with you. I think if they got Harry, they would beat the ever-living snot out of them. Now, some point when you were trying to write this and get your creative juices flowing, you had to have made a list somewhere of the worst ways they could possibly torture Harry. There's got to be a piece of paper somewhere. And Probably. I've got notes everywhere. Actually, I came across my original Power of the Emotion notebook not all that long ago. It was originally supposed to be 18 chapters. That didn't happen. How'd that work out? Because there was like seven yeah. chapter 33s, I think. Uh, you know me. I'm electronically challenged. I don't take care of that site myself. That's <laughs> true. <laughs> if you actually go to melindaleo.com, there's a link there for our seven horror crux coverage. It's great. Yeah, Let me ask you this. Is it possible? I was going to ask her to take that down, but then I figured if they went looking for it, then they'd, must, they'd discover <laughs> this one. So then there you go. Yeah. Now, let me ask you this, because I'm trying to get an idea of how you write. Is it possible that at one point you decided they were going to beat Harry with his belt, and then you got in the shower, and you had your little post-it notes, and you're, and you're like, oh my god, they're, they're going to blow out his kneecaps, I need to get out of the shower, and you're running around the house with like a towel in your hair, and you just have to write this down. Like, is it possible <laughs> that you were trying to outdo yourself with the worst possible ways they could beat up little Harry? No, I, I bet you, I don't remember how the kneecap, I, it just, I knew once he escaped, they had to do something that they're going to want to keep him there. I could bet, and I, I can't guarantee this, but like I told you, Leo is, is a mafia movie obsessed. He loves mafia movies. I hate them. But I probably something was on there that somebody was breaking somebody's kneecaps, and I was like, all right, I'll do that. And that's where it came, I, I would bet that that's where it came from. All right. Now, my last question on, on Torture Gate. And again, obviously, I'm with you. I think it's necessary for the plot. It'd be too stupid if they tie them to a pole and, you know, like, they all should have tied them to the train tracks. Exactly. Poke his eyes out. Right. <laughs> no, no, Aspen got there first, Mike, unfortunately. <laughs> but I have a question. Every time you did something to Harry... Yes, I have a wonderful image now of the Harry tied to the train tracks. It's <laughs> like Lois Lane and Superman. He has to come and save him this time, yeah. Superman's <laughs> flying down. Now, every time you did something to Harry, did you have this little mental image, Harry, or perhaps like a little doll on the desk that you mentally or, you know, maybe physically just patted on the head saying, don't worry, I do this because I love you. Is that possible? I do have little Harry on my desk. I just picked him up right here. He's a little, um, little Chamber of Secrets Harry. They had little kids toys that came up. We had all of them, so uh, I don't know what happened to all the other guys, but Harry still sits here on my desk. Did you, like, turn them around when you wrote those scenes? (laughs) I did have a hard time writing those scenes, but scenes like that don't come all at once. Like, I'll just kind of loosely write something, and then later I'll go back and add the detail. And it takes, especially for something like that, it it takes a while to actually get it all in. Do you write out of order? Because like you just said, I know for me it's hard to write scenes like that all at once. Like, scenes that are tough on the characters. You don't really want to have all that at once because I just feel bad for them. So I will... uh, 
I do right out of order. Like, I'll write, like, a happy scene that comes later to, like, counteract the effects of... I tend to be a little OCD. Big surprise, I'm sure. But I cannot, cannot move past a scene until the one in front of it is in there. So I might not fully write it out, but I have to have something before I can move to the next scene. Even if I know exactly what I want to do with the next scene, I have to make myself finish. So I do kind of write in order, but the details go in later. The thing I like the best is the dialogue. So a lot of times I'll just strictly write dialogue without any, you know, who said what or anything, just straight dialogue, no quotation marks, no punctuation, nothing, just just that, get that out first. And then it's easier to go back once I have the dialogue. So like, all right, how would he say this or what would be to let you know what they're thinking? Those little details would come in later. Harry and the torture, even I couldn't get it all in the first time. Later it comes out, I think it's not even until Curse of the Damned that I saved some of the stuff that was happening and I put it in a dream that, that Ron went into, you know, of what was going on in there. What was the hardest scene you've ever... Killing Charlie. That was the... I had the hardest time killing Charlie. I, I, I don't like to hurt the Weasleys. I love the Weasleys. <laughs> I really, really struggled with, with killing Charlie in, in Curse of the Damned. Have you ever considered writing um, an actual novel? Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you think you might? I, I, I'd buy it. Well, thank you. I, 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 I've had people say that, and I really would love for you to buy it if I could just write the damn thing. Maybe I should give it, you my here, idea it, and let you write I play it. With, I wish I could make it flow the way I can fan fiction. And I don't know why it, it doesn't work the same way. I just cannot make it work the same way. I wish I could. Don't, don't feel bad, Melinda. I'm the same way. I mean, people, I think people put too much of an emphasis on fan fiction being a stepping stone to being a real writer. And I really hate that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, sorry, that's my... 200 pages are not real. They're just, you know... Yeah, it really gets me, but... And I just can't do original fiction. I just can't do it. Well, it's, a, it's an original character. It's a character that I loved as much as Harry. I really wish I could. I just so far haven't. I just want to say one thing, because you had just mentioned the killing of Charlie. Now, obviously now, we all know you. You've been uncovered, you know, and, and we put the spotlight <laughs> on you for many weeks. You are Melinda Leo, lover of Harry, lover of Ron, lover of Weasleys, who Harry may get beat up and he may be comatose for three to five chapters at the end of everything you write, but Harry will survive and he will have lots of sex and babies. I didn't know that <laughs> when I first read your stuff. I will repeat. I'm in the woods in Maine. Now, it's this little campground in Waterford, Maine, home of Walmart. Every, you know, there's like 17 Walmarts up there. And just so you know, I just went up there this past year, and I'm a big politics guy, and Barack Obama was announcing his running name. And I'm literally running through the woods. No, there's like a Wi-Fi signal way in the distance. I'm running with my laptop on my head. Like, trying to get a signal so I can tap it to see who the running mate was. So, I just want you to understand, I'm in the middle of the woods, and all I brought with me a few years ago was my pocket PC with Curse of the Damned on it. I didn't know Melinda, I didn't know her thing was, Weasleys must live, Voldemort must die. I didn't know who she was yet. So I had the thing, and I'm reading it, and all I can picture is... This jerk is going to kill Ron. I know she's going to do it. It, it. She's going that way. I know she's going to do it. And, uh, and, and we're getting closer, getting closer, getting closer. And then we obviously get to the scene 
we're around the campfire. Now, I'm taking a lot of heat from, from Danielle, from her parents, from her brother, from her brother's friend, from, from, from the people at the next campground, because I'm sitting there, and I'm reading fan fiction by the lake. There's like a skunk walking by. I'm still reading. Beautiful nature all around you, right, Ryan? Yeah, there was... <laughs> I do I it all the time, Ryan. And there's like a cockroach, because I'm the only light source in the area, so they're all like, the bugs are flying at me. It was like the Chamber of Secrets thing. Remember when they're in the woods and the bugs are flying over? So I'm reading the thing, and I get to the point where, where I'm not sure if you recall this, Dumbledore died. He was struck by an Avada Kedavra curse, completely out of canon. You know, that, that could never happen. So he's struck by the Avada Kedavra curse, and he, and he dies, and, and Harry is very upset. So they decide to have a funeral, a funeral for Dumbledore, which also would never happen in the canon. I'm not sure what you were thinking there. And so they're at Dumbledore's funeral, which would never happen. And there, there's a moment where... Minerva McGonagall says, and, I, and I've committed this to memory, but I may be off on, on some of the verb tenses, as you are when you get drunk and you write. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm reading it, and, and it's, it's Albus, friends, mentor, lover. Love. And oh. I made a weird noise, and I know I made a weird noise, because everyone came to see what was wrong. <laughs> and you really can't... No Dumbledore was gay then. <laughs> but it, no, it wasn't even that. I made a weird noise, and the only way I can describe it is like, everything's fine, everything's fine, everything's fine, you open the door and there are your grandparents having sex. <laughs> it's an eye-opener, and it, and it's, and it's, 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 it, it just it changes the foundation of your very existence. And I remember reading it, and I remember thinking to myself, possibilities are now endless. If they're sleeping together... Who else is sleeping together? Well, sure. And all why those didn't I... stuck up in that school with all those kids and the adults have to get her. So there's got to be something going around among some of them. But yeah. then I'm thinking to myself, if they're having sex, who else is having sex? And why didn't I know about it? And what else <laughs> have I missed? I always who thought it was Snape and Sinistra. Yeah, and who in this campground is having sex right now that I'm not aware of? So I'm looking around at everybody, and they're looking at me. <laughs> a lot of people. Ryan, you're a pervert. <laughs> but when everyone came, when everyone, no, Melinda is a pervert, and I'll tell you why in a minute. But, so everyone comes running out, and they're like, what's wrong? And it's like, I can't tell them that Dumbledore had sex with McGonagall, because they'll think I'm an idiot. Because they already think I'm the weird guy. So... Not only did Melinda completely open new lines of thinking for me, I can't tell anybody about it. So I had, I'm like, oh, skunk. I like ran. But I just want you to know that that moment was just a real eye opener. So and where, now you can be Harry and Slytherin fix without batting an eye. So see, you, you, you just need this to. Is, this, is, this is true. It, it's, it's like the, it's the Ron Pansy ones. I think they're lovely. But then, then, then <laughs> Lucius stabs Ron with a really big knife. And I'm like, that jerk is going to kill... And I didn't even think jerk, Melinda. I just <laughs> She's going to kill Ron now. She has no regard for the Weasleys. This woman broke Harry's kneecaps. She's co- like, she's a very angry woman. So, and, and, and I had just seen a, a, a TV show, which I'm not going to spoil for people, but I had seen a, a scene similar. I'd seen something that was very similar where, you know, two guys who were buddies, one of them knew he was dying and he had to say, like, his, his last goodbye to his friend there. And I'm, I was actually reciting the dialogue from that in my mind. And the, the, I guess the thing about your stuff is, and I actually do have a point here. Number one, you, you've changed P.S.'s life you know, immeasurably, <laughs> mine too, and, and 
you've had broader implications, which I will discuss with you in personal messages, and you've done so much, but when, when people don't know you, and, and when people don't know that you would never hurt Harry, or never hurt Ron, or that you, you know, you're not really out there, you just think that maybe Dumbledore got bored, you know, after 7pm most nights, you're a very scary woman without people <laughs> knowing that, because I was very frightened. That's the only point I have. <laughs> very oh, scary woman, and I like that. On. <laughs> I'm sorry, Melinda being a pervert. I almost forgot. So I sent a message to Melinda. I'm like, Melinda, please find attached a list of chapters and pages where you give Harry an erection. And she reviewed it, and I, uh, and you can see her little, on Skype, her little pencil, you know, moving because she's typing to me, and that stops, and backspaces, and starts again. So you can tell she's... She's having, you know, a crisis of faith after seeing all the erections she gave to poor young Harry. That doesn't sound right the way you phrased that, Ryan, I have to say. (laughs) But then I get a message back from from Melinda Leo. Now, Melinda has given me so much, and and I have, this is all I have to give back to her, so I hope it has an impact. And she writes back, and I quote, Oh my God, I'm a pervert. And that's all I. So I don't. That's all I got. That's all I got. You know, test is now. How many times does Harry get an erection in the new pack? And then we'll see if she's. Oh, I'm counting, you know. man. Okay. Oh no! Now I'm aware of it, though. So now I'm going to be very, very cautious. Oh God, that's going to be awful. Poor Harry. Like everyone will be like, I don't understand how this is happening. There's no erection. You just deprived but, Harry of a sex life, Ryan. Ryan. Well, he'll yeah. just have a very unfulfilled one. P.S. <laughs> Oh, Lordy. Can I ask a question, and I don't mean to get off topic. Why is P.S.'s Skype message, Ryan's so going to fall for Snape in a non-sexual way? Oh, that's what <laughs> that's I said what to he, her. I like yeah. P.S.'s little picture there with Harry and Ginny kissing. I was like, yay, P.S. That's all <laughs> your fault. Mike, <laughs> said, that's what Mike said about the fic that he's going to pick. He thinks you're going to fall in love with Snape by means of reading it. I bet him that Yeah, we have a bet going. I bet that that fic will do for Snape what Melinda did for P.S. and Harry Eugenie. Only for you. You're living in fantasy land. Don't tell him that until we send the bet. No, no, no. That's the same thing he would have said about P.S. before she read Melinda. I'm I'm sorry, Mike. We'll see. I don't think this fic is going to turn me into a Jehovah's Witness. What fic are we talking about now? In blood only. I won't in tell Melinda of- what it's about. She'll freak out on the podcast. It's, it's not on Melinda's reading list. I can tell you Uh-oh. that right now. Melinda <laughs> has a very focused. Basically, reference. the plot is that Harry is the biological. <laughs> See, he knows it's so ridiculous that he can't even say it without laughing. But it's only because Melinda's here. I thought you said Harry was the son of Sam. <laughs> the son of Satan? What? Son of Satan. Son of Sam. Who the hell is Sam? The, the serial killer. The killer. Ryan, that doesn't ring a bell. Uh, who? You don't. Know you ever heard of the son of Sam? <laughs> Are you being serious? Mike, right? I feel awful with you saying this to me, but no, I don't. <laughs> the son of Sam. The most famous serial killer of all time. Maybe here? not the most famous, but he was well, pretty famous. He's obviously not very famous because I have no <laughs> idea who he is. You get messages from his dog, like, kill this person or kill that person. The dog is Sam, and he's the son of Sam. Just wiki it, Ryan. Right, yeah. I'll, 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 there t- it is, I'll take Ryan. care. 
I'll, I'll take care of that after the podcast. I'm very, I'm very disturbed by this fic that Mike is trying to put on our schedule here. But sorry, um, no, Harry is not the son of Sam. Oh, thank it's not, God. It's not right. Snape, and it's been hidden his whole life. But he's the oh, son, of, son Snape. of Snape. That's original. <laughs> no, this is the one that you like to watch. I'd rather he was the son this, of this Sam. Do you hear the snark? That never was. That was not there before. <laughs> Linda would like this too. No, but she wouldn't. If I have to ask Mike, you who is Hey, Mike, Mike, you want to bet me a hundred bucks that Melinda would like it? I'll bet you she read 25 chapters she'd like. I bet you 20 no. bucks. 20 bucks. Okay. I bet, you I, ha- I bet you I have a big picket sign sitting right in front of me that's saying, off topic. <laughs> I, I, was try- I was about to ask Melinda an on topic question. Yes. So you gotta jump in here. This is Melinda Leo. This woman changed your life as she has changed so many of ours. Mine's been a bit murky because I can't go to campgrounds anymore, but just... It's Melinda! Talk to Melinda. Hi, Melinda! Hey, Sue. How you doing? I'm hanging in there. The coding's kicked in. I'm a little tired. She's a little drunk right now. That's here. Do you have a? Would you I'm, like to I'm ask waiting for you guys to get through the uh, the thick questions because all of my questions don't pertain to the thick. Oh, Sue, please. There's no, there's no order here. Jump in, jump in. You're on drugs. You can probably take us all. Go for it. Okay. Well, this one's from Kronk, and he wants to know what fan fiction you read that inspired you to write your own fix. It was a series of them. The Psychic Serpent was the first one I ever read. Then I read Paradigm of Uncertainty. Then I read a whole bunch of little ones before someone turned me to After the End. But it was after Order of the Phoenix itself came out that I started reading more and more and more and more because I couldn't stand not knowing what was going to happen next. Um, and that's still my favorite era for fan fiction is post-Order of the Phoenix. I love that genre. Um, but it was just I wasn't finding what it was that I wanted. It, I wasn't finding the story that I, I was looking for. So I was like, I'm going to try and do this myself and that's where it went from there and I was so nervous first chapter I posted from Power of Emotion I debated and debated and debated because I'd always dabbled with writing but I would never have shown it to anybody what I did so I was like alright I'm going to do this I'm going to do it it took me forever to figure out even how to do the HTML coding you know so I finally got it and I put it up there and then I went in and threw up <laughs> are you serious? I'm serious oh, no. I was like I can't believe I just did that <laughs> and the, I did the same thing with my first story and they were, they were okay so I was like alright I, I can do this <laughs> Now I feel like I feel like I did something wrong because I didn't throw up. <laughs> I was mortified so, when I did mine. I just feel so awful for Melinda now because then we put her on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we gave Jen some booze and said, "Go do a podcast for a few chapters and see what happens." Oh my, Melinda, I'm so sorry. Well, that was a long time. I mean, you podcasted on Seventh Horcrux. By then, by then it was okay. I didn't throw up on that one. This was just the first Power of Emotion chapter. <laughs> I know, it's pathetic, isn't it? No, not at all. That's pretty cool, huh? <laughs> I don't know, I feel much better now, based on the fact that you, you, you threw up when you wrote, and I, you know, scared an entire campground full of people. But I, <laughs> I feel the tides of friendship, I don't know. Here's one question. Oh, if- <laughs> go for two, go for two. Two? Go for th- yeah. Well, here's here's one that's that she can answer really quick. What book are you reading now? I'm reading um, Harry a History by um, Melissa Anelli. Loving it. It's like I keep reading it, and I was like, Oh, that's me! That's me! Because so much of as she got kind of sucked into it? the fandom, I could relate to. It's it's oh, fun. I was I was asking what it was about, and then you said Harry. It's basically the story of the fandom, and she ended up joining the whole thing right around that's the same time that, that I did. That's 
that's interesting. What's it called? Harry a History? <laughs> Harry a History, yeah. You didn't know that came out, P.S.? It just uh, came out not that long ago, and it's so much fun to read because it's like, that's me. You know, you just keep, you can relate so much to the different things she's talking about. Here's my second question. Since we all know that Melinda is a perv. <laughs> <laughs> If you had to give I Harry think I want to get back to being the drunk. <laughs> <laughs> Tina's back, I apologize. If you had to give Harry and Jenny marital advice, what would it be? Um, the question could have been worse, Melinda. Just be grateful and you get through it. <laughs> I guess if, if, if Harry's insisting he's out practicing Quidditch on Tuesday nights at 10 o'clock, just let it go. <laughs> <laughs> How is Leo? <laughs> He's not home from golfing yet. Yeah. Golfing in the door. <laughs> if he doesn't come in the front door with a flashlight, he's sleeping in the couch. I can tell right now. All right. It's the new so glow-in-the-dark golf balls. Have we been more fun than him? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I've met Leo. It's actually tough. Leo is a very funny guy. Leo is one of us. Well, a little bit. The whole Star Wars thing? Come on. <laughs> yeah, no, he doesn't get, he does not get Harry whatsoever, but he read, I was so proud of him, he read um, Sorcerer's Stone just to try to, 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 to follow some of the conversations that go on around here, because the kids yeah, are all to really figure out how you spend your nights, yeah, okay. Yeah. Has he read your stuff? No. I told him he's not allowed to till he rescanned it. <laughs> <laughs> My husband hasn't read any of mine. Really? No, I, I'll let it, if you, if, but you need to, you need to know the understand the canon for it to make any sense to you. My That's oldest true. son keeps asking me to read it, but I'm not going to let him until he's a little older. Start with power Especially of emotion. <laughs> yeah. Start with power of emotion. Wait till he's like 16 before you let him read the end of the seventh Horcrux. Yeah, well, now that you keep reminding me about the erections, I, I think we're going to wait a few more years. <laughs> Could be a good birds and bees opener. <laughs> Does what happens to Harry happen to you? That means you're getting older. <laughs> Well, I forget what podcast is in. I think, was it the one that came out, the one where I was saying what would happen if Harry had a wet dream in canon? Did, Did that one air yet? I don't think I so. I have heard that. Well, my thought was if the, the scene in, you all remember in, in Order of the Phoenix, Ar, um, Harry has the dream about Arthur Weasley, and he wakes up in cold sweats, and you see McGonagall and Ron <laughs> dragging him to Dumbledore's office, and you know, they, they do like the, like the, the really cool photography, so the camera's shifting all around, and he's back, and he's forward. Could you imagine Harry, because no one's ever had the talk with him in Dumbledore's office, and he's wearing the gray you know, sweatshirt, and there's like sweat pouring out of his armpits, and he's he's standing, he's like shaking, and he's like you know in the chair in Dumbledore. You know, it's Gambin, and he just has that one expression that only Gambin can have, staring at Harry. And, and Harry is explaining, you know, his first wet dream, and he's like, "What is happening to me?" And Dumbledore is like, "Oh my, uh, Sherbert." And then he chucks him into a trophy case. Exactly. <laughs> Leave. Sirius really did have the talk with him at some point while he was there for that Christmas. Couldn't let the I, kid go by without yeah, him. By that age, if you don't know... Man. Yeah, well, I'm sure he's already figured most of it out himself, but but somebody's got to give the real answers, not just what he's hearing from his dorm mates. I don't know. The only thing that saves your theory is the fact that Seamus is in there. But the, beyond that, he's a very non-inquisitive kid. But he yeah, was but made that way. He's, yeah, don't ask questions. That's the number one rule. He was for living made not to ask. Right? Don't ask questions. Uh, don't make noise. 
But he's observant still. I can't believe that Seamus wasn't yeah. talking. Hey, come on now, how'd you learn about the birds? Of you? It was You didn't learn from your parents, you learned it from kids around you. I believe that Seamus had a very big mouth. Why do we always think it's Seamus, by the way? Is that canon? Yeah, why am I thinking Seamus? Because I'm thinking of Lavender Brown as I say this. That's why I'm asking. Where did that I, I, I haven't read that, and I just think I think Seamus is the one that would. Yeah. Because, okay, Maybe it's look part at the of the people. Iris thing. I don't know, but it, I, 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 I tend to Neville think Seamus is oh. obviously not. I think Dean is not. I think Harry is not. <laughs> I think sorry, Dean. I think Dean is on the is on the fence. Well, I think he goes be whatever if he wasn't way. So hung up on Hermione, and he wouldn't talk like that right. about Hermione, especially not in front of Harry. So it's got it's so got to come down to Seamus. It's got to be Seamus. Well, but is there any actual? He always is the like the crazy one in all the fix. I think it's trying just to the turn whole... his water into rum as a first year is a good. Yeah, uh, the Irish. That's side, yeah. in the movie. Was that in the book too? That's that's no. but. It, no, he, he no that 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 trying to turn it into rum is that in the book or is that just the movie? It's the movie. The blowing up is de- definitely just in the movie. Yeah, I'm pretty sure mm-hmm. the the other thing is just in the just in the movie too. I think it's just because of the way he talks back. How he he's very verbal. Yeah, he doesn't have any problem with you know spouting off or being sarcastic. Right, and he's he's the one that goes right at Harry when he gets back in Order of the Phoenix too. Right, he He'll speak his mind. Well, no, yeah, it is so- too. When when you read the canon, you have Harry, Ron, and you know Neville and Hermione and Ginny and Luna. They're off saving the world, and 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 they're mm-hmm. you know, they're they're beating Voldemort every year, and you know, they, they, all you know political stuff, all this big heavy meaty stuff going on. I think in the back of your mind, you have to figure that you know Seamus is just in the room with the drapes closed <laughs> because what else is he really doing with all his free time? <laughs> like, that's just how I originalize. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like so, what else? What, what could he possibly be doing? That's Very dirty. What's my theory? I don't know. <laughs> I was gonna ask a follow up question to something Jen said because she made me think about it when she was asking you questions, which was just not what are you reading now, but are there particular books that you feel have influenced how you write or? I don't know how you view the literary world, or even like a teacher growing up, like something that influenced the how of you write. Well, obviously the the Harry Potter books are huge. Obviously, I mean that's what I write in, so that they were you. But for a teacher, I had a in my senior year of um senior year, yeah, in high school, a teacher that was very encouraging mm-hmm. of writing, and she actually hooked me up with um I was the school I don't know reporter, like I would just report on things going on within the school for our local little town newspaper. A little bit that way, I guess. I was also going to ask you, since we were talking about it a little bit before, if you couldn't pick a Gryffindor character, who's your favorite? Not a Gryffindor fa- character that's my favorite. Actually, no, I, I was going to say McGonagall, but she's, I was, she was, do we know? She's the well, head of Gryffindor, so she must be yeah. a Gryffindor too, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, and I'm counting Dumbledore as a Gryffindor. I don't know whether he actually is. Okay. Not. So who I don't love Draco. <laughs> um, I, I guess I kind of like Slughorn. Oh. I did. I, 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 I found him very intriguing. That's pretty... Made PS's night, I'm sure. <laughs> I did. Um, oh, there's PS here for this PS. Are you here? Yeah, well, <laughs> Say, where's PS? I'm wondering where she's so silent. Yeah. Are you kidding? You know what? We're going to cut this. She'll never know. PS, PS, PS. How could she miss that? Where did she go? Are you kidding me? This is... P.S. Oh, what, what, what? Let's what? turn it there for a second. Oh, P.S. P.S. Have you been here? Have you been here? I went to the bathroom. Oh, my God. I, oh. I, 
I type. Oh my god! Oh my god! I type BRB and I forgot to send it. In P.S. Yeah, did you ever watch the Emmys where Ellen won something, but she was in the ladies' room? Did you ever? I never ever watched the Emmys. All right. Well, you are now officially Ellen. What? Tell me. <laughs> Nothing, nothing happens. Nothing happens. Nope, nothing you're going to wait until it comes out. You, no, you, have, you, know, you have to tell me. Mike, no, Mike, no, one, Mike, no, no one tell me. No, nothing happens. Sue will tell me. Sue will tell me. Sue don't Sue's tell on drugs. Sue can't even remember what just happened. Oh, my just, God. No, I want to know what I missed. <laughs> That's what you get for <laughs> peeing in the middle of the cat. <laughs> exactly. We have a, you should have hit enter. I'm sorry. I should have hit enter because now I'm never going to. Come on, guys. It's not. I'm just going to whine. All right. Mike, ask your question again. Who's your favorite non-Gryffindor character? It took me a minute to think about which ones I like. So I was I was focusing on Slytherins because I'm assuming that's who Mike wants to know. So I think of the Slytherins. I like Slughorn. <laughs> that's what we were waiting for. I love you, Melinda. <laughs> Imagine our surprise when you like didn't respond to all the last time. So uh, yeah, we're that's waiting for. So exciting! That's so exciting! Oh my gosh! Especially with with him coming back and bringing the Slytherins I back. I know that's my favorite scene in all seven books. My really? favorite scene. Yeah, huh? I have my a question. Am I the only one right now thinking to themselves? Good God, there's two of them. Yeah. <laughs> right. No, 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 wait a minute, because you said non, non-Gryffindor, non so that really, that, you know, once I started thinking about it, there really isn't a whole ton to choose from. Luna. Luna. Like, I like Luna. I did not like Luna at all in Order of the Phoenix. I couldn't, I just didn't get her. But in Half-Blood Prince, I ended up liking her very much. Yeah, because I can't help but recall in, in Curse of the Damned, she was kind of, um... What's the word I'm going for here? Um, she was kind of like an undercover operative. Can we go? Is is that fair? Talk about that. I didn't ever think that she would actually be a, a bad guy, but I think she could be manipulated. So I went there, and it was it was it started with I needed somebody close to Harry to be the mole. That that, that you know at the beginning of the story, I was got to figure out who is it going to be, and so. You know, I, Neville, that had been done so many times before, and I just didn't, I didn't get that vibe from Neville that, that that was going to be right. It could have been one of the, the Weasleys, but they, it had to be somebody at school. It had to be somebody that really was in on what was going around with him. And then I was like, with Luna, like I said, I wasn't thrilled with her after reading Order of the Phoenix. I just didn't know what really to do with her. So I was like, all right, let's, let's, let's beef up Luna a little bit and let's go with her. So that's where it came from. That makes me think, I wonder, it sounds like mostly when you write, you're thinking of, um, like how large would this turn out? Is there ever any instances where you're doing it as this is how I want it to be, regardless of whether it makes sense or would ever happen in canon? It always has to have a possibility. It, it doesn't have to mean that I think it will happen in canon, but it has to be able to fit that it could happen in canon. And if it couldn't, then no, I don't have any patience reading it. it it's just not what I want to write. I, it has to be something that I think could possibly fit within the canon. Talk to us about the origin of the character of uh, Aberforth in Curse of the Damned. <laughs> Ooh, that's a good one. Uh, obviously, Aberforth is a real character, but we didn't know all that much about him at that point, just that we knew Dumbledore had a brother. Did we know at that point that it was it was the Hogshead guy, or was that just people suspecting it? That was a guess. Okay. We didn't know enough about him so that it was wide open a character to make. So Aberforth is modeled after my godfather, actually. Okay, um, I have a follow-up question to that. Okay. They're always listening to loud rock music. 
when they're dueling and working out. Yeah. What are they listening to? Muggle bands. I'm, I'm thinking like Guns N' Roses and things like that. Okay. I wasn't sure what, uh, what era yeah, or I genre think even you were. a line that, that, um, that Abe uses about the wizard yeah, rock t- that the kids listen to his spine or whatever, but they, they've got nothing on the muggle drummers, I think. Right. Something no, like that's, that, that's, that's, exact, just, that's exactly what I'm saying because I, I knew my, that you were Abe, pointing. My godfather. Um, and he Muggle was very dance. much, he always had, you know, you could hear him coming down the street ten, 10 minutes before he got there because the music was so loud coming out of his stupid car. Think uh, old-time, you know, rock and roll hair bands, things like that. <laughs> I just love the fact that he was smoking pot on school. Grounds. <laughs> <laughs> Best not to tell Al about that, right? right. Exactly. You might want to keep that quiet. Dave actually, he passed away this past spring, Aww. and somebody wrote up a, 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 a no, it's not even obituary, but just a, a column, um in the town newspaper about him and they called him the world's oldest living teenager. They had a winter home in Arizona and um, he had a stroke while he was down there and um, he passed away very quickly. When we all went to the wake, everybody was still kind of in a stun because, you know, of anybody that you knew, he would have been the last one that anyone would have expected to to, to die so suddenly. And there's a, there was a picture of him. You know, they do those wall of pictures when you go to wakes now. And they had this picture of him and he's on his boat and he's got this huge shitty and grin on his face and he's his hair is blowing his long hair is blowing in the wind and he's just looking so happy and the water is blue behind him sun is shining. it's just a beautiful beautiful picture and it was taken four days before we were there at his wake and it was like all right you know if, if you're gonna go that that's how you want it to be you know you don't want to be sick for a long time i just want to say i'm probably going to be the one percent of, of the population that when i go it's in such a weird way that it's in the, the local papers <laughs> <laughs> I was reading a story tonight in Brazil. A, a man died, so he he obviously they were having a funeral for him in the, the, the funeral procession, and 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 the grieving widow is in the front of the of the little hearse, and they're driving down the street, and something happened, and they had to stop short, and and the casket flew forward. I read that the wife and killed Kill the her. wife. No. On the way to the cemetery. And and I looked at Danielle, and and my exact response is, that's how we're going to go. And she's looking back at me like, I'm going to, so I I don't know if we're going to be. He goes, he's taking her with him. (laughs) Well, that was the unfortunate um, meaning of my words, which I did just snorted. I did, I did, I snorted. Can you believe that? I'm hoping you didn't hear that. Uh, Unfortunately, Melinda, the little mute button wasn't on. Can you please edit that out? No, no, I can't. Um, well, here's the deal. If I have to sleep on the couch for my remark, your snort is staying in the podcast. And that I'm still so excited. <laughs> oh my god, it's like a mutual admiration. That's like the best thing I've right. ever heard. Like, yeah, like Somehow, that's... like, like if the wife was the one that actually killed the husband and somehow he still got his revenge on her at the end. Oh. You're, you're giving this a lot of thought. I like that. Who's oh, cheated on thing and lying about it. You know, actually, I was thinking he loves her so much he can't be without her. I was thinking with Melinda that like, she was cheating on I can't do the sappy stuff. <laughs> like, can you imagine getting hit by a casket? <laughs> That's how you go. Like, think about that for a minute. Really. What did they put for, like, cause of death, you know? Or what if it was like a really big guy and a really small woman and like he died on top of her and she couldn't. Oh, Mike, where do you come up with this stuff? No, that's, that's, no, that was an episode of Picket Fences. I apologize. (laughs) 
It was. I remember it was. that. It was one of my favorite shows. You know it's a great show when the medical Actually, that's the Stephen King novel, too. One of the Stephen King novels starts that way. Does it really? Which yeah. one? Yeah. Um, Gerald's name. <laughs> Handcuffed to the bed, right? Mm-hmm. Gerald's no, it was, it was huh. a really large, obese man rolled over in the middle of the night and crushed his wife, is what I'm thinking of. But, huh. No, it was the other way around. It was a very obese wife rolled over and crushed her husband. Um, can I just say... What I really want to see, now, Melinda, I know you're working on some new stuff, and, and I'm and I'm so excited about it. Like, really, I'm just I'm bouncing right now. You have no idea. And I really mean that. I'm not. I'm a little tired, but I I actually there is bounce in my step. He did um, a Harry Ron scene that that that, that Ryan liked. Okay, you know, cat's out of the bag now. <laughs> I mentioned on the podcast that now, as we all know, when I read something that that annoys me, not that it's been written badly, but when the characters like. Umbrage, well written, annoys the crap out of me. Like that kind of thing. Like it doesn't even just raise my blood pressure; it raises my cholesterol, and I haven't figured that out yet. When I get when I get into it, I really get into it. And I read Melinda wrote this in her new story. Probably my favorite Harry Ron scene ever. Just just a great. It's the scene that ordinarily where Ron would annoy me to death. It, you know. Harry said everything I would have said if I was in the room. Like I, 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 I have. I'm not gonna lie to you. I, I feel as though I'm Melinda's muse for this. For this <laughs> but it was just, it was such a great chat, and I mentioned it on the podcast. And Melinda actually sent me an email saying, "Ryan, I can you please send me the the link to that fic? It sounds wonderful. I have to read it." I'm like, "You wrote it, you moron!" Well, <laughs> you didn't say what fic you were talking about. You were just talking. Yes, about- I didn't know if it was out of the bag that you were writing again. So I almost say it was yours so and plus every time i mention i read your stuff jen yells at me because why do you get to read this stuff doesn't she know that i have a difficult life and i would love to read so i don't even go there anymore but we have moments we have moments now you're right now you're obviously gonna write a fic and i don't think you're gonna kill harry because i'm on to you i don't think you're gonna kill harry you I think? think Ron is like an eighty percent chance of living. I'm not, I'm not tied to Hermione yet, but whatever. Well, considering so, it's post DH and she always stays canon compliant, they're both going to live, Ryan. Up to the at least for nineteen yep. years. At least for nineteen. They, they walk years. out of the train station. Nina can't make them suffer. And they're in a car accident <laughs> shortly after. Leaving. But here's what I want to see. Now you've done two different types of epilogues. You've done the epilogue, which. I, I, I joke about um, the Curse of the Damned kind of being like the Bible epilogue. Here is Harry, who, who fathered Joanna and <laughs> down the line. You know, here's Cedric. The seven, tri- the seven tribes of Potter. Right, exactly. So, so I'm sitting there with my little map, and I'm trying to figure out, I'm drawing the family tree, and I, you know, draw the line incorrectly, and all of a sudden Harry and George are having children, and, you know, they back up. And, <laughs> and, and then you had you, you know, the scene from the Seventh Horcrux where Harry had one kid. It was so easy for me to keep track of because I'm a simple man. <laughs> what I think you should do is I think you should go for your new story, the Lifetime Original Movies route. And at the end of the story, do like the freeze frame where you write what happens to every character. And what I think you should do is – feel free to use this. Feel free to use this. <laughs> what I think you should do is I think you should do, you know, Neville – But we've got it, Ryan. Because well, the epilogue after, has to I know, oh, Okay. But after the after the after the so you know, here is Harry and Ginny, and and and, and they they live to be old and gray. And here is Neville. You know, he became 
the, the, the headmaster of Hogwarts. Here is Slughorn. He became the most famous of them all. And what I think you should do is, and then end it with Ron and Hermione. They lived a very wonderful life together until he died and his casket fell on Hermione and she was <laughs> killed instantly. <laughs> the end. And never write again. <laughs> just leave it there and just see what people think. You write that story, Ryan. You write that story. I'll read it. Let's not, I know you will. Let's not ruin Melinda's reputation by putting casket death in her story. We've tried very hard. We have her out to be a torture-loving... You know what I would like to see her end their story with? Where it's like sort of a, um, what's it, Kaiser's Sozak ending, where it turns out like Harry was really Voldemort all along, and it was like this big plot twist. Melinda I Leo? Well, that's where it'd be so funny if she did it. Like, you know, the, like, the first M-E-L-I-N-D-A, that one? Like, the like, like, there, last, like, five is years. If like, Hermione is the president kind of thing, then that's bad. I I cannot, like you cannot Slytherinize Melinda. There is no way. You should stop for years, just for fun. It's not going to work. <laughs> you know what? I think Melinda should write. What? I think Melinda should write a story about Horace, and I'll write a story about Harry and Ginny. <laughs> I am. Do you know, in this new one that I'm working on, when I heard about your conversion, P.S., I, I, Slughorn is going to be in the story. I haven't completely worked in how I'm going to get him in there yet, because it's post-Hogwarts. But he's gonna be in there. Oh, I can I, I cannot <laughs> wait. I cannot wait. I get so excited whenever I see him in anything, and if he's portrayed good, I get so excited. So I am so excited. I can't wait. I'm so excited. Yes, is being herself. God, I'm so excited. I'm so- Did you say squeeing or peeing? There was some I said there I said P.S. is squeeing herself. Oh my god! Oh my god! Oh my god! <laughs> Oh my god! Melinda, look what you did! Oh my god! Ryan, do we have her rant about the movie? That's what I'm thinking about as she goes on. No, 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 no. That's, that's, woo. We can't talk about that. I will say nothing. can't talk about it. One thing is that he inspires my basest emotions. Because here I am, I am overcome with glee, and then occasionally I can turn animalistic. (laughs) But we won't talk. Melinda, I don't know what you did, but I think we should back over to the left wall. Uh, Melinda, on a different note, if that's okay. I'm, I'm this curious. Is Mike's fault. Mike's the one that asked her the damn question about who your favorite is. It was the best question of the interview. It was when you were the in the best. bathroom, Mike, try again. What's your next question? Well, my next question was just going to be I was curious if there were any other people, like, if your Harry Potter characters were influenced by other people besides Aberforth that you knew, like, if your kids are, like, in it somewhere, or your husband or your brother or something like that are in there. Uh, They're all yeah. in there, but just not as a not whole a character. Forward. Little things sometimes that they do will be something, like, I think you guys even commented on a, an author's note about the half shirt, the, the, the bare midriff shirt was a mm-hmm. comment that one of my sons had made about um, about Kim Possible. So that they're, they're 
just little things different ones have said they're all in there but just Aberforth was was the most modeled after somebody little things a lot of people have done have, have been put in there and then a lot of the stuff that I do is just like almost poking fun at some of the way the fandom seems to think things are going to go sometimes is Ryan in there at all in anything <laughs> oh please god well she didn't know me then thank <laughs> you. I didn't know Ryan when I was writing either one of these he'll he'll probably make an appearance in the new one <laughs> very cool <laughs> well the good thing about that the good thing about that is she, like she said, she doesn't put whole characters in there. It's like every once in a while, Harry will have a stray thought, and maybe it will sound like me. I'm gonna look out for the Star Wars obsessed characters. What I'll look out for the Star Trek. Yeah, like, excuse me. Exactly, like Anne Walsh over at Dangerverse. She'll put Ryan the Hufflepuff having the snot beat out of him by Melinda the Ravenclaw, and like it'll be in the actual story. There, there's well, no con- like I'm wearing a name tag like uh, I'm in death rolls fake with my real name in there in the, in year four now which he showed me the chapter for cool. I- I'm I'm Fudge's lackey like his mindless lackey oh. person <laughs> I can see Percy <laughs> for the record I don't do that so don't go asking <laughs> yes can I be uh best friend of Slughorn in your pick? No. One of the questions that one of the forum members gave me for Melinda, which was, uh, what can she do to get you to write her into the fic? Oh. What can she do for you, Melinda? What can Brown do for you, Melinda? Ask not what Melinda can do for yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I guess tell me who it is that wants to be in there, and I'll see, there's actually, there's a big ball scene going on. I'll see if, uh, I need a bunch of extras. I'll see if I can, can put somebody it's, in. Uh, it's M.S. Lupin. M.S. And she wants to be in the story. Well, I can't wow. use somebody named M.S. Lupin because then... Does Lupin, Lupin, have, a Does Lupin <laughs> have, like, a cousin with, like, M.S. <laughs> just, just use Trisha. Yeah, all right, well, I'll write the name Trisha down and I'll see what I can do. All right. Now, Melinda, ah. now, obviously, as we know here, you, you, ha- you, you are a very powerful person. And you have, you know, affected lives far beyond <laughs> your small hometown of, like, 3,000 people or however many people. Now, obviously, you've reached some milestones in your writing career. Obviously, the first time you, you posted your story, you <laughs> did throw up in the bathroom. And, the, and you know, then it got very popular. You probably got your first review, and you probably have it you know, posted on the wall, hung up. And, and then you, your first story, and then your first sequel, and you, you, get, you know, many wonderful, gushing, glowing things about you. And I'm sure you found a lot of, you know, you know, artistic enjoyment from this and a lot of fulfillment. And then, you know, you wrote the seventh Horcrux and then obviously that terrible incident where someone, you know, took it and, you know, pretended that real story. Death I had a Harry Hermione shipper who every single chapter of Power Emotion would write to tell me what an idiot I was for not knowing that it was going to be Harry and Hermione. I would just love to know how that person reacted to, to uh, Half-Blood Prince. I really would. They shut up after Half-Blood <laughs> Prince though, right? No, yeah, they, they did. did. That's the problem. <laughs> did they shut up? Sorry. Did they shut up after? Did they shut well, up? After? Oh, done right. Then that Harry Hermione well, shippers like, are still anymore. going strong. Well, good you for know, them. One shipper though. <laughs> and did you hear from that one reviewer after death? After? Never. No, they never reviewed again after that. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I hate to say it, they they may have jumped, <laughs> so so they may be unavailable. So anyway, you, you know, you cre- you know, I've read about you on CNN. You became very popular, very important. Now. And, and unfortunately, in one of our previous podcasts, we got off topic, and and we did play the. You guys know who, who would you turn <laughs> gay for game? And um, one of our lovely forum members um, did mention oh, that they would turn <laughs> gay for Melinda Leo, 
And I have to ask you, how does it feel to be a sex symbol for young women everywhere? Did somebody no, actually was... say that? Yeah. Melinda yeah. said that I would turn <laughs> I turn gay for you, Melinda. And Sue and I were just waiting for I'm Melinda just to come up. Looking at like, like how the hell do you respond to that? <laughs> what? You don't. It's flattering. <laughs> Melinda was like, "Please don't. I'm not worthy or whatever." I, like, I, I, I actually, I think I turned the computer off and I said, "I'm just going to wait till tomorrow to deal with that one." <laughs> <laughs> Melinda slowly thinks to herself, "I'm glad Jen cut my cleavage off." <laughs> That's how you know you're having a very slow night when Jen and I are having a half an hour conversation about your cleavage. I'm like, can we move the cleavage? Can we move the picture above the cleavage? What are we doing with the cleavage? At least, at least your breasts have not been a topic of conversation on the podcast. That's all you're I can say. If anybody, ever, if anybody ever complains about what these people talk about about you. P.S.'s breasts were the topic of conversation once, because P.S. was the one to bring them up. Oh, she's because brought them up to me like 10,000 times. She loves, She's obsessed <laughs> with her own breasts. It's ridiculous. Shut up, Mike! The thing is, she doesn't think that we know that she has them. So she keeps <laughs> reminding us when they come up, and I'm like, P.S., we, we figured. It's okay. See, it's it's her own fault because she refuses to show us pictures. You know, so she has to talk. She has to talk about her breast prowess so that we know that she has them. But yet, I'm just loving this line of questioning because it's moving away from her own cleavage. Yeah, yeah. Well, hey, I'm not going to lie. I have them. We all know. You keep telling us every day. I want to know who Melinda's favorite author as a child was. Ooh, me too. When you were little or adolescent. Young married woman. <laughs> I went through a big Stephen King phase, but I was older then. When I was younger, I did I did the whole Judy Bloom thing as a teen or a preteen. Um, okay. We all oh, did yeah. that though, at the, and and that I need Tina here to back me up on that one. Um, I oh no, I did it. I did have you do? stories. I she was out by then. Yeah. As a child, I know I was. Um, I was into the whole Nancy Drew Hardy Boys thing for a long time when I was really young. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I, I liked that one. Seuss? Shul- it was, Silverstein? You know what? I My favorite book, I, I can't even remember the title of it. My dad um, worked in a printing company, and they did children's books. So he would, I mean, just constantly bring home books. So I don't know that I ever got into one particular author, but I would just devour books. And there was one, the the, the lead character, his name was Gilbert. And I don't remember, I, I don't even remember the title of the story, but I remember I, I read that one over and over and over. Tell me more. I might, that sounds... Gilbert. He he just um, he broke in his wrist, so he couldn't do it, the normal things that he did in the summer. He lived at the beach, but this little girl had come, and I think as a child, I don't think I picked up on what was going on. But now that I think I, the, the little girl was coming from an abused home, and she came to stay with them, and I don't even remember the reasons why, but it was just his relationship built with this little girl that that that, that he was the one that kind of draw her out because she wouldn't speak to any of the adults or anything. And I love the story, and I don't even know why it was a kid's story. But I think I missed a lot of actually what was going on now that I think about about it in the story. But I liked that one, and I don't remember the title. Maybe someone will know. Just put it out. Put it out in podcast land. And- yeah, yeah. Actually, Gavin. His name was Gavin. It wasn't Gilbert. It was Gavin. That was the boy's name. Is there a particular genre? Like, are you like a young adult? person that you like to read young adult picks or is Harry Potter the exception kind of no I do I like the young adult I like the fantasy the horror like the Stephen King I like his old stuff though I don't really care for the new stuff very much yeah, after um, about it got really violent after a while. I didn't. I don't like the 
that, but I like the the fantasy. My favorite of his is the stand. Oh. I love the stand. Oh, me too. It's like my favorite book ever. I remember the first time I read that, I was working in Boston. I was taking the train in. I, I'm like in, really engrossed at the beginning of it when that plague is first going around and the person next to me sneezed. I swear to God, I ran away and sat at the other end of the train. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that book. I love all of Stephen King's old stuff. Yeah, I like the old stuff very much. I always like how his books it's too scary. Because it's so normal. That was what I always liked. It's like, you know... It's going to be about a clown living in the sewers, but they start with sitting there eating Lucky Charms out of the box, just eating the marshmallow. You know, it's just like normal stuff mixed in with the bizarre. That uh, I like how he I, writes, and then all of a sudden he's stream of conscious. What I don't like is I haven't read his books, but what I don't like is when they try and make cheap made-for-TV movies out of his books. <laughs> you can't. I'm not sure if you, anyone remembers this, but the one with the you don't like movies made from books, Ryan. I, I love the Langoliers. Yeah. You don't like the Langoliers, Brian? Uh, Ryan? No, the one with the guy from Perfect Strangers played yeah. the guy in the play with like and the animated face. budget. I love the Langoliers. How could you not? That movie's so cult classic. Film and screen cannot do justice to anything. I've never heard of it. it, Mike. It can't be a classic if I've never heard cult. of it. It, it's no. a short. It, it's a short. I think it's, it's in a, Nightmares and Dreams. The, the story. It's a short story, The Langoliers, but it's very good. Did, it, they the made a two-hour movie. Sounds yeah. excellent, but the movie was. Uh, my favorite part of the movie is when they're flying over the city at the end and yes, they look down and they remark that it's completely deserted, but you can see like trucks driving down the street because they just they obviously couldn't digitally remove it because they didn't have the money. I'm like, oh my. How cool the actual Langoliers look, though, Ryan. Admit they were cool. Um, I think I could make new ones on my laptop, and as Gen 2 can attest to, I have no idea what I'm doing artistically. But without Gen 2, we absolutely never would have had that picture of you with Kevin <laughs> and I on the plate. That was all Gen 2. <laughs> Thank she's you so much, She's talking about layers of the picture, and I don't know what she's speaking of, and it was language barrier. Well, Ryan showed me this picture of him and Keza, you know, with their head on your plate. And I'm like, that is the most pathetic thing I have ever seen. (laughs) I'm like, I'm not going to let you put that on the podcast of Melinda's story. That's what I get for telling Ryan about uh, the picture appeared in the paper in the first place. Well, Melinda is so cute because she doesn't realize that we live in the information age. She's like, oh, I was in the local paper this morning. And I'm like, wickedlocal.com. And I had it within seconds. I'm like, oh, you poor thing. It was awful. It was terrible. I want to know how Melinda deals with writer's block. Yeah, me too. Because we all have it. I can guess. I think I can guess her answer. Not I don't think I am. I don't think it's booze. <laughs> All right, I can't no, guess her answer. A lot of times, I just try to plow through it. Like, just, even if it's forcing a scene, and sometimes you end up having to, to scrap the whole original scene, but if you can just plow through enough, bits of it stay with you, and then you can, can work from there. Even if it's crap? Even if it's crap, you, you might have to get rid of a whole scene, but little bits of dialogue or then you at least are at that scene it's not going to work that way but then you're like oh but maybe it would work this way so you know what's great a lot that's of times how I do it too <laughs> well, that's how I do, it's how I do it too I just I'm in the shower and go for a ride in the car if it's dialogue that's bugging you because those always I, don't, I have no idea why but dialogue works maybe it's just because you can't write it down right when you're thinking of it but that those always work no I never have trouble with the dialogue it's always the things that get between it 
Yeah. That, you know what? I can't I can't write description. Like it always is like this is completely way off topic, but like it always just sounds like they're, you know, standing in a room talking and you it's never like no description. Well, I think there's some writers who are very good at at like um H Whimsy and Coven of Echoes did beautiful jobs with descriptions. Even when when I'm writing I I it's very minimal on on, on any kind of description of what's going on cuz I I focus more on the the dialogue, but then I noticed when I read stories, that's what I like. A lot of the description, I tend to just skip over it, and I get I, I want to hear what they're saying. So I think it's just kind of what what you like is what you tend to focus on too. This entire description is why Melinda and I shouldn't work together anymore because I'm thinking when on your new story, I read over it, and she had this great dialogue between two characters, and it was the one point where I'm like, I think you need just a line of description in here because I'm not clear how the characters are, it was like, it was a he said, she said thing, and, I, and I'm like, maybe you should put, like, a line in there, just describe the scene, is the way I said it, just, how, like, how are, are they angry, are they yelling, like, I meant something like that, and, and I was very... But you weren't unclear. that clear, though. I was very <laughs> unclear, I was very unclear trying to express the fact that Melinda was being unclear, so what I expected was a line, you know, Hermione glared. You know, just something to to help set the scene. And Melinda wrote this lovely five paragraph description of the room they were standing in, and, you know, the, like the throw so pillows on the couch, and <laughs> that and I like, don't get enough description in that the people have trouble sometimes getting into. You know where they? I've heard that so many times before, so I just automatically assume that oh, I did it again. So. I worked on it, and then and that I'm wasn't like, what you wanted oh. to begin with. I don't <laughs> and then I hate, and, and this is what a pain in the ass I am, so we do that. And then, like, the next chapter, I'm like... Then you yeah, still wanted it fixed the way you wanted it fixed. <laughs> well, no, that, but unfortunately what happened was the next chapter she sent to me, she wrote it before she added all that description. So then in the next chapter, she described the scene all over again, because that was when she was originally going to do it. I'm like, you can probably take out the part about the throw pillows. I already know that. And she's like... Hitting me with the throat. It's awful. <laughs> I want to know what moment. ship Melinda detests the most. What is the one that it's you just cannot ship Adam? or fandom ship? Either. You can't pair Harry with anybody else. It bugs me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I have any that I hate in canon. I was thinking she was going to say Jenny Draco, but because that one just gives me the... It's, it's, it's pairing Harry with somebody else that bugs me more. I don't know why. It just it just really... It, it's like, if you want to write a story and not pair him with anybody, fine, I can go with that. But if you're going to pair him with somebody, it's got to be with Jenny. Um, if, if her with Draco doesn't bug me as much, as long as she dumps him... <laughs> <laughs> Jen's a closet. She's not uh, that stupid. Yeah, Jen, didn't you like Draco Ginny last week? It, Jenny, Jen's a closet Draco Ginny shipper. I didn't say that it didn't squeak me. I just said that I like to read a couple of them. Wait, like how, can you, how, how can you read it if you, if you if it squicks you? Like, what's wrong with you? Because I have this innate ability to replace characters in my head when I think the story is good. But how can the story be good if it's Draco Ginny? Because the plot and the storyline are good. How can the plot and the storyline be good if it's about <laughs> Draco and Ginny? It depends upon what the meaning of the word is. Yeah. Okay, who else <laughs> wants to scream out, I know you are, but what am I right now? <laughs> I'm, no, I mean, I swear to God, no, I mean, like, gets the whole room I honestly, I honestly wanted to be explained to me because I am clearly missing something. Because obviously it's so out of character that you could replace the characters with other people and it would still be a good story. Oh. Okay. <laughs> well said. 
I have a question for Melinda. Now, Melinda, you, you are a canon freak. You love canon, the canon relationships. When you write, you try and anticipate canon. When you write now that there is no longer a new canon coming, you, you try and say canon compliant. As we know, we all read Deathly Hallows and were tremendously underwhelmed because we all read the seventh Horcrux. The, 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 the Horcrux he never intended to make. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, keep laughing. So, we all know that you're very, you're very into canon. Now, when no one else is looking, and when, you know, when, when Joe has turned her back, when the, the light is turned off above your head as we're grilling you here, there's gotta be something in the canon that you're like, look, Joe said it. Joe believes it. This is part of the universe. But I don't care. I'm not doing that because I'm Melinda Leo and damn it, people like me. There's got to be something in there. that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Half-Blood Prince. How you doing, Harry? Never better. Right after Sirius died. That bugged the heck out of me. Oh, she's a little angry about that. You you know how fast that you want to think about that for a second? (laughs) No, No, I agree with her. We did get closure on Sirius. That still bugs me. It just didn't work for me. Anything else? This is very therapeutic. <laughs> go out, go out. Um, I would have liked the aftermath. Like I said, that that mm-hmm. my favorite scenes are always aftermath scenes. So I would have liked a little more of that to seen how you know how the Weasleys coped with the loss of Fred. I'd like to have seen Harry's first scene with Teddy. I'd have liked to have seen his reunion with Ginny. I I, I would very much like to to know a little more about what happened after. Yeah, I think she needed two or three more chapters. Yeah, I didn't think we were going to get much. I really didn't. But I, I'd hoped for at least something, you know, not just... Well, some of the characters, like I said earlier... 19 years later. Yes, like I said earlier, too, some of the characterization, like Harry using unforgivables. You know, Hermione in a couple paragraphs casting her parents aside. I mean... There's just some things that you don't just do and then just not come back to and deal with. And, you know, we're coming full circle here, but I'm glad you're around because you're actually probably going to give us your spin on... Yeah, there's a lot of Ron and Hermione in this in this news story because I think there's a lot to work with there with them. And then Harry, I mean, you know the Dursleys are always a big, huge sticking point with me. So we're going to do some of that, though not as much as in some of the other stories. But just with him dealing with everything that's happened to him one on top of the other since he was 11 and then all of a sudden okay it's over go be normal you know and he's always wanted to be normal but but how's he supposed to know how to do that i I think there's a lot to explore character wise there and then with ron and hermione hermione and her parents are going to have to work to get i mean i can't imagine i tend to see hermione's parents as very career focused and that's just my interpretation there's nothing in canon to back me up that's just my interpretation of them that they're very career oriented people and their their focus was more on their their practice more so than than Hermione and having a lot of family time with her and that's how I justified why she's shuffled off to the Weasleys so often so i think that there's a lot to explore there with their relationship and also between she and Ron with the fact I mean, I know that they, they kissed over the house elves, but he walked out on them and she was angry when he got back. And I was thrilled that she was angry when he got back. But I think once everything's over and their relationship starts to grow, they're going to have to deal with the fact that, that he walked out and she's going to have to have some worries in her head that what's going to happen when things get tough again? What's he going to do? And for him, I mean, he was the one that, that left and yeah, he came back. 
but I think Harry and Hermione's relationship grew stronger because they stuck together the whole time. Ron's going to have to find a way to, to find out where he fits back in with them again. Pre-order so, Amazon.com. That's all I can say right now. Cause I, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that's that, that's why we're all here. It's just it's the untold story. It didn't fit into the number of pages that this class gave to Rowling to write. There's just so much more story. Yeah, I, I, I want to know. I, I want to know, too, and you're the one who's writing it, so what <laughs> are you doing here wasting time with us? But I do just want to ask one thing. Now, I want to make this clear. I, I have no insider information. She wouldn't tell me anyway. The woman's like a vault. But let me just ask you this. Now, Curse of the Damned, the, the Dursleys uh, killed. The Seventh Horcrux, the Dursleys didn't really make it too well. No, I killed them at the end too, didn't I? There, yeah. I don't like them. Yeah, yeah. Now let me ask this. Now, um, canon Dursleys go on vacation, you know, forced vacation, <laughs> and epilogue, mm, no real mention. Linda um, Leo writing story taking place after Dursleys were last seen alive, with absolutely no canon compliant reason that they remain that way. So I will repeat: Curse uh, the Damned. Well, no, Dudley lives because we know that Dudley and his family and Harry and his family, they get together at Christmases later on and it's all very uncomfortable. Their kids hate each other, but they, they still get together for Christmases. So we got to find out how that happened and what, what came about. How do we know that? Them. Is that in the epilogue? Did Joe mentioned that. Joe mentioned that in an interview. Did Joe happen to mention that Vernon and Petunia were in the background, like in the other room? No, she said nothing. They're free to kill. <laughs> now, now, so you just to recap, every time you've ever put them in a story, ever, they're like Kenny. They don't. They don't. They usually don't. Like they're the red shirts from old Star Trek. And you've got Wait. this new story rolling out in a few months here. You know, you're working on it, you're diligently working on it. Um, would you place bets on them making it through the first 12 chapters? No. Mm-mm. First 12? Yeah, they're going to survive through the first 12. Ha! <laughs> I don't... Cause here's, um, Do you still hate Dudley, though, after book seven? Dudley has some potential. He's not my favorite. He's never going to be my favorite, but he's got some potential there. And there, there has to be more going on because Harry easily just walked away at the end and, and even Dudley said see ya and, and Harry kind of just shrugged and like, like he couldn't have cared less you know it was like yeah maybe whatever he was really walking away in my opinion so there has to be something more that happens there to get them to the next stage where, where, where they would spend some time at the holidays together unlike As in your previous happen- story where he's become a serial killer and, and, and murdered yeah Dudley <laughs> <Probably> not that <laughs> no maybe Dudley's um, the son of Sam D- Dudley's going to survive. Um, I don't know about what I'm going to do with Petunia and Vernon yet. I really haven't gotten that far into it. Melinda, you're a big fat liar. Oh, you know what you're going to do. We, we, we I have an idea, but I'm yeah, I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> All right, right now I'm saying this. Now this is being recorded at 11:14 p.m. on Tuesday, November 11th. For those of you listening, when this comes out in 2009. This is what, this is my prediction. You know, think I have insider information, don't think it, whatever you want. Vernon is going to be killed by the Avada Kedavra curse. There will be a freak accident on the way to the cemetery, and Petunia will be hit with the casket. (laughs) (laughs) Take it to the bank. 
Damn, Ryan, you stole my idea. <laughs> if anyone would deserve it, it'd be those two. In front of the entire neighborhood. <laughs> because oh, that would be so that. mortifying for Petunia. Yeah. <laughs> well, I have to tell you, that's how I want to go after this whole conversation. <laughs> Is Danielle falling on you? Is Danielle falling on me? Well, she'd have to be in a pretty big gasket for that. I'd probably take her out. We have Uh, to stop talking like this. I'm not going to. Yeah, this is kind of creepy. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. This is creeping me out. Plus, I need I need to keep Melinda happy. Melinda is the, the insurance policy for a healthy marriage for me because when she stands up <laughs> drunk at my wedding, Melinda is the one I need to tiptoe up with Tina and grab her and drag her out to the garden. So, so. Is there going to be like a logic to who can make toasts at your wedding? Like, can anyone from PFW who shows up like make a toast to you? You're not allowed to, but have you ever seen Lady Chi read the rest of Ryan's friends and family would be like, "Who are these people? What Mike are they doing?" Mike is so here? obsessed with wedding toasts. I, I really want to be the first one to make a toast at some wedding, somewhere, someday. How about your children? Have a child, Mike. He but has to get a girlfriend first. The- M- married women on this podcast, you've obviously had engagement parties. Now, is it, is it like a tradition at an engagement party for the father of the bride to say like a few words at the party? Like at the family party, like, you know, just tell a funny story. Is that like a tradition? I don't know, because we didn't have one. What ended up happening was, now, Danielle's mother is Molly Weasley, but more grounded. And Danielle's father is Arthur Weasley, but less grounded. So so he's running all around looking at all the muggle stuff. He hasn't even, he forgot to pay the mortgage, because he's so excited because of all the muggle stuff. And Molly is sharp as a tack. Now, D- Danielle's mother informed Danielle's father that parties on Sunday, I want you to write a toast so you can toast Danielle and Ryan, you know, before all our friends and family. Danielle's dad, Dave, Big Dave as I call him, because he's a very small little man, forgets. <laughs> so we're all standing outside, we're having a lovely day, and all of a sudden, Danielle's mother says, Dave, I, you have a few words to say, and they do like the little jingle with the glass thing. You would literally look at him and think he was being sent out to, like, an execution squad. <laughs> he, did, he doesn't have a thing planned. So the thing you have to know is he owns his own business, and Danielle worked with him for three years. So we're, we're standing, and I have my arm around her. This picture's up of this moment on my Facebook account. And we're standing in front of him, and he positions us on the bumper of his car, because we're outside. So I'm like, all right, this is, this is new. Well, okay, maybe it's about the car. And he he, he, he is completely pale. And he, he says, Danielle, my lovely daughter, Danielle, and Ryan. So now I <laughs> I, I want you to know that, that it's been an absolute joy for us to have you. <laughs> You've been a very hard worker. He's eulogizing. <laughs> and you and you brought a, a great deal of joy to us each and every day. And we're all going to miss you so much. And... <laughs> We, we wish you just the best of luck in all your future endeavors. And I look at him, and I'm like, oh, my God, he's giving the, you're leaving the firm for better opportunity speech. And I lean over, and t- there's pictures I swear got up on my Facebook page. I actually swear to God, I thought he was going to give her a clock. <laughs> and it was like the single funniest moment of my life. So the theory here is if you're going to give a speech, please write it in advance. Even after that, he's like, Rye, you think I covered? I really am work on that. I'm like, Dave, it was seamless. We had no idea you were doing that. <laughs> it 
mean, she's coming back. <laughs> I know. We're there every Sunday. Like, it's hysterical. And she hated working there. Where, what so was it? Lindsay, he owns a rug store. What advice would you give aspiring writers? I don't know. I'm still trying to be one. <laughs> and you are a, a successful one, not an aspiring. Successful fan fiction. Just try to make something happen in every chapter. If it seems like it's a chore for you to be writing a chapter, then it's going to be a chore for somebody else to read. So just try to make something happen, even if it changes the direction of the story a little bit. And, and cliffhangers are good. I know what I would tell them. I would tell them to read. Read, 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 read everything you can get your hands on. Shampoo yeah. bottles, magazines, whatever. Because you can't be a good writer if you're not a reader. Uh, this is actually a Gen 2 question that I pulled off my Skype list. But um, what bits of the story has she hidden in that reflect her life or personality? There are certain just little lines every once in a while that somebody says that someone else has said that I'll pick up. Or just little things that happen, even if it's not exact. I'll be like, all right, I can use that. You know, there's nothing really blatant in there. But every once in a while, something will happen. I'm like, oh, I think I can use that. And I might change things around a little and make it more character appropriate for who I'm writing. There's things in there. Oh, there's something I'm remembering from the seventh horror crux. Uh-oh. It's a line that Leo had, and I can't remember what yeah. it was. <laughs> I was wondering if you are going to remember that. We both know if I could remember it right now, I'd say it. So the fact that I'm having a brain fart is, is probably the best thing <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know what you're talking about, but I'm not going to read it either. <laughs> you're not going to tell me. You're going to maybe go read no. the seventh Horcrux now that I remember what the hell it was. Yep, right. go ahead and go read but, it and see if you can remember. Well, you know, I will, and I'll post it on the forum <laughs> for everyone to see. <laughs> no, she's coming to my wedding, and she'll have the power to object. So we have to be <laughs> just treading it very carefully. So that's pretty much it, Melinda. You have survived round two. Yay! Woo-hoo, go, yay. Melinda! You're like, I'm never doing this again. <laughs> No, you know, now that that's it. There's no more big stories to do anyway, so I'm good. For that first few months anyway. Now I've seen the draft. It's going to be. Huge. <laughs> you know, th- thinking back on it, when someone showed me the seventh Horcrux as book seven, the reason I was doubtful, I remember this. I read it and I was really doubtful it was book seven, just because that's the one with Harry and his boxers. And I'm thinking I can't imagine J.K. Rowling having Harry walking around in his boxer shorts. I think he did. She did. Did she? Mm-hmm. They, they got changed all over. Crucio, I said, half a dozen people, didn't he? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No more. No more about. Oh, that could never happen. Because half the things, if you go back and listen to those seventh Horcrux tapes in there, half the things that you all say, oh, well, that could never happen. That could never happen. And then when it really yeah. came up, it did. <laughs> As I recall, the boat was completely our fault. The um, the, the whole Jenny, Jenny, I love you, Jenny thing. That was you fixing what yeah. they screwed up in, in Half-Blood Prince. I'm not sure if you recall this, but Harry dumped. Yeah, no, Harry you, you weren't, we had to, to, to smooth that out though. You weren't the first person. That had to be smoothed out. Well, he dumped her at yeah. the end, and I'm not sure if you recall, but I remember you sent nasty grams to J.K. Rowling. I do recall that. I did. Um, no. but, oh, you, you called the private number. Thing that I thought was the ice. It castle, looks like he's not going to do that in the movie though, so that, that's a good thing. Well, that's true too, because after all, he will take her along with him, and she'll be wearing a bikini the entire time at Deadly Hallows. No, a push-up um, I, Exactly, exactly. I mean, really, why not? <laughs> But I do recall um, being confused by the ice castle in the Seventh Horcrux, and I figured you were just drunk when you wrote it, but now the more I think about it, it may have been us. So there's no, we'll have to read the whole thing again and try and iron that one out. But we spend so much time being so hard on people like Melinda, saying, this possibly couldn't happen. Then we read canon, and we're like, oh my god. <laughs> we had it good. You, you, you done good. You done good. You did do wonderfully. Yeah. Yeah. It was great, Melinda. Melinda, thanks. thanks Wonderful. For- 
for changing lines. I mean, you just you just opened a door. Well, I mean, when she did it, I was in the freaking campground. <laughs> I mean, for all of us that are involved in, I mean, even if we read or write, it's a hobby. It's, 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 you know, it's just supposed to be something to entertain ourselves. And then it's like, for me anyway, once I was like, wait a minute, other people are actually enjoying what I'm writing here too. That was pretty cool. All of us are a little obsessive personalities that get into the, the fandom, you know, so it's... Well, that's an understatement. I would say you were the only... <laughs> Harry G. author I've ever read, and I've had to read a lot of them, where when I finished their fic, <laughs> I googled their name to see if they had anything else. When you google Melinda Leo, you get a picture of Ryan. You do. When you <laughs> google Melinda On images, Leo, you, you said that in something, and I went there, and I was like, Ryan and Tina, they're both in there under pictures. I thought that yeah, was hysterical. Google Melinda Leo. <laughs> click on images. There's a picture of me as a one-year-old child screaming in the arms <laughs> of Santa Claus. <laughs> this is what this woman has done to oh, my, my life. If you google Melinda <laughs> There's Ryan. There's a, no, there's a thing that says, how do I get the fake Harry Potter book? How <laughs> do I get the fake Harry Potter book? <laughs> oh, it must not be you. Oh, it's Melinda Leo on Facebook. Melinda Leo on Facebook. I know that's Yeah, but it's Melinda Leo. It's Australian. Yeah, there's an Australian. Her last name is Leo. All right, Melinda, join Facebook. Just do it. Facebook. I'll, I'll put that on my list of things to do, Ryan. I just want to thank you for doing this. You know, the old saying, you know, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. I mean, the first time you did the podcast, I think you probably thought it would be a wonderful, enlightening experience. I'm not sure what prompted you to do it a second time, but I hope you gained some yes. knowledge of humanity from it. I'm basically going to read anything you ever write, so if you would like to bill me for it, perhaps you can, you know, pick up some pocket money that way, and I think I speak for a lot of people. <laughs> You're here. That, that, that's the illegal part, though, right? <laughs> can't, yeah. Can't. I meant when you write non-canon <laughs> stuff, but thank you for causing me to you know, issue a disclaimer. <laughs> I'm going to have to come up with a new warning, aren't I? Yep. Yes, you are. Thank you. Thank you. Sue's the warning person over there. Because she sounds so calm. Like, Sue's the flight attendant. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm sorry, we're going to crash and you're going to have to die now. Please turn your tray tables. You're going to have to die now. <laughs> yeah, and everyone does because Sue is just one of those people that, oh, I'm going to piss her off. All right, let's do it. There you go. So, all right. So with that, um, we are going to go attempt to find Mike's password to Facebook. We are going to register Melinda Leo and everything will be fine. Have a lovely <laughs> evening, everybody. Good night. We'll just so hold on to the wonder that those books brought to our lives. Keep each other safe. Keep faith. Good night. Potterfic Weekly, where the story never ends. Melinda, you have survived another Pufa reading of your stories. And I'm sure you are feeling like it's never going to end. You survived discussions about boat boats, Ryan baiting your newest fic, becoming a sex symbol for teenage girls, erection cast, being called a hairy torturer, off-topic podcasts, Ryan and Keza fighting over who you like best, and killer caskets. But put down your mic's lemonade and take a bow. Not only could Gen 2 not make Gen 2 notes, but you have managed the impossible. You've turned P.S. into a Harry Ginny shipper. And then you made her day, no, her year, when you answered Mike's question. So here's to you, Melinda. 
Thanks a lot. We all love you. Hello, Puffwa. This is Julia. And I'm here today to just chat with you guys. I think it's time we have a little one-on-one, heart-to-heart sort of thing. A nice chat. Anyway, today is the death day party over on the forums, and it's supposed to be a period of special, a special and exciting period of well-mannered frivolity, which is nice, but I just want you guys to know that I'm not feeling so frivolous. I'm not, I'm really not feeling frivolous at all. Well-mannered, yeah, maybe, but definitely not frivolous. You know why? Because I should have seen Half-Blood Prince already. Yeah, that's right, guys. It's Saturday night. I should have seen Half-Blood Prince at least twice by now. I should have gone Thursday day, I should have dressed up in my Gryffindor robes, gone to class like that, dressed, worn the whole day, dressed in these robes, and then got in the car, drove to West Hartford, met up with some awesome friends, and then seen the movie. But did I do that? Oh no, I did not do that. You know why? Because WB decided that you needed a huge, big summer hit. Which is fine. You know, I understand that WB, you know, their job is to make money. So I understand the need for a summer hit. But, I mean, Harry Potter? Really? Really? You couldn't have just, like, moved Twilight to the summer or something like that? Seriously, guys. Whose stupid idea was that? I mean, really. So, here I am. It's Saturday night. And rather than, you know, being excited and frivolous about having seen Half-Blood Prince and, you know, being happy and, you know, bitching with all of you guys about how they ruined the book and they left out this, that, and the other thing, but still being really happy about it, I'm here just complaining about how I haven't seen it. And this just goes to further the stereotype that Jews like to complain about things. Because, I mean, here I am, complaining. (sighs) Man, stupid WB. Okay, you know what? I think I might feel a little bit happier if I go read some fanfic. So, I think I'm going to do that. Yeah. Okay. Goodbye, Puffwa. I hope you guys are all in a better mood than I am. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday dear Cody. On this recording that we are currently doing, where we are being eminently sensible, I'd like to wish Cody a happy sweet 16th. You will please forgive the singing. One, two, three. Happy, happy birthday, birthday to you. Happy, happy, happy birthday to you. To you, you. Happy, happy birthday, birthday to you, Cody. Happy birthday to you, you, and many more. Just speed that up a little. It sounds like a death march. <laughs> I have been at George. You're a hundred and you, you look like a monkey with bananas and you smell like. <laughs>
Cody. Hey, look, that was, just, that was from the heart. Happy birthday. Happy birthday, Cody. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Mwah. Mwah. <laughs>